on rezoning request, request, district design standards, and other land use rules. This meeting of the Denver Planning Board begins now. Welcome everyone to the Denver Planning Board meeting for Wednesday, February 15th, 2023. Uh, we are called to order and I'll do a roll call. Angel. Here. Caitlin. Here. Fred. Here. Gosha. Here. Heidi. Here. Jordan. Here. Mary Beth. Here. Melissa. Here. Rachel. Here. And I'm Joel. I am here. We have 10 members present and we have a quorum. We reserve time at the beginning of every planning board meeting for public comment from anyone who's come to tell us about a topic that is not otherwise on the agenda. If there's something you'd like to tell planning board about, um, again, that is not otherwise on the agenda, could you use the raise hand feature in Zoom and we'll give you three minutes. And we do not have anyone who signed up in advance for this. Okay, I'm not seeing anyone. So we'll move on to meeting records for approval. We have three meeting records for approval. I think all of which uh, need some corrections. Uh, are there any corrections that people wanted to note for January 3rd meeting record? Okay, let me just pull up my notes here. Um, so uh, January, I think it's January 4th, perhaps. So we might have a disconnect between the agenda, which says January 3rd, and the meeting records that themselves that say January 4th. In any case, um, this meeting record needs to be updated to indicate the vote for the first of the two meeting records that was approved at that meeting and to update um, my role from president, uh, but thank you, uh, to chair. Uh, with those two corrections, would somebody like to move approval of the meeting record for January 4th? I move to approve the meeting record of January 4th. With second. Okay, so moved by Fred and seconded by Angel, and that was with those corrections, correct, Fred? Yes, with the corrections. All right, uh, any comment, any further comments on that meeting record? I'll do a roll call vote. Angel? Aye. Caitlin? Aye. Fred? Aye. Gosha? Aye. Heidi? Heidi? I was not present at that meeting, Joel. Okay, I'm sorry. I should have been paying attention to who was at the, that meeting. So if you weren't present, just uh, feel free to pass. Uh, Jordan? Aye. Mary Beth? Aye. Melissa? Aye. Rachel? Aye. Uh, and I vote aye as well. That passes unanimously among those voting. The second meeting record uh, was from January 18th. And the corrections I noted here were um, to clarify, and I think this is just a, a record keeping, the first voting item on the general agenda, item four had only 10 votes noted uh, but it didn't specify, there were 11 members present, so it didn't specify if uh, someone had recused on that item uh, or if it was just mistranscribed. In fact, 11 voted. Um, my name is misspelled. Um, my role is chair and the uh, public commenter with Jonathan Pira, P-I-R-A. I've already sent these um, to staff, so they don't have to write them down. Were there any other corrections uh, noted for the January 18th, 
Okay, would someone like to move uh, with corrections? I move to approve the meeting record for January 18th with corrections. I'll second. It's been moved by Jordan, seconded by Mary Beth. The roll call vote, Angel. Aye. Caitlin. Aye. Fred. Aye. Gosha. Aye. Heidi. Aye. Jordan. Aye. Mary Beth. Aye. Melissa. Aye. Rachel. Aye. And I vote aye as well. That passes unanimously. Uh, and then uh, the February 1st uh, meeting record, the only thing I noted was uh, my name was misspelled and the role needs to be changed to chair. Are there any other corrections for February 1st? All right, would someone like to move? I move to approve the meeting records of uh, February 1st. Second. Right. With the, I'm sorry, Joel, with uh, corrections. Thank you very much. Moved by Heidi and seconded by Angel. Okay, I will do a better job here of just calling on those who are present at that meeting. Uh, Angel? Aye. Fred? Aye. Gosha? Aye. Heidi? Aye. Jordan? Aye. Mary Beth? Aye. Rachel? Aye. And I vote aye as well. That passes unanimously. Okay, we are on to uh, our first information item. Um, Due to the needs of the uh, key personnel who's going to be presenting this, we've moved this information item to the front of the agenda. And we have two council sponsors uh, of this item, Amanda Sandoval and Robin Kanich, presenting on modernizing zoning variances. And we also have uh, Tina Axelrad and uh, Alec. Alec, I'm not seeing you on the screen anymore. I'm sure you're here. Um, great. Um, uh, to present on this topic. Uh, who will be starting? Councilwoman Sandoval? Thanks, Joel. I'm here to answer any questions as the planning board gets briefed. Um, I thank you all for accommodating, accommodating my schedule. Um, it's challenging to be a candidate and do my full-time job at the same time, so I had a debate this evening. Um, so I really thank you all for accommodating my schedule. I just got word my debate got canceled because of the inclement weather Why we're here on Zoom today. So I'm here for this item and the second item. Um, but I really do appreciate you all accommodating this complicated schedule of being a candidate and running at the same time. So I'm here on behalf of Councilman Kanich. We um, came before you all for modernizing, modernizing, modernizing the Board of Adjustment last year. This is phase two of that, where there is a, I'm not going to go much into it, but we have referred a ballot question to the April 4th ballot to take this hundred year old language out of charter. If the voters so do approve, this language would be, um, it's in draft form to replace that if this were to pass in April. So if you have any questions off of city council time and out of my official capacity, I'm happy to answer those ballot questions, but because they've already been referred to the ballot, I can't use city time to talk about them any further. Um, other than that, I'll pass it over to Alec and just want to say that this has been a collaborative effort and thank you so much to Tina Axelrod and Alec for um, working on this um, with Councilman Kanich and I for the past almost year and a half, two years. Thanks, Joel. Thank you. All right, we'll turn it over to Alec Miller and Tina Axelrod. 
Right. Thank you so much. I'm Alec Miller. I'm a senior city planner with the zoning administration team on the development services side of the house in CPD. Um, thank you again for being here, Councilman Sandoval. Um, this project, so modernizing zoning variant. Today, I'm going to go over the background and purpose of the project, the changes proposed to the administrative adjustment and variance procedures, um, some process changes that are also proposed, as well as next steps and discussion. Um, if there's a point where you want to jump in and ask a question, I'm completely open to that, um, or we can discuss at the end. Um, as Councilman Sandoval already alluded to, phase one of this project began in 2021. Um, with an initiative that remade the Board of Adjustments requirements for appointments and qualifications. And now we're in phase two, which really focuses on the work that the board does and how relief from zoning standards is granted. Phase two is comprised of two key parts, that charter amendment that she mentioned. Um, currently, the city and county's charter speaks very specifically to how zoning relief uh, can be granted by the Board of Adjustment all the way down to the votes required for approval and the approval criteria that must be met. And in December of 2022, um, the City Council uh, did refer that question to the ballot to be voted on in April. If it's approved by the voters, then that step will clear the way for the text amendment changes that I'll be discussing today. Um, so our focus today is the proposed Denver Zoning Code Text Amendment, which, uh, which seeks to change how requests for relief from zoning standards are dealt with at a couple different levels. The purpose of the project is to streamline and improve how zoning relief is granted by focusing on uh, two key aspects of that work. Uh, first, we looked at the split of authority between staff and the Board of Adjustment. Um, to make sure that the right decision makers are dealing with the right requests. Uh, as well as um, then the second aspect is revisiting the eligibility and approval criteria for the most common requests, most common situations. Um, and a couple of themes that we found or, or things that we've kept top of mind are that the vast majority of requests that go to the Board of Adjustment are one and two unit residential. And um, these requests often focus on making existing homes more useful for their owners and occupants. Um, so I'll move into the administrative adjustment portion. These are the, um, the, the relief that can be granted at the staff level. And I'm, I'm about to spend quite a bit of time on administrative adjustments that's outside of the board's purview, but it's important to, to understand because it tells the story of the split between staff and the board. Um, and, uh, and it'll also preview some of the review criteria that will also apply to the variance procedure. Um, so, Administrative adjustments are meant to capture the smaller scale and less impactful cases and allow for efficient review and preserving some of the some of the board's time for cases that really warrant the public hearing process. 
Um, and then, so first we'll talk thresholds for administrative adjustments, then review criteria, and then standalone AAs. Um, so uh, currently, there's an existing table for administrative adjustments that contains both categories of building forms, both residential and non-residential. And one of the big changes that you'll notice is that we've split that table by building form, split it into two separate tables. Um, this, uh, this example in front of you is, is just a couple of rows from the first table focused on the residential building forms. We've increased many of the thresholds for adjustments that are allowed. And here we've increased the zone lot width to 10% that can be adjusted by 10% and added a new adjustment for zone lot depth that doesn't exist today. Then the column on the far right points readers to the criteria that must be met for each of these. And for some of the adjustments, the extent of the adjustment is based on the criteria being used to justify the, re the request. So for example, if neighborhood compatibility is the criteria you're using, that might limit you more or less than if you were using an unusual physical circumstance to justify your request. Uh, this is an example from the second table that applies to all other building forms, again, typically for commercial uses. Um, both of these speak to aspects that we heard about during the research phase of this project. Um, the required parking one responds specifically to the loss of required parking spaces um, in order to provide electric vehicle charging spaces. And the second one on the row on the bottom relates to outdoor trash storage, which might seem very specific, but it's something that we heard about as an, as an issue for adaptive reuse in East Colfax. So we tried to build in uh, these specific issues that we heard about and read about during research at the beginning of the project. Uh, now I'm moving on to the review criteria for administrative adjustments. Um, the dark blue on the slide represents um, aspects that are staying more or less the same, and then the, the orange highlights things that are changing. Um, for neighborhood compatibility, staff is currently limited to which blocks or specific properties we can look at to evaluate neighborhood compatibility. And the proposal here is to remove those specific limitations to allow staff to use evidence and professional judgment to choose which properties we look at to evaluate for compatibility with the neighborhood. In terms of unusual physical conditions or circumstances, this one is remaining the same with the exception of um, the addition of established trees or non-conforming or compliant structures existing on the lot. Um, these things can now be considered as part of the, an unusual physical condition analysis. And then um, this affordable housing, I'll talk about on the next slide. And I also wanna highlight that there are also additional criteria provided in the eligibility table for administrative adjustments. That electric vehicle charging retrofit one is a good example of that type of criteria where it asks you to to prove up a little bit more based on the request.
This slide shows the criteria necessary to meet for the to qualify for an adjustment based on affordable housing provided. Um, applicants would be limited to the adjustments in the table when it's an administrative adjustment request. And um, the key here is that they have to demonstrate that more income restricted units uh, are being provided as a result of the adjustment than would be created without the adjustment. Um, there's, that is number one. And then I also wanna highlight number three this provision states that the purpose of the adjusted standard would still be achieved or substantially advanced. Um, we think is another good safeguard that we've added to this one. Um, and then I'll highlight here, this exact same criteria is also proposed for the variance section for approval of a variance. Um, and then I mentioned some standalone administrative adjustments um, many of these are, are brand new, and many have also been moved from the variance section to the administrative adjustment. The first, the first bullet there, meeting overriding laws, um, that's one that's been moved from the variance to become an, a standalone AA. Um, this would allow the zoning administrator to approve an adjustment that's necessary to meet, for example, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, and I'll stop there. And the second bullet there relates to historic properties located in a land, uh, historic structures or properties located in a landmark district. These are, this is currently a, a variance criterion that we're instead moving to the administrative adjustment. And part of the purpose of doing this is to um, remove the two board step the two board process the historic properties currently have to go through for a variance. Um, rather, if they meet the higher bar of what Landmark is looking for, which is a more compatible end result than a project that would comply with the code, um, then they can get their adjustment from the zoning administrator um, after they receive that recommendation from Landmark. Um, public utility placement is uh, a variance that we have seen quite a bit in the past, not so much lately, but um, we've added that as a standalone administrative adjustment. And then um, in Article 11, this fourth bullet, there are location limitations for certain uses, how close a particular use can be. Um, to one another or how many can be within a certain radius, um, this or proximity to a residential district. This would expand the ability of the administrative, the um, zoning administrator to waive or adjust those limits based on um, a showing of no substantial adverse impacts based on the physical context. Though sometimes you'll have a river or train tracks or other considerations that might um, mitigate any, uh, any impacts from having these uses close together. And then finally, limited tolerance for construction errors. This, this relates to um, when CPD has approved plans, but a violation occurs during construction. This gives a path for minor errors to be approved through staff. Um, but they're limited to these on the screen here. 
we wanted to ensure that only truly minor errors come through staff. So it's set to be limited to certain standards and certain amounts of violations. I have heard that there may be some value in um, splitting up the one related to setbacks so that a smaller degree of error can occur in the primary street setback as compared to a side setback. There's a big difference between 25% of a five-foot setback versus a 20-foot primary street setback, for example. Um, I know this is a lot of information, so we can circle back on any of these. Um, moving into the, I've finished the administrative adjustments, and now moving into the variance review criteria. Um, I, again, I'm using sort of the same color coding scheme with continuing the blue with the orange being new. Um, I, so, Variances are much more open-ended than, uh, than administrative adjustments because they get the public hearing process. Uh, they require that the board find that the request meets one specific justifying circumstance. So one of these on the screen here and all of the general review criteria. So first I'll look at the, talk about the specific justifying circumstances and then we'll go to the general review criteria. Unusual physical circumstances or conditions is mostly remaining the same with the exception of the same, the tree, uh, established trees and existing structures that's, um, that I talked about before. Um, neighborhood compatibility, the board does not have the same limitations as staff. And so that criterion is going to remain the same. And this non-conforming or compliant uses criterion is also going to stay the same. I've talked about the affordable housing criterion. It'll be the same as the administrative adjustment. And then I'll spend a little time on uh, E, F, and G in the next couple of slides. Compliance with a pending ordinance. This is something brand new and it's a little experimental, but um, we think it's worth trying. The, this would allow the board to approve a proposed variance based on a public draft of pending legislation. A great example of this is the bundle of amendments that CPD brings forward every couple years. These can be real sticking points in plan review when a standard is not written right or um, needs clarification because they can keep people from getting their permits. And so it can be worth the effort to come to the board to ask for a variance after a public draft is available um, in order to meet the new standard. But of course, it's got the public hearing process. Um, we also understand that sometimes we might bring forward a text amendment and then some portion of it doesn't get adopted. That's a part of the calculation that the board will be making because once someone has their variance, they have it and it runs with the land. So they're able to move forward with that, even if the provision isn't adopted in, um, in the legislative process. Um, so permits issued in error, this is uh, a path forward for cases where um, CPD has made a mistake or the applicant has made a mistake or both. And um, we need a path forward to deal with the mistake 
and when a permit has been issued in error and they've depended on it. Um, so rather than uh, asking an applicant to demonstrate some physical hardship as a result of a permit being issued in error, it, it specifically spe speaks to the, real, the circumstances and the evidence uh, asking them to um, show that they've relied on that zoning permit for construction in good faith um, and to show that the uh, effort or cost to comply with the standard is disproportionate to the size of the error. Um, yeah. So uh, moving now into the general review criteria that every variance has to meet. Um, the first two items here on the screen, they, uh, they speak mainly to um, items that the board cannot approve, such as uh, an unpermitted operation of an unpermitted use um, and amendments to an approved plan. So these to us are applicability statements. So we we're proposing to relocate them to that section. Um, but again, yeah. C and D here have been modified mainly to reflect other changes earlier in the text, such as the, um, the reference in C to persons with disabilities that would be covered in the, the ADA administrative adjustment. Um, e and F relate to whether the variance impairs the intent and purpose of either the code or the applicable zone district. And in research, we were feeling like these weren't getting used very much, but I've also heard that perhaps it's worth keeping them there as a, as a safeguard. So I'm open to hearing your opinions on that, um, particularly when, when something conflicts with the purpose of the zone district. I've, I've heard a bit that that would be helpful to maintain. Um, G modified previous language from reasonable use and enjoyment of property to focus on um, adverse impacts and whether they would be substantially mitigated. The Board of Adjustment, when we spoke with them last week, had concerns about changing this one. So it may either go back to the original language or change slightly by the next time you see it. But um, I'm also happy to take any comments that you have on that as well. H and I are existing and they'll remain in the text. H relates to uh, the request being the minimum change necessary. And I ask that the proposal um, address concerns raised by the zoning administrator or other agencies, other city agencies. And then finally, um, J is a new addition and it's a hook to push applicants to demonstrate how they've attempted to meet code requirements. And um, it's a question that frequently comes up at the Board of Adjustment. And so we thought it was worth including here. Uh, now moving into some of the, the process changes proposed in this text amendment. Um, first is a bridge amendment that's proposed to allow former chapter 59 properties with one and two unit residential uses to access this administrative adjustment and variance procedures in the, the, in the Denver zoning code. So one and two unit residential is where we drew the line. Um, this is primarily because more often than not, these property owners are in former chapter 59 as a result of a master developer making a choice 
to develop large areas on a single zone lot, for example. And there's not an easy path for them to rezone to the, the Denver zoning code. Examples of this can be found in uh, Central Park or Lowry. I'm sure you're familiar. Um, and then so the next bullet is a mandatory pre-application meeting with CPD for variances. Um, this will allow us to better coordinate with applicants and potentially nudge them toward a more supportable request or even um, a project that complies with the code. Uh, third, we're proposing to add a requirement to exhaust the administrative adjustment um, if the request falls into the bounds of what's allowed in that, in that eligibility table. And rather than bypassing CPD to go straight to the board, we don't think this happens a lot, but it would give us some certainty that there's consistency in how the process is, how the process goes. Uh, and fourth, um, this, this is a clarification to the clarifying the ability of an applicant to request for an extension of a variance um, past their expiration date. Uh, this arose from the pandemic when some people couldn't get under construction quickly enough and the only option we had was to send them back to the Board of Adjustment for the same exact variance. Um, we'd like to avoid doing that in the future, so this would help correct that. And then uh, finally, this vote threshold, this would allow the Board of Adjustment to approve a variance with three votes instead of four, um, but would require four votes to overturn a zoning administrator administrator decision. The, um, the charter language actually dictates the number of votes required today. And so the, uh, the amendment would allow this to happen. And I think it would also bring us in line with our peer cities. I have not been able to find um, any other city that requires such a high vote threshold to allow for a variance. Um, then, so we're here February 15th at planning board with this informational item. Our next big steps are the deadline for comments on the public draft, which is February 27th. And comments can be emailed to me and I'm happy to share my email address. And we expect to be back here for a planning board action item on March 15th. And then of course the charter amendment election takes place on April 4th. So I'm happy to answer any questions. I can, I'll keep my screen shared in case you wanna go back to any of my slides. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, I'll look for hands raised for uh, questions and discussion on this topic. We'll start with Mary Beth and then Fred. Uh, thank you. Um, going back to the, I think it was about the third slide. It was about trash cans. I remember we used to get so many complaints about trash cans. I'm not sure I understood what the change was going to be about trash um, cans. Trash so storage sorry. for multi-unit. Okay, it wasn't for single unit. Right. There, there's a, a specific 20-foot setback in that zone district for trash enclosures. And because of the shallowness of the lots on East Colfax, we've heard in, a, in an adaptive reuse context that that setback can actually cause some problems for reusing structures. Is the rule that the trash cans still have to be out of public view if it's not a trash day or something still 
there? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not sure about the public view part. I'm really just, I'm really only clear on what the exact setback is. Um, but this is also one of those examples where we look to the intent and purpose of the Main Street Zone District and abutting residential uses for approval of this. You've, it's it's got to be mitigated by other types of screening or the configuration of the lot, for example, so that it doesn't um, so it just it just refers to the setback for the screening. Yeah, the, there's still a separate screening requirement. Yes. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Okay. The QS I have it is Fred, Caitlin, and Gosha. Fred. Thanks. Uh, <clears throat> thank you for the presentation. This I'm I can't say how happy I am to see some revisions being made. As somebody who has um, been before the Board of Adjustment a number of times on projects that I, I'm really pleased to see this. A uh, couple of things I want to highlight and then one or two small questions. <clears throat> I, I love the idea that we're talking about giving our staff the ability to exercise some professional discretion. Um, one of my biggest complaints as somebody who has professionally used the zoning code and development is that it, it often seems as though it is written in such a way and designed to make our, our planners on staff, people who just check against a checklist, either it is a yes or a no. And as we all know, the real world doesn't work like that. There are conditions that are different and that partnership with staff is invaluable and empowering our staff to be able to do that, I think is, is really important. Uh, so I really appreciate that. I really appreciated the Excel placement one as somebody who's working on a project right now where uh, Excel showed up and said, no, we're not going to put the transformer where the drawings all said it would, was going to be. We're going to put it here. I'm not quite sure that we're going to have to do a board of adjustment thing, but Excel does what they want to do. And the construction errors. I mean, that's just a reality of how this works. And uh, you know, I've certainly raised that that issue with some other zoning pieces before. Uh, on the variance criteria, I did have a question. Uh, that that piece about hardship that is solely financial. Um, in my mind, that seems to uh, conflict with some of the some of what you said about errors or relying upon uh, permits in error, permits that were issued in error. And, you know, kind of saying, well, look, it depends on, I think I, what I heard you say was, it depends on the scale of what it would cost to come into compliance in a way. So in a way, what, what I think I heard on that side was that that really was about financial hardship. Uh, and then at the same time, we've got this criteria, review criteria. So you might just look at that and, and make sure that you're satisfied that, that those are compatible because it, it just seems like a, a possibility to, to trip somebody up. Um, you spoke about trash earlier and I, I reviewed a lot of this a while ago, so I, I may have forgotten, but um, with regards to those adaptive reuse things, I just would encourage you to make sure you're looking closely at what other items might come up that would be applicable. Uh, 
um, loading is is something that I think comes up in adaptive reuse in this you know oh you've got to you've got to create loading off the alley well you know we tear the building down to do that but that kind of blows the the idea and this comes to mind because I was just looking at the the plan that we're going to review later today and it, it had some pretty strong language about making people load on the street and or not on the street, I, I essentially saying, you know, loading has got to be here. So just encourage you, particularly with the work that's going on, uh, reviewing the adaptive reuse to consider if there are other pieces of this that would benefit from inclusion in this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we have Caitlin, Gosha, Jordan, and then myself, Caitlin. Thanks. Um... So I would really just start by echoing Fred's comments. Um, I'm sure that this has been a wish list for various CPD staff over time and probably Board of Adjustment members too, and so glad to see um, this coming forward. Um, I wanted to just confirm a handful of questions. Um, as far as the timing, it sounds like while we would see this in March, um, you would not take it to city council for a vote until you know the outcome of the um, April election, is that right? or the vote? So um, we would go to first reading April 24th. The vote should be, it. it's required by state law to be certified by the 26th. And so um, we'll have that discussion potentially before the vote is certified, um, but then actual adoption wouldn't happen until May. Okay, thank you. Um, I wanted to understand um, and, and agree with Fred, I think moving more items into the administrative adjustment process makes sense. Um, on the landmark or historic building ones, uh, so I understand um, this is now, so if the Landmark Preservation Commission has approved, approved it, then it, it does not also have to go to the Board of Adjustment as it does now, right? That would be handled by the zoning administrator or is there ever a time that the zone that it would also need to go to the Board of Adjustment. So you need to be very clear with the words we're using here. Um, it's not simply that the Landmark Commission approved a design. It's they approved the design and specifically made written findings saying that in this particular instance, uh, a zoning violation would result from the approved design and we, the board, support uh, an adjustment that would essentially uh, allow the landmark design to override the zoning. It's a very special and specific finding that has to be made. It's, it's stated more clearly in the actual review criteria, but with that special finding, all those cases would now go to, to staff. And it doesn't matter whether it's a 50% reduction of something or 100% reduction of something or 2% reduction of something before it would only go to staff if it was within the confines of our allowed authority to grant an adjustment. But now as a standalone, if we have those findings, staff more or less just pushes it through as, as approved. There's not a lot of discretion, in other words, at that point. Got it, thank you. Um, the, you touched on the, the timing of the adjustments, um, and I just want to make, give that a little bit more time. And I was looking at the, the memo, um, as well that you submitted. So 
Um, I think it makes a lot of sense to not have an applicant have to go through a process of submitting a design that they know will be denied, <laughs> um, just to get a denial to then be able to appeal to the Board of Adjustment um, or to a zoning or to the zoning administrator. Can you just touch on on that a little more? I mean, I think it makes sense to just submit, you know, what's being actually proposed. So. So what you're talking about is more our business practice than what's in the code. Yeah. But, um, the business practice has been for what we feel are very good reasons um, that if if uh, the nature of the exception of the variance is tied to a specific project, that that project go through at least an initial review. Um, again, remember, most of these are one and two families. So by initial review, we mean it's it's been touched by the residential review time, um, at least through an initial plan review and comments. Um, on the commercial side, we ask that at least get most of the way, if not all the way through concept before any variances or AA spin off from the project. Um, and we do that because one, um, the board in particular on a variance case will often, as a condition of approval, tie the variance to the specific site plan or development plan that was submitted along. And we know those things will, will evolve if we catch it too early in the process. Um, and because you'd have to go back to the board if you're making a substantial change in your plans that the variance was tied to. Um, and so we're not looking at changing the business practice. There's a little bit more clarity in the code now with this amendment that there are some adjustments that really need to be made before you even submit your permit or development application. Like I wanna change my primary street setback on a one or two family home where it's typically tied to the neighboring lots. And I want you city to actually look beyond that and say, be more compatible. When you look at the whole block to change my primary street setback to something else. I mean, that's a pretty fundamental line in the sand that you need to know before you put pen to paper and submit. So we are, making it clear that on a case-by-case -case basis, we'll accept pre-development uh, permit application requests for adjustments. And we have been doing that in practice and now we're codifying it. Got it, thank you. Um, I appreciate that explanation. Um, I'm almost done, Joel. Uh, so uh, the next one I had is, um, the uh, new opportunity being given to a potentially um, apply for a variance while a text amendment is is being considered, and and I think you 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 sort of spoke to the the risk I guess that exists if the text amendment you know if there's a draft and then that language changes or that um, you know city council chooses not to pass it for example and and it, it, I I. I I think it makes sense when you see something coming down the road that you can be, you know, working ahead towards it. But I, I'm curious to see, I guess, just as a comment, how it would actually play out because of that risk or concern of, you know, that the Board of Adjustment is just going to have to weigh, um, you know, because it once granted, the variance is there. So that's more of a comment. Um, mm -hmm. And then another comment is on the new criteria J um, in the, the, um, review that apply to all of them. Um, do you mind pulling that slide back up? It's there. Oh, thank you. Um, sorry, I'm looking at my notes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I guess I don't know that 
this one seems really necessary. I mean, I think at a practical level, it, it sort of happens. And I, I worry a bit that some, and I'm trying to think of some examples, but that there are some um, variances applied for where this might be difficult to prove up, right? Um, that that there just really isn't an alternative or there aren't reasonable efforts that could be taken with it. Um, and, and I think that when there are, most applicants are you know, probably trying to meet that because they don't wanna have to go get a variance if they don't need one. And so, I, I mean, I think, I guess I, I wouldn't, think it needs to be added as an additional criteria because I think it kind of is part of a consideration. You're right. I think the Board of Adjustment asks that question sometimes anyway, um, but I don't know that I would see it being a requirement. Um, and then uh, my last question in looking at the red line um, of changes, there's a variety of strikes in section 11 around uses and spacing. And I think, oh, was that? Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I oh, no, it's okay. Um, I think that that's because they were all sort of moved into the different section where they talk about administrative adjustments for spacing. And it's just kind of essentially just um, a reorganization rather than a change. Um, mm -hmm. Is that right? Or is there any substantive change on that component? And that's That's correct. They're all going to fall under that use limitations administrative adjustment, but I also want to be clear that there are some use limitations in Article 11 that that adjustment will apply to that don't currently have a waiver associated with them. So it, sense, yeah. it's a reorganization and a slight expansion. To make the, to make the ask. To make the, yes. Yeah. And have that be a standalone uh, type of administrative adjustment where you don't have to show unusual physical conditions or some of these other things just based on the specific geography really of that particular use being asked to to be established at that particular place the spacing or density requirements um, create essentially create a hardship that that's unnecessary because um, uh, because of intervening geography typically um, classic case that this could apply to might be a, a, a residential care use that has a spacing or density requirement. Um, but when you actually put it on a map and do your radius of, of a quarter mile, half mile, mile, whatever the, the standard says, you find that your dot in the center of your circles where the proposed res care uses is the, the other uses that might fall in the uh, circles of nearby spacing or density are actually across I-25 or across the Platte River or across the railroad track. So essentially you're not getting the concentration that the standards are trying to prevent because of these other intervening man-made or natural features. So that's what we're opening up, all uses that are subject to a spacing or density limit to we had it for some, not for all. I couldn't tell you why we had it for some, not for all. Maybe it was conscious, maybe it wasn't, but at least now everyone can ask through the same process using a very rational set of criteria for an exception. Great, no, I think that makes sense. Thank you. Thank you, Gosha. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for all the work uh, that went into it. Thank you, CPD and Councilwoman. Um, 
Sandoval and um, Kinich. Um, I recently experienced a lot of these um, um, hoops that sometimes we have to jump through um, on the affordable housing projects. So I kind of want to highlight this element because um, I think in a, in a way we were a case study for some of these amendments and really appreciate the work of AHART team and CPD and everybody involved in um, kind of allowing some of these um, uh, challenging uh, approvals from landmark and various um, go forward on that project and kind of, uh, again, maximize the, the number of units that hopefully the project's gonna yield. So I uh, really appreciate that. I have a couple comments, questions. One is um, granting approval based on public drafts. And I think the example of maybe bundle amendment is a good one where I think I would feel fairly confident that maybe it's the right approach. I'm a little more hesitant when um, you know, we, we think about um, other amendments to the zoning code, such as overlays that they may or may not uh, pass as proposed. Um, so you know, we recently had a discussion as a planning board um, discussing a rezoning that was contingent on adopted plan and a plan was not adopted at the time when we were discussing it, we were assuming was gonna get adopted we added a condition to our recommendation, but I kind of worried at uh, thinking about back about that case that similarly to adopted plans, um, I would think that the zoning code um, should be in place or approved before any variances are granted based on, um, on the document that, that's approved or adopted. Um, but my question is uh, about construction errors. I wonder, what are the tolerances right now and how frequently or what type of errors we're seeing and uh, by expanding that tolerance, how much of an errors of need for variances we're gonna be eliminating? Can the, you yeah, that's a great question, um, Gosha. And by the way, your Welton case variance for the affordable housing project on the Welton corridor was definitely a good test of how we drafted that criteria, it's its not necessarily a gimme just because the project is affordable housing. There's more to it than that. Um, and so I do encourage you all to take a hard look at it. Um, the construction error one, um, right now in the zoning code, there really is no tolerance um, in the field for you know slight variations in the field. The only place we have a stated tolerance is for fences and walls. Um, not for the, an actual primary structure or, de, or detached structure. Um, now we, you know, this project is about a process. Um, in the future, we could consider some standard being adopted for a tolerance of some minimal construction error just as a by right thing. So a lot of people are, are also kind of hesitant about that, that somehow that could encourage bad practice, I don't know. But um, since there's zero tolerance now uh, to in the field, you've got to match what's on the plan. Um, we felt this was a reasonable uh, new um, path to ask for an exception because, you know, as Fred said, um, let's be realistic. Uh, 
earth is not flat, decisions are made in the field. Sometimes people don't understand the ramifications of decisions made in the field on their clients with a bulk plane or height or setback and mistakes happen. Um, so we are trying to keep it pretty minimal, certainly at the staff level. And there's still a little bit of tweaking as Alec mentioned to get this right, but we're not talking about a lot of tolerance here. Um, you want more tolerance than that. You go have a public hearing, invite the neighbors and you make all those general review criteria findings and, and see if you can get it. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Jordan. We're not hearing you, but you're not on mute. Sorry, can you hear me now? Yes. Mm -hmm. That was bizarre. Uh, well, I, I wanted to uh, uh, reread some of the things that other people said. First of all, this is clearly something that, that needs to be revisited every you know so often, and I appreciate that you're doing this. It seemed like an absolute ton of work, and I think it, it's well worth doing. Clearly, there was a need or many needs, I guess, in this case. I did, while we're on this, I, I just want to clarify, make sure I understand. So um, the no more than, actually, before I get into this, I just want to commend you on the affordable housing piece. I think that's a, a great uh, innovation. Um, and just want to get that out there before I start asking questions. The 25% the uh, setback variance, this, followed by point B, the no more than one foot horizontal, let's say encroachment, assuming that's you know implying it's it's encroaching in the setback. Uh, is it, I mean, the way that could be read is 25% or one foot, whichever is less, is that? Uh, Those are two separate, two separate so, standards. So the 25% yeah. only applies to an, a setback standard. And like Alex said, I think we, we were thinking side setbacks and not so right. much rear and primary. So we might split that out into by flavor of setback and reduce the percentage for the larger setbacks we would we we have. But the bulk plane is for is just the one foot. Same for height, not a percentage. And right. then we yeah. get back to percentage for building coverage. Yeah, the uh, allocate on it. When I read this, he, he made the point already. I just wanted to put a bold on the, and you did as well, Tina, 25% of 20 feet, if that's the setback, is a substantial error. It's hard to imagine anyone making a five-foot error in construction. That's pretty, pretty massive. Oh, it so, happens. You'd be amazed. <laughs> well, <laughs> the question is, is it an error at that point? I mean, that's a that's pretty substantial. That's a, uh, but, but I think that your point is, is right, that maybe the standard is different for for front and for side setbacks. So I think that's a good direction to go. I, uh, I did um, have a question about uh, new criteria G or, or I guess modified criteria G. Let's flip to that. Ah, uh, this one? Yeah, this yeah. engendered some really interesting conversation with the board members. So I'm curious to hear your take, Jordan. Well, yeah, it, the way it reads to me, especially as compared to the original language, is uh, we allow you to impact. It's like you're still allowed a net impact to your budding properties now in the new language, whereas before you couldn't impact at all. Now it's like you can, you can create a problem as long as you fix it to some degree, and it feels like that some degree is kind of out in the open. It feels mm -hmm. like you're still, but the, the point is you're still kind of creating a net 
potentially negative impacts or your budding properties. I'm wondering how it's actually mitigated is. it's actually we think the opposite. Why is that? The board read it as the way it was stated originally, which is now stricken the, as the first they said. Actually, that was that worked well for us as board members because it didn't say there would be no impact on adjoining properties. It's just that you can still reasonably use and enjoy your property even with the variance, even if it has some limited impact on you or any impact on you. Now we've made it with the proposed change very pretty restrictive. It says, you know, it can't, this variance cannot result in any adverse impact to your neighbor or maybe that, or you have to substantially mitigate it. Well, how are you gonna substantially mitigate it if what you're asking for is to not follow the code? So it was a little, it, it was, like I said, it was a great comment and we're gonna go back and revisit it, but do you all follow why maybe we might wanna go back to the original language? Okay, sort does of. anyone <laughs> see, but you see it, you actually are still reading it differently, Jordan, you think, well, it feels like the first okay. half, in the new language, it feels like the first half will not result in adverse impacts to abutting properties. That's pretty plainly stated. Or to the general or to the general public, or such impacts will be substantially mitigated. But that's still implying that you're, you know, it's that, that's what I'm trying to kind of feel you, that, out. It's, there it's still could still be some impact, yeah. Right, you're, mm -hmm. you're still allowed to intentionally make an impact as long as you go two steps forward and one step back or something like that. I, I it's just weird sort of, and we have this language elsewhere in the code as review criteria for many different uses and other things. It's not unusual, but um, yes, it could result in a net impact that essentially, even though it might be adverse, is not sub not that substantial at the end of the day. Okay, the okay. other way is the other one leaves open the possibility that you know, maybe you might believe that impact is very substantial as the neighbor, but the board can still find that it's not um, and because it's, you can still use your property the way that you've always used your property or that the code expects you can use your property, which I felt like, I think the board felt that gave them a little more elbow room to weigh the relative impacts versus the ask. We'll see that I, it feels like with that second half of the the statement for the second half of the clause it it, it sort of goes back to a, what the original language intent was yeah anyway, but uh but the nuance there i think. think yeah right it's a it's a very small <laughs> very small nuance <laughs> uh and i just also want to reiterate a number of caitlin and Frosha, i think uh, already mentioned the the um you know basing decisions on pending ordinances and, and public drafts and things like that which i think is a really good idea because you know, as we saw, but it is sort of that interesting dynamic of if they do not pass at the end of the day, or if they're not approved or adopted at the end of the day, then it's sort of, you know, the, the sort of interesting conundrum that. Yeah, I mean, think about it. If EHA public review draft had been released and this was in the code, people could have gone to the board of adjustment to ask for additional height based on the fact that, you know, provided they met the criteria and the pending uh, document we we sort of had the you know the opposite run to uh, rush but you know theoretically if you were giving something away in a pending text amendment that you can't get today that's very enticing to a developer there would be this path and then the risk is there that 
that gets pulled back and you just given away something that doesn't get adopted. But I think we also feel by defining pending as a public review draft, at the very least, it's gone through um, multiple reviews internally. So at least staff and working with whatever sponsors and other city agencies feel like it represents um, a path forward should should the city council adopt it. So we didn't yeah. say like, we're thinking about it. Um, right. We didn't say, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, yeah, we have an outline, but we haven't started drafting it. You know, it's it right. was pushed to a line where at least it's pretty baked, if nothing yeah. else. I'd agree. As I said, I think it's a good idea. And I think that it's probably those cases where there is a public draft and it is not approved and it was given away anyway is probably going to be a very small number of cases, uh, I would imagine. So it's probably not a particularly big problem. But the, but I think what Gosha said, uh, yeah. you know, if there's any thought about um, one, uh, you know, the, the kind of the contingency. Yeah. One uh, thing think, we did think of, I think one of our attorneys brought it up, I think Adam brought it up, is that, you know, we want this to apply only to text amendments initiated per Denver zoning code, not, and, you know, not by a, uh, an initiative by the citizens, which right. have to go to a vote. That makes, I think that that's actually probably a pretty like, good. Like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that makes sense. All right, that's all I have. I appreciate the clarifications. Uh, thank you. I'll, I'll take a turn here. Um, uh, for, this, is, um, this is really important and um, I'm glad we're doing this. I've been a long time board of adjustment watcher, both uh, going with my neighborhood to um, support or oppose uh, variances or, or just watching uh, cases that come to come to my attention, especially um, now that they're televised since, uh, since the pandemic makes it much easier. And it's often struck me that if strictly followed, our existing variance criteria can nearly never be met. Um, if you have a personal uh, handicap, if you have a triangular lot, um, yes, there's a clear path uh, for getting a, a variance, but um, someone as an exercise strictly reading it would have a hard time passing most variances that we need the flex in the system uh, to pass. Um, we need to be a, a rational process uh, for passing it, and that means some rational criteria, and I think that's that's what you're doing here. Uh, this is really important and will allow the Board of Adjustment to be uh, much more consistent um, with how they evaluate case by case, um, rather than uh, having to look at the criteria, but but mostly look at their own um, sense of what's reasonable, which is, I imagine, what has had to happen for years and years. Um, the presentation, I think, kind of buried the lead a little bit. I think that the big action here is the process changes, um, because this is uh, this is really important that you access uh, an enlarged um, set of administrative adjustment first, and if that can satisfy you, great. Otherwise, you go on to variance. It's going to make a lot of a lot of things handleable through administrative adjustment. Um, and um, the pre-app meeting, I think, is great. I've watched so many people just appear uh, at the required time, you know, having submitted their documents in advance, and um, you know, it, it's as if we're asking them to to play lawyers when they may not have hired an attorney uh, trying to present a case with uh, on a topic they'll only encounter once in their life. So um, 
when somebody's applying or in, has the idea to apply for rezoning, there's a courtesy pre-application conference. I love extending that to a pre-application meeting for variances. Um, I would, I, and it just, this doesn't belong in the text of the code, but I'd um, given the suggestion to Alec and, and uh, I wasn't surprised you guys were already thinking about it. Um, I, I love to see staff for things that actually come to a variance, um, prepare a one page staff report as to staff's analysis as to whether it meets this criteria. You know, which of these main criteria does it meet? If any, does it meet all the general criteria? Um, I know that could be a template, but that would just add an awful lot of regularity um, uh, to, to this process. Um, I, since I mentioned Alec, I should thank him for his time. I've, I, I do dove into the public review draft here, and I think if we added our discussions together, you probably spent a couple hours with me, so th thank you very much. Um, a couple um, things, and my, my colleagues have already brought up some of these. Um, one lens to look at this during the review process is, uh, can it be gamed? Um, so I think to a degree you talked about um, errors and um, could errors be strategic, uh, which I think is what uh, uh, Jordan was talking about with that, you know, front setback. That's a big, you know, was that really an error? Was it a strategic error? So trying to um, not leave an opening for uh, strategic errors. Uh, another, another type of thing, as I read this, that I think in the public review draft you could do um, or at least we need devious minds to think about <laughs> ways this could be gamed. If um, if you have three-story zoning and everybody else on your block has eight-story zoning and they've built eight stories, could you argue that that is that by being allowed, getting a variance to, to be allowed to build eight stories is compatibility with the existing neighborhood um, or some other measure? You know, you see, see my point here is something that really you should change your zoning and a variance should not be a substitute uh, for getting the right zoning. So this adds up to, I'd really like to see um, E and F, or especially F here shown on the screen, um, mm -hmm. remain uh, because mm -hmm. that's just a, a check to say, look, we're not, we're not changing it so far that it changes the purpose of your zone district. The purpose and intent of your zone district is that it's a three-story uh, district. Uh, also in the criteria, um, I understand that you've promoted um, that variants can't add uses not otherwise allowed in the zone district to a broader applicability for variance statement, um, but I don't think there's anything wrong having it as a part of the review criteria as well. That's the that list of does this meet the criteria, review criteria is in front of everybody all the time. So um, although it is redundant, um, I think it's, I think it, um, I think it's perfectly fine to leave it there rather than removing it. On the topic of pending text amendments, um, there's a lot that goes on in board of adjustment hearings that I call signaling. Um, there's this step in practice where, you know, the case is introduced and the facts are recited, and then um, the board turns to the CPD representative or the city attorney and just sort of asks if there's anything else they should know, if if staff or the city attorneys are uh, object, should this variance be granted, as important information the board needs to know. This is a uh, this isn't strictly part of any criteria, but it's vitally important that they that they know it. How can we take that squishy step 
and operationalize it and make it routine. And I kind of think in one interesting way, that's what you're reaching for with the pending text amendment. Let me give you an example. Um, there was for a number of years, an error in the zoning code for ADU side setbacks in the general urban context. Um, they weren't uh, lot width sensitive, even though the primary structure side setbacks were. And so there was a variance, and this is a number of years ago, so I don't have all the details close to, close to mind, but a person applied for a variance saying, I, I wanna build my ADU to within three foot of the sides rather than five foot. And, and at that moment that I'm talking about, staff turned to the city and the city said, we recognize that's an error in the code. It's in our list to fix next time we do a bundle. We would not object if, if it meets all the other criteria for variance. You know, we don't think it impairs the purpose of what we're doing here. As a matter of fact, we recognize that's a bug we intend to fix. Now, that's not quite what you're talking about. You're talking about a pending text amendment. But it's in this, in this world that I'm going to propose a framing of corrections as opposed to a world of policy changes. I like where you've gone for things that are corrections, the kind of things that show up in bundles. They're minor, non-substantive fixes. And if one of those is pending, my gut doesn't say, you know, oh, you're getting ahead of yourself by granting a variance with that as a, a primary criteria for getting the variance. But if it's a policy change, Tina, you used EHA as an example. If it's a policy change, kind of doesn't matter to me whether it's pending or not. It's not the law yet. And, and I, I do think we're getting ahead of ourselves in that. So my challenge to you um, is, is there any way to make a distinction between minor non-substantive correction sorts of things versus policy changes? Uh, I can ask the questions, but I don't have the answers. Um, and then I think those are the things I want to go over. Uh, this is, uh, as someone said, monumental work. Uh, congratulations on bringing it this far and uh, look forward to seeing it back. We're going to second times around. We've got Fred and Gosha. Hi, thank you. Uh, I had a couple of quickies that came out of the previous discussion. I want to go back to criteria G just to kind of clarify, I think, <clears throat> my understanding of why it would be wise to go back to the original language in light of Jordan's questions. As I read it, uh, for example, if a, if a variance were to result in 30 minutes less sun on part of a neighboring property's garden, that would probably not substantially impair the reasonable use and enjoyment or development of that property, but it would clearly result in an adverse impact to an abutting property and I'm not sure how you would mitigate that aside from maybe purchasing and installing a bunch of grow lights on the side of your building. So it, it seems to me that I think, Tina, you're on the right path of thinking that the original language probably gives the board a little bit more leeway to um, interpret there and exercise some judgment. Whereas that second one, there's gonna be cases where there's no way to mitigate that impact and even though that adverse impact may be very minor, uh, the letter of it would would lead the board to have to say, sorry, can't do it. Um, I had two questions for you. 
uh, about process and, and business process since you raised that. And the question came up about um, essentially getting drawings to a, a stage where they can get a denial before they go to the board of adjustment. And I haven't, it, it's, it's somewhat related to this, but it's, it's a little bit outside and that is with Zipsies. And I've, I've heard this conversation Goshen I had that that may have been changed where you don't have to take it all the way when you're getting a Zipsy to getting a refusal. At one time, that was certainly the process because I had to go through that. And that was a pretty expensive process for small businesses. Is that something that, is that being touched upon at all in this as well and trying to change the practices here? Um, in the code language itself, there are no changes to the process for Zipsies. And the business practice, um, I think there is a lot more leeway to take a, a Zipsy request you know, fairly early on. Um, I mean, if it's, if it's for a new project, like a major project, you know, it'll, it'll be done at an appropriate time somewhere in the concept to formal site development plan review. And you'd work with your coordinator to suggest when it, when is a good time. There's some flexibility built in there. Um, if you're just like adding a patio to an existing restaurant and that triggers a Zipsy review, we, we do take need to have a permit submittal so we can see at least the design and placement of the proposed patio use. Those are our big Zipsy uses. I mean, otherwise it's like major utilities um, that and telecommunications that trigger a lot of Zipsies. Well, so I, what do you think, what was your example in your mind? The very specific one for me is, is those MX2X um, zone districts. And this is something Councilwoman Sandoval and I have talked about uh, long ago, but in those 2X uh, zone districts, any eating and drinking use, any, any eating and drinking use requires a Zipsy. And you know, those small neighborhood embedded uh, retail are really an opportunity in many cases for small businesses to go in as tenants. And so if you've got a potential tenant who's a small business, they've got one coffee shop, they wanna open a second one, but they have to invest, you know, $10,000 in architecture to find out if they can even go in, just doesn't make any sense. It's a chicken and egg thing. I mean, the Zipsy process is intended to uh, suss out site specific potential external impacts. So without knowing some level of site specific characteristics of the use, including how large it is, um, what type of service is being provided, um, it's hard for a board to look at the criteria and be able to make the findings they need to make. So um, I don't think we're in a place yet where, you know, unless we decide that that particular use in some future text amendment shouldn't rise to the level of a Zipsy review at all, because maybe if we looked back, 100% of them or 95% of them get approved with no conditions attached. I mean, that's the type of, um, research we did for the variances that you're seeing before you, where we've pushed more to staff. Um, uh, you know, we're not changing the standard yet, but at least we're looking at the data. So I don't know, I, I'm not in a position to really engage in that discussion of, of okay. future changes, but it's, you know, definitely continue to talk to us about it or bring us some examples. 
so it's, we could understand better. It's certainly something that's been discussed as a text amendment. It's certainly when I sought a waiver as part of a rezoning in District 1 prior to uh, Councilwoman Sandoval's time, that planning board at that time said very directly to staff that this is this should be a text amendment. And we mm -hmm. recommend approval of this waiver because we believe it's you know, a path to a text amendment. But it is, a, it, it is I believe, a, a barrier to exactly the kinds of small business creation that we are hearing from neighborhoods that they want to see mm -hmm. in those embedded neighborhood pieces. So I just, I can leave it at that. Yeah. Um, the, the other business piece that I, I just want to throw in there, uh, as you talk about construction errors and, and taking that out of the hands of, of the Board of Adjustment because of minor uh, modifications, I do wonder if you've considered whether creating more leeway in what needs to be recorded in the SDP in terms of SDP modifications is part of that process. Because right now, even if it doesn't need to go to Board of Adjustment, it still requires an SDP modification, which, you know, and I guess the question becomes the risk of not documenting that three inch um, variation from what was originally approved versus the staff time to handle that SDP modification. Yeah, for SDPs, we don't have the ability to not require that modification. You know, that's a different conversation, a different arena. We have made some inroads on, you know, one and two family residential to accept some modifications in the field if they're still compliant with the zoning, an inspector can sign off uh, without triggering a resubmittal. So we've made some inroads there. Um, but not at the level of a major project in SDP. Just feels like something that might be worth considering in these days, in this day and age, when we all know that staff is is pretty overwhelmed. Um, it just again feels like you gotta, yeah. And you then know, you know these these projects about. live on for a long, long time mm -hmm. beyond any current backlog. So having the right records of where a building sits on the land, you know, matters down the road, perhaps. So you know, at least. We need the as-built condition reflected in the approval plans. And I'll just speak as the legislative branch and someone who's a sponsor of this amendment, Fred, feel free to reach out to me. You know, I'm always willing and anxious to make sure that we're modernizing our code to make sure that we're getting the outcomes that are, are intended and that are intended in the zoning, in the zone district, and that we can get good outcomes in the built environment. So I'm happy to sponsor um, something like that because that's why we're here sponsoring something that hasn't been updated in a hundred years. Let me remind you this language that we're updating. A couple of comments have been like, oh, a couple years. No, 1923 and it's 2023. So <laughs> I'm happy to um, continue to update some things that might have been updated in sooner than 1923. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Gosha. Yes, thank you. Uh, one more thing, uh, going back to the construction tolerances and kind of evolution of the zoning code. So it would be great if our zoning code evolved with our building code. Uh, we adopted uh, the new building code and new energy code. 
which requires significantly more insulation in the roof. And I was just having this conversation in the office today, thinking like, boy, if we had an extra foot in the bulk plane, that would really help because, um, you know, all the heights are very tightly calibrated with the stud length and the, the joist depth. So out for those one and two um, dwelling uh, construction, that, that bulk plane is, 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 is right there. And now with a new energy code, I think, first of all, we're likely to see these mistakes because uh, not everybody may catch that increase in the insulation depth right there. So um, we, we may see those mistakes, but also in anticipation of that, um, it would be great to build some tolerance or allow for you know variances that um, aim at accommodating um, other other requirements such as building code or energy code in this case. Mm. Well, we do have the um, criteria for an adjustment. If you go back and look at that, Alec, I believe as drafted, we've expanded it to, you know, an adjustment is required in zoning to accommodate um, a conflicting and more, you know, a, a conflict, not just more prescriptive, um, uh, municipal, state, or federal law. You should just say federal mm -hmm. law, I think, and we expanded it to include now other city laws, I believe. I'm trying to flip and find it in the uh, red line. So there's an avenue there where you can get to staff and say, hey, I've got a conflict with the new building code. Um, not so much after it's built. It has to be before it's right, built. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was just planning for a one-foot mistake in our drawing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, now at least we'll have a little bit of wriggle room at a staff level. Yeah, and, then, and I understand that's a construction tolerance, not a design tolerance. But I right, think exactly. Maybe, you know, take take it up with the planners if you don't like our 30, 35 foot generous height for one and two family homes. But well, it's that pinch point at the bulk plane where we need to fit the roof with. Oh the yeah, and right there at the eave. Um, you know, it's, it gets expensive when we have to do it. With, there's ways to do it, but you know, traditionally how, how it's done with the blown insulation and that, that heel height gets significantly higher. So anyways, um, it's just, just a comment that, uh, you know, as our codes evolve, um, yeah. that bulk plain and allowable buildable area should also evolve uh, and to accommodate for those heights. Yeah, I take it back uh, the provision that allows staff to adjust when there's um, when it's required to comply with another entity's laws is only state and federal. So if we have conflicting city laws, the more restrictive applies. So we wouldn't be able to give you an adjustment, you know, just solely on the basis that now you have to provide more insulation. Therefore, I'd like to, you know, protrude through your bulk claim by a foot that there'd be no basis for that right now in the way this is drafted unless there's something else going on. And, and this is where the game playing, right? We want to watch out for that too. It's like, oh, well, I'll just build it anyway and then come back and ask for construction. And we do have a good faith requirement of showing a good faith. So hopefully we'd suss out anyone who's really playing games. And we did have that come up during uh, the okay. research phase. 
Oh, am I muted? No. Go ahead, Alec. Oh, we did have that come up quite a lot during the research phase. And we did think about, well, can we say if there's a, a building issue that, that that can supersede, but then it became, is there a way to write this where we don't just say, throw zoning out the window every time? And there, there wasn't, but we can keep thinking about it. And we're happy yeah. to hear about we want yeah, to and I think in this specific case, there is merit because as the building code evolves, um, the zoning code could evolve with it and maybe start the evolution by allowing um, the variances and then ultimately be become a standard. Um, just yeah. putting it on the table. And yeah. believe me, we do look at the opportunities for substantive code changes because of some of the variance cases we see. It does. It does. It is a feeding lane for future text amendments when we see something really come out through a variance or adjustment case that just points to the standards being out of whack. Thank you. Great. Yeah, I, I love that that uh, the feedback process. Um, uh, my last question um, is kind of on the game playing situation. I, I don't want to be accusatory, but I, I'd like to understand. I'm starting to think ahead now about if this, you know, as you present this to the public, as you go to a well-known, you know, community meetings about zoning and planning topics, um, how this is presented uh, to tell the story rather than just jumping in with all the details. And when I imagine that, it, it made me think of, can you talk about the limits in the public review draft um, if someone were to try to push the limits as to what kind of administrative adjustments you could get, what kind of variances you can get by using the affordable, the new affordable housing criteria. How, how much and in what degree could you go beyond what zoning allows um, if you're providing affordable housing? Can you talk about that some? Why don't you go ahead and put that? I mean, well, let's look at the Welton case. Um, and if I get it wrong, please correct we, me. We, we, we know somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so again, it's not a gimme just because it was an affordable housing project. There are a lot of multiple things going on. Um, but just on the zoning side, um, that if we had had this criteria in place, what they wanted to do at Welton, there was a push pull with landmark versus zoning standards, but Let's leave Landmark out of it. If they just come forward with the design and it wasn't because Landmark pushed us to do this. They just came and said, look, we'd like, there's an upper story setback requirement on this one side of the building that is across an alley from a residential zone district. So we've got an interplay of restrictive height and upper story setback because of our proximity to a protected district. It was some lower order residential district. Um, it's causing us to lose, you know, half a half a hallway of, of units um, if we have to fully comply with this. So there was actually a net loss of income restricted units and income restricted units is a term of art that is defined. These are long-term units that are preserved for, a, I forget what the term is, a minimum term of, anyone know? 60 years, 50 years, something like that. Um, and so, and that they are affordable to a particular level of household income. 
So that's number one. It's not just, I don't want to follow the upper story setback because I, I think my design is prettier or better or, or you know, I can get more square footage if I don't follow that upper story setback. It's like, nope, nope. We're talking now about the difference of a net loss of affordable units, which is a big policy point for the city. Um, two is um, we want to make sure in terms of game playing, game playing that there's no end run around where we have already offered you a way to get more height or less parking through an avenue in the code. You can't use this criteria to make it easier to get the, the additional height or the reduced parking than what is already stated in the code. Um, so there's no game playing there. Three is okay, you know, we don't want to give just to give. There are good reasons why we have this standard in the code. We'll assume best intentions there that it provides a public good. Can you still achieve or, you know, not totally negate the intent of what that standard was all about? What was that upper story setback all about? Well, it was intended to push, push the mass and height away from the lesser intense residential district. Well, in this case, those, that, rear setback or I forget it was side interior. It was a side interior upper story setback, I believe. It was a rear. rear it was a rear. Down. Okay. Whatever it was, typically in a lot of scenarios where we expected this that standard to play out, there would be no intervening alley. 12 foot, 16 foot, whatever. And so the upper story setback really makes sense when you're bumping right up zone lot line to zone lot line between uh, you know, an R zone and a mixed use. Here we had an alley. So the intent of pushing height and mass away from the protected district was met already in total when you added the alley width to what they were proposing to still step back. They, it wasn't a complete waiver of the standard. So check three. Four, any adverse impacts uh, will be substantially mitigated. Now here, that really does mean a more restrictive viewpoint on adverse impacts and mitigation before you get. Um, so uh, will there be 30 minutes less of sunshine? Um, maybe um, we might want to think about number four, but you know, right now it says if, if adverse impacts are identified, um, they should be substantially mitigated. It's it's pretty tight. Now I'm looking at that, getting a little concerned. <laughs> I don't know if you would have met that, Gosha, in your case. Well, we had a three-story uh, multifamily building across the alley. So the, the use was inconsistent with the zoning there. So I, I know that's not a criteria. Well, but... there, are, there are some other lower intensity uh, buildings abutting the rear zone that line that weren't three-story. They're whatever Two, they were. Yeah. Correct. So um, to think about that one. And they then did uh, shade, shade, shade study and that they did do a shade study and it was pretty minimal, negligible, really. So, yeah, I mean, while we didn't have the standard, the applicant did go to um, significant um, efforts to try to reduce any adverse impacts or to at least show that they were minimal. Um, so we might want to add the word substantial or something to number four, Alec. So there's a little bit of wriggle room for the board to consider, you know, whether that adverse impact is really significant or substantial, whatever adverb we, adjective we might want to use. So, you know, it's pretty, it's, it's going to 
you know, require a, a significant show of, of evidence to meet these criteria. Um, thankfully, in that case, the zoning administrator and other agencies didn't have any concerns. In fact, we had Landmark testifying that they, they liked this sort of meeting in the middle of being able to comply mostly with landmark and mostly with zoning, neither code got 100% compliance, but it was a great compromise between competing codes and what, what the cultural district really intended to be the outcome on Welton. Thank you. I, I certainly appreciate baking our values into, uh, into the criteria this way. Um, I'll explore on my own a little bit of if you would like um, to do our comms for this or my talking points, Joel, <laughs> feel free to shoot those over to me before the city council hearing. That'd be great. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm really wanting to explore um, by looking at this draft how much you can change, uh, it, it, not, not referring to one specific case, but just in general, yeah. what might one pursue a variance or administrative adjustment for in order to provide more affordable housing and what is the maximum extent that could be as, as an exercise? Um, so, so thank you. Um, well, thank you for bringing this as a, as an in-depth info item. Look forward to having you back and uh, planning board members are always available to be sounding boards. Um, if you have uh, drafts, uh, do you want to circulate? Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank for, you. For those thank who you. are uh, watching. We have a, a great number of people on Zoom. I think probably a lot of people for the West Area Plan more than more than signed up uh, to speak, but everybody who's come and wants to speak will be heard. Let me give an overview of our remaining agenda. The next two items are our consent agenda, so we'll see, uh, we'll handle those items. Then we have a rezoning, item seven on the agenda. Then we're going to take a 10-minute break because we'll have probably gone uh, a couple hours by that point. We'll take a 10-minute break, come back, and then have the public hearing for the West Area Plan. So uh, that's the order of things for setting expectations. And we will now consider the consent agenda. Items five and six are on the consent agenda. Comprehensive sign plan CSA 2022-000-0009-amend. Multiple addresses, including parcels at 158 North Fillmore Street and 2929 East 1st Street uh, is on the consent agenda. And number six, official map amendment application 2022I-00212, rezoning of 2208 South William Street from USUC to USUB1. We propose items for the consent agenda when they appear to clearly meet the criteria. There's no known significant controversy. Nobody from the public has come to testify to those items, uh, leaving aside any the applicants themselves. And... Um, and no planning board member wishes to remove the item from the consent agenda. We did not have anyone sign up in advance for either of these two items. Has anyone from the public come to speak and give testimony on the comprehensive sign plan on Fillmore Street or the rezoning on Williams Street? I don't see any. Is there any planning board member that would like to remove, the, remove either of these from the consent agenda? I'll entertain a motion to approve the consent agenda. I move to approve the consent agenda. Second. It's been moved by Gosha and seconded by Mary Beth. Uh, as each of us had the opportunity to remove either of these items from the consent agenda, uh, I would ask you all to vote uh, in favor of approving this motion. Angel. Aye. Caitlin. Aye. Fred. Aye. 
Gosha. Hi, sorry, my mute uh, button is missing. Uh, Heidi. Hi. Jordan. Hi. Mary Beth. Hi. Melissa. Hi. Rachel. Hi. And I vote aye as well. The consent agenda has been approved. We're on to item seven on the agenda. This is official map amendment application 2022I-00167, rezoning of 759th Avenue from PUD 499 to GMU3. This is an official public hearing of the Denver Planning Board and the public hearing is open. Um, before I turn it over for the staff report, I will note that an earlier version of this agenda had this on the consent agenda. Uh, but as we did receive multiple uh, messages about this from the public, we will give it a full review. I'll uh, turn it over to Tony Lechuga and ask if we could get an abbreviated staff report. Yeah, thanks, Joel. Let me just share my screen here. All right. Um, all right. Can you, can someone confirm you can see that? Looks perfect. Okay, great. So uh, as Joel said, my name is Tony Lechuga with Community Planning and Development, and I'll be presenting this property owner proposed change to the zoning classification at 750 East 9th Avenue. Um, so this is an aerial image of the site and the surrounding blocks. Um, and to ground us, I'll note that the subject property is in Council District 10. It's in the Capitol Hill neighborhood, uh, and it's an approximately 6,250 square foot site um, at the southwest corner of East 9th Avenue and Clarkson Street. And the applicant is requesting to rezone their property from PUD 499 to GMU3, which is a general urban multi-unit district up to three stories. <clears throat> uh, this map shows the existing zoning, which is the former Chapter 59 PUD. Um, which allows for the existing two-story structure and up to 35 feet in height to be used uh, specifically as a clinic for holistic naturopathic practitioners, uh, specifically designed PUD for this building um, and these limited uses. Uh, this map shows the existing land uses of the surrounding blocks. Um, you'll notice that the subject site um, is an office building, as are a few other properties in the area, uh, but most of the area is a mix of multi-unit and single-unit residential properties. Um, this slide shows the existing context of the surrounding area, with the subject property shown in the top right photo. Um, the other photos show the form and scale of other surrounding buildings, um, including the photo on the bottom left, which I'll note is a landmark structure. Um, in terms of process, uh, a postcard notifying neighboring property owners within 200 feet of the site was sent out on November 29th of last year. Um, to date, staff has received one public comment in support of the rezoning uh, from an RNO, uh, noting the need for additional housing citywide um, that this would help provide. Um, but staff has also received eight letters of opposition, um, all from either practitioners or patients who utilize the existing building, noting the importance of the space uh, for this particular type of use. Um, so I'll remind everyone uh, watching that the Denver Zoning Code has five review criteria that we are mandated to analyze to determine if a rezoning is appropriate. And I'll go through all five of those now. Um, so the first criteria is consistency with adopted plans. And there are three plans applicable to this rezoning, including two citywide plans and the East Central Area Plan, which was adopted in 2020. Um, 
going through each of those plans now, we'll, we can see that the proposed zoning meets some of the goals of the comprehensive plan, which is a citywide plan, uh, including creating a greater mix of housing options in every neighborhood um, and ensuring that neighborhoods offer a mix of housing types and services for a uh, diverse population. <clears throat> Turning now to Blueprint Denver, uh, future neighborhood context is general urban, which is described as predominantly multi-unit with one and two unit mixed in, mixed use and mixed use embedded. Um, and the future place type is high residential, which again is described as predominantly multi-unit residential with compatible uses interspersed. Um, I also wanna note that Blueprint includes specific policy recommendations. Um, I've highlighted two here, um, which point towards making an effort to rezone properties from former chapter 59 PUD into the Denver Zoning Code and to limit PUDs to those unique and extraordinary circumstances where they are most needed. Um, turning now to the small area plan, uh, the East Central Area Plan, we can see that in many ways it mirrors Blueprint Denver calling this location general urban as well as high residential. Um, I'll note that the small area plan also includes more specific guidance on building heights for this property, and that guidance says that this property could be up to five stories, um, whereas the applicant is requesting a three-story zone district, so well within that height. Um, so staff finds that the proposed zoning aligns with all of the guidance set forth in these three city plans. Staff uh, also finds that the requested zoning meets the next two criteria. Uh, the rezoning will result in uniformity of district regulations, and it will further public health, safety, and welfare uh, by implementing plan guidance and allowing for a broader range of uses on the site. Uh, staff finds there's a justifying circumstance for this map amendment with the property retaining its former chapter 59 zoning and then seeking a standard zone district within the Denver zoning code, um, as well as it implementing our adopted plan guidance from multiple plans. Uh, and then lastly, the proposed zoning is consistent with the neighborhood context, multi-use districts, and with the GMU3 zone district intent statements, which are here. Um, so based on the five review criteria, Staff finds that uh, staff recommends that the planning board recommend approval of this map amendment. And uh, I'm happy to answer any questions now. Um, I believe the applicant is also online if you have any questions for them. Thank you. Is there an applicant presentation? Uh, no, they do not have a presentation. Sorry, Joel. Okay. Is um, I see a hot hand up from Max Odom, who is one of the applicants. Hello, Mr. Odom. Um, do you have a presentation or are you just letting us know you're here for questions? I'm just here for questions. Thank you very much. We have two people signed up to, uh, we have three people signed up in advance to speak. If there are others who've come to for this topic, please use the raise hand feature in Zoom. Um, we have Sandra Easter, Linda Rice, and Linda Baird. Um, if you didn't hear your name called and intend to speak to this topic, raise your hand and we will get to you after those three speakers. I'll call each of you up and we'll allow you to unmute yourselves. Uh, you will have three minutes each if you would start with your name and address for the record. Um, just uh, as a little context, uh, planning board is gonna be reviewing this on the basis of the criteria that Mr. Lechuga just uh, reviewed. So it is always, uh, we will hear whatever you have to say, uh, but of course it's always most helpful if your comments uh, can speak to the criteria we'll be evaluating. Uh, first, Sandra Easter. Hi. Um, oh, sorry, you can't see me. Um, yeah, I'm a psychotherapist uh, who's been renting in that building for a couple of years. 
And um, I really want to thank the person who originally conceived of this as a uh, healing arts center. Uh, it is the best um, office structure building uh, community of healers and practitioners that I have ever been in. And I've been practicing for 35 years. Um, and I understand, I, I don't understand the zoning parts and the consistency with adopted plans, um, but I, I will speak to um, why this mattered so much to me when I saw the rezoning uh, sign. Because I think there's even more of a need for this space now than ever. Mental health is being recognized as an essential and much needed service. More and more clients are seeking therapy and I want to address a few things that I read in the application that psychotherapy as a result of COVID is largely virtual. And that's just not true. All of the psychotherapists I know and their clients and mine prefer in-person to virtual. Um, virtual is now an option, but the preference is in-person, um, especially when we're working with uh, significant mental health issues. Um, yes, there's an okay. I found this on the web for significant oh, mental health issues. I'm sorry. Check it out. <laughs> Siri did not raise her hand. <laughs> um, um, it, yes, there's a need for residential, but when I googled residential space that was available in the area, there was an abundance um, apartments and uh, single family housing. I found only one possible office space within a three mile radius. Um, of that neighborhood that would work for healing practitioners. I actually contacted them and it's no longer available. So this area is um, accessible from a lot of different parts of Denver. And many of my clients are in District 10 um, and love that they can walk, um, which kind of addresses the parking issues that were named. Um, and the building is currently, I know that during COVID, it affected so many people um, and the way that that the landlord, the owner of this property was affected was that psychotherapists couldn't see uh, patients in person. So we had to go to virtual and it affected all of us because some of those patients ended up leaving because virtual didn't work for them. The building is almost completely full right now. Uh, there are only two offices that aren't, and there's a for rent sign up based on my experience of looking in the neighborhood for offices. I'm pretty sure it's going to be full. Um, so again, just not addressing the zoning stuff, but addressing what was written in the application. Um, many of my clients wrote emails to the board. Um, hope you've had a chance to read them. And this is a perfect location in so many ways for this kind of office space and for the services that are provided. Um, it's unique in its design. And the fact that there are all of the people who rent are devoted to well-being creates a space that is especially supportive of healing. So please, I ask the board and thank you for your service to the city. Um, although I didn't understand a lot of what you're talking about before, it was fascinating and I heard the care that was in it. So please consider the loss that this would represent to the local community as well to the greater Denver area. Thanks for giving me this time to speak. Thank you very much. 
Um, I do see that there are several people on who have joined by phone. Um, so if you intend to raise your hand for this topic or any other topic, the way to do that by phone is star nine. Next, we'll hear from Linda Rice. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, but you can't see me. Uh, no, we don't do video for participants, but uh, please. Okay, okay, fine. I'm going to read mine because um, I think it would be better if I could just. Um, the name of our building, the Capitol Hill Healing Center, is exactly what it implies. The building was constructed in 2002 because of one man's vision, Carlton Terry, to have a healing space where practitioners could offer people in our community services for healing their mind, body, and spirit. We have over 23 offices in this sacred space. Some of the practitioners are mental health therapists, some are massage therapists. We have an actual acupuncture studio, a chiropractor, and several naturopathic practitioners. We are not merely holistic practitioners in the regard that we mostly all are licensed. All of these licensed professionals offer their services to the local people who can walk to the public, walk or take public transportation. This building is vital to the public health and well-being. The need for these services versus another apartment building can hardly be considered a superior choice for 750 East 9th Avenue. Would you tear down the King Supers at 9th and Corona to build more living space? I hardly think so. Nearly 94,000 residents have reported experiencing poor mental health in 2019, enough to fill Coors Field two times over, as reported by Mayor Hancock's Road to Wellness, a strategic framework to improve behavioral health in Denver. Tearing this wonderful healing center down would be a tragic loss for the clients who come here for help and for the practitioners who make their living in these lovely healing spaces. There is no building of this kind in Denver. All the practitioners are devoted to the health and well-being of their clients. I myself am a licensed clinical social worker. I practice behavioral health and mental health. I see a wide variety of people needing my services. I am a military one source provider seeing the men and women who are in active duty as well as the veterans. I'm an employee's assistance program provider where employees of major and small companies can utilize their EAP benefits for urgent personal problems. I am a provider with many insurance companies as well as a Medicare provider. I've worked in this center for over 14 years. The number of people who walk through these doors are abundant. Our waiting rooms are full. There are no vacancies, so I thought. I haven't seen any. All the offices are rented. We all have leases that the owner has threatened to break, which begins the legality, which brings the legality of this rezoning project into question. The clients will I'm suffer. Sorry, time has expired. Okay. Um, but I think we did get the essence of, of what you were trying to tell us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next, we have Linda Baird. 
And is Linda online? Uh, Linda Baird, if you are here, you might not be under your name if you had this forwarded. So please use the raise hand feature so we can find you. And I don't see anyone else who's raised their hand uh, other than the uh, applicant. And we'll get back to you in a moment. Okay, we're not seeing Linda Baird. Uh, Max Odom, you did have your hand up, but you didn't take your time for a, a presentation. If you wanted to say anything now, it'd be perfectly fine. After that, we'll go to questions from the board. Yeah, I just have a, a few things to note. Um, you know, we own office buildings in Capitol Hill. Um, we have a lot of therapists in our building. Um, you know, the office market has changed dramatically. Um, there's a lot of vacancy out there. I can't speak to specifically a healing arts center, um, but I do know there's, there's a lot of office buildings out there and a lot of vacant office space that needs to be reused. And the city has a, a housing crisis, uh, affordable housing crisis as well. Um, and I think a lot of the office space in the city would be useful as apartments to fill that void. Um, you know, we're not, I wanna make it clear, we're not proposing to tear this building down. We're not proposing to put a third story on it. We wanna keep the office building exactly how it is. Uh, architecturally, I think it's beautiful and it would be a disservice to tear it down. Um, we'd simply be redoing the inside. Uh, you know, apartments are a less intensive use than office. Office takes up more parking um, than apartments. This building shares a parking lot with the church down the street through an easement. Um, that would no longer be needed. There would be more than adequate parking uh, for the apartments at this building. And thirdly, we would honor all the leases. Um, I'm not the owner, we're just the applicant with the building under agreement. We have to take it subject to all the leases and we wouldn't be breaking any leases. That would be inviting lawsuits and that's not something that we do. Uh, we like to work with small businesses and therapists and believe it's a very valuable uh, service for the community. Uh, with that, I'll open it up to any questions the board may have for me. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, we'll now turn to questions from the board to uh, staff or any of any of the folks who spoke. And uh, just for those watching, uh, the board's questions will try to get at the criteria that we're, we're tasked with evaluating. We'll start with Fred. Uh, thank you and thanks everybody for the presentation. Uh, I just, a couple of quick questions, uh, one, so why did, why did the applicant, given the existing use, why did the applicant not apply for an MX zone district? I'm, I'm just curious if staff or the applicant want to answer that. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to speak to our interpretation of, of the plan guidance as to appropriate zone districts. Um, I think given the existing use in MX district is, is perfectly fine. Our, our plan guidance calls for this to be high residential. So I think when we were looking at appropriate zone districts, MU, which is what the applicant requested, um, seemed like a perfectly appropriate zone district for um, the, the the plan guidance of, of this as a residential district. And would the would would a change to an MU uh, create any non-conformity of use or or anything like that that we should be conscious or concerned about? Um, no, nothing came up in our analysis, um, that would create, a, a, an unusual issues with conformity. 
So they would be able to continue this existing use even after a, a, a zone, uh, even after a, a rezoning, is that correct? Yeah, the, the building next door, which is also an office use, is in a GMU district. Um, the office uses to the south of there are also in GMU districts. Um, so everything around here is uh, sort of a multi-unit district. Um, uh, and those contain office, actually, I'm sorry, the office to the south is actually in a PUD, but the office to the west um, is within a multi-unit district as well. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Caitlin. Sorry, trying to get to my button. Um, Fred, you asked exactly the question I was going to ask um, on why not GMX3. Um, and, and Tony, thank you for that answer. I was thinking it was probably that high residential component. Um, I, I do agree with Fred. I, I would imagine that those other office uses in the GMU3 and this, if converted, um, if sorry, if rezoned to GMU3 and those office leases continue, I think that's, and Tina's off, off, off now, but I would expect that those must be non-conforming or compliant uses and that, that they are allowed to continue for so long as that use continues. But if they were to convert, they couldn't go back. I, I mean, I can't imagine how else those uses in a GMU are, are otherwise continuing. And I, I yeah. from planning, but yeah. Yeah, so the, the existing office uses could continue um, given their existing status there, but office is prohibited in multi-unit districts. They are strictly residential districts. And so like a new structure there would not allow for those. The existing ones can continue as long as they want, but new ones would not be allowed, yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, and then I, I thought it was just notable um, on the justifying circumstances, but also just the discussion of PUD 499. Um, I mean, I think it's so fascinating when we have these kind of historical PUDs that are so specific, um, but clearly done with a very particular use and vision in mind. I also just note the, um, and I appreciated the applicant's comments on the architecture of the building, not a criteria, but um, that this PUD in fact calls out that its design is to respect the adjacent historic property of the Kissler Rodriguez house and, and was, I just think, really notable. Um, uh, on the justifying circumstance, I mean, under the code conversion from a PUD out into our our um, chapter, our current zoning code um, is a justifying circumstance. So I think checks that box. I think I struggled more and, and didn't necessarily agree with the, you know, the decreased need or the redevelopment as much. Um, but I think the justifying circumstances is met just because of the PUD um, rezoning. Um, and I, I wanted to just note for those that just spoke, um, you know, really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your thoughts. And, you know, it, it's hard to hear about a, um, and, and I appreciate the, the applicant sharing that they don't plan on redeveloping the property, um, but would maybe just convert this, um, you know, but it's hard to hear about displaced um, office or wellness facilities, especially with the importance of mental health. I think, um, the barrier for us as as board members, um, just so you know, is we really are tied to those um, criteria that Tony walked through, um, and so need to make our review through that lens. Um, but know that um, uh, you know we certainly appreciate all of the work and and hope that there is a a good path with the owner and and all of these uh, tenants going forward. Thanks. Thank you. We'll continue with questions and Joe. 
Thanks, Joel, and thank you all for your presentations. Um, Tony, I think my questions are for you. Um, am I to understand the, the building right now is 100% commercial, right? Offices. There's no residential currently. That's right, yeah. Okay, so this M MU zoning will make it both mixed use residential with some uh, offices. No, the, the MU makes it um, um, multi-unit. Multi-unit, so there yeah. will be no more uh, commercial. Okay, and so another question. Um, so I just want to clarify, they, they could keep the existing commercial uses if they wanted to. The, okay. the zoning does not require that they immediately kick out all of the existing commercial uses. They could maintain that as long as they want. It's the, no new commercial uses can be added to it through like a, a, a different structure if they were to tear it down and rebuild it. Okay. Um, and I heard the, the applicants say they did not intend to redevelop, tear it down, nor did they intend to break leases. Um, but I'm wondering, is this rezoning spurred by an acquisition? Um, if I'm allowed to ask that. Um, the, the, the intent to change the building is spurred by uh, the applicant wanting to acquire. We didn't hear a, a, a pr presentation, but that's what I'm inferring. I think that's a good question for the, the applicant rep to answer. Mr. Odom? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, we have it under agreement um, to purchase. The current owner, I don't know any details about them. I haven't spoke with them. It's all through brokers. Um, I would like to maybe ask a question. Um, we have no issues with an MX zoning. We applied for the MU zoning because every surrounding property is zoned MU. Um, ideally, you know, we operate office and residential buildings and retail buildings. Um, you know, MX use would be much better. We ideally, if the building is full and we purchased it, we'd like to keep all the tenants there. But I think this rezoning would just allow the flexibility as you know, markets change, COVID dramatically changed the market, um, the office market and the apartment market uh, and the single family market for that matter. Um, so if there is an option to go with the MX zoning and it's supported, we would be more than happy to go that route. That way, that option always remains um, and you can convert it from residential to office over the next hundred years or whatever it is um, as the markets change. Um, I hope that answers your questions. Yeah, I think it, it's a, it's put put some new information on the table, which means that I don't know what we do with, with this um, uh, proposed uh, application today. But um, yeah, I, I appreciated hearing and reading the letters from the um, existing tenants and just it gave me questions about process. Like, um, do you have to rezone if it's a PUD it's serving the existing um, requirements and uses do, because somebody um, applies for rezoning do does the city have to do that um, if the building is is being used um, as as intended and Tony, maybe I got to put you on the spot but yeah that's do you know can, can anybody address that? Maybe Adam, I see your picture. Yeah. 
Hi, Adam Hernandez, Assistant City Attorney. Um, very, very basically, all property owners have a right to apply for a rezoning. They have no right to a specific rezoning, but they do have a right to, to apply for that. Okay, and is Max, are you the current owner of this property? You can hear, if, if you can hear me, uh, no, we are not the current owner. We have it under agreement to purchase. Okay. All right, this, this is clear as mud to me, but that it does answer some questions. Thanks. Okay. Uh, Gosh, I see your hand. Let me just jump in with a process question for Adam Hernandez from the city attorney's office. Um, there was a little back and forth on uh, if the applicant might want to apply for a different zoning. Now that's entirely up to them, um, but could you describe their possible process options? I can imagine um, we can continue and evaluate what's in front of us. They could ask us to continue this hearing while they consider their options to whether to withdraw or re reapply. Um, what other options might there be? I would say at this point, you, you need to process the application that's in front of you for the, for the MU district. The, the applicant after this hearing is always able to withdraw their application, but I think that'd be the prudent choice. So then staff could evaluate an application for any different zone district to, to adequately uh, give their recommendation. Okay, thank you, uh, Mr. Odom. I think you, you heard that. So we'll continue with this, um, but uh, the options that were discussed is something you could explore with staff. And I would encourage you to explore with staff um, because it has different implications for plan conformance as well as um, continued use of a building that was built for non-residential purposes. And next, Gosha. Yes, thank you. I have a question for staff also. So one of the criteria we don't usually discuss is further public health. It's typically pretty obvious as long as the application meets um, the adopted plans, it's also typically furthers public health and safety and welfare. Um, what I would like to understand a little more uh, is how do uses, whether existing uses or proposed uses um, relate to this criteria? I mean, typically we just review zoning and entitlement and uses kind of fall within the zoning. I think in this case, um, the use is more specific. And I think that's kind of what I'm trying to wrap my head around how does this criteria of furthering public health um, apply to this specific use in this building? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's public health, safety, and general or, or general welfare, and so you know, our our thinking was that right now there is a very limited and defined set of uses that this building can operate under. Uh, by rezoning to GMU3, they can continue to operate under those existing limited uses. They can also then um, adapt this building to residential uses, which helps meet, you know, many of the housing concerns that we have as a city um, and our efforts to create new housing types uh, in areas uh, where there are services uh, available for people. And so, um, you know, this particular zoning doesn't in itself uh, preclude the existing commercial uses to continue, but it does like broaden the allowable uses upon the site, which we saw as being part of like the general welfare of the neighborhood. 
but at the same time also kind of removes the protection of the existing use. Um, I mean, it doesn't mandate that they continue that use, um, but it doesn't make it doesn't force them to remove that use. Sure. Yeah, but by existing PUD, in a way that use is protected by the existing zoning because that's the only use allowed um, under the current zoning. Is um, that correct statement? The uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, protected. Uh, I guess is one way to phrase it. Yes, it it is the only allowed use under the PUD. So in that case, it is enshrined in the PUD. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Any other questions, Fred? Yeah, thanks. I, I'm sorry to go back and revisit this because we're we're kind of talking through this, but. I just want to be clear, and this is maybe a good one for Adam. So as, as, as I read it, I think, and please correct me, Adam, if this property were to be rezoned into a GMU district, the current uses would become non-conforming. Is that correct? Correct. So, so the definition of a non-conforming use is a use that was lawfully um, allowed, permitted, but due to the the adoption of a code or a change of a code, in this case, change of a zone district, um, that use is no longer permitted. Now, again, a nonconforming use is not an illegal use. Nonconforming use is perfectly legal and and, um, and valid, but, but um, just, just not a permitted use under that zone right. district anymore. And I get that. And I want to ask a follow-up question now, Adam, because I can't find this in the, I can't find where this is in the code, but my recollection is, is that somewhere in the code, there is something about re, map amendments should not create new non-conformities. Am I am I remembering incorrectly, or is there something about that? Because in this case, the map amendment would create the nonconformity, and I'm wondering if if that conflicts with a piece of the code that I remember but I can't find. I do not recall seeing that as a part of the code because, frankly, it, it would happen all the time through a rezoning. But, um, I, I can definitely tonight? look while I'm <laughs> sitting here, and but but I do not recall that. And again, it it doesn't seem like it would be um, accurate because rezonings have the potential to to create nonconformities. Yeah, I don't recall that as a criteria, Fred. But um, there may be some guidance somewhere. Um, oh, Andrew just pinged me. You you may be thinking about zone lot amendments rather than uh, map amendments. Okay. Okay. So that's where it sits. Okay. I, I knew I remembered something, but it was, I, I was just not quite sure what. Okay. Thank you. So there's no issue then with our, with, with this map amendment being going forward, even though it creates a non-conforming use. Correct. Great. Thank you. Thank you. I see no other hands up for questions. So I will close the public hearing and ask for deliberations.
Fred. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that this does meet the criteria and I'll vote in favor of it. I think that there is an opportunity for the owner, should they choose to, to uh, work with staff to really look at that, that MX. I mean, the zone, the current zone district, that PUD is so incredibly restrictive. Uh, I'm not an expert in the language that's in there, but it certainly almost sounds as though there might be a question about whether some of the practitioners who are there meet the language of the current PUD. I mean, it's just, it, it's one of those old PUDs that is so precise, you know, it just seems almost unworkable. Um, and while I sympathize with the, the tenants who are concerned about being displaced, um, we have no insight, nor would I, nor to my knowledge do they, into the economics of operating that building. And, and it may appear full. It may be that those rents don't really cover it. I, I have no idea. Um, you know, it sounds like they might think there's a business opportunity here and maybe they all want to get together and see if they can buy the building. But the application as presented does meet the criteria. Uh, I don't think that there's any leeway not to vote for it in my mind, uh, vote to, to recommend its approval. Uh, so I will be doing that, but it does sound like there might be an interesting opportunity for the owner and the tenants to have a conversation or the potential owners to have a conversation. Thanks. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks. Uh, I'm going to echo what Fred said. Uh, it, to me, this there's there's pretty much no ambiguity in this. It meets the criteria pretty directly, and and as a result, I will be voting for it. But I also agree with Fred and others that mentioned this that you know something like the MX zone district would would make a lot more sense to me, uh, just as a blanket statement. And some of that comes up a lot. It, it's unfortunate that we have such you know. <laughs> A view on on the fact that residential neighborhoods have to be nothing but residential uses, and you know that's not the way we used to do things. It's not the way we should have to do things now. Is the way zoning has just sort of forced us to do things for the past you know hundred-ish years, and I find that very unfortunate. And and in particular to, to reflect the the, spe the speakers who came to testify today in front of us, my wife's a psychologist. I agree completely. Mental health is is something that. Uh, is is greatly lacking in in our discourse as a country, uh, in our discourse as a state, as a city, and it's something that's uh, greatly needed. And it's unfortunate that there is the very high likelihood that this will uh, displace that use, if not, you know, uh, destroyed in other ways. And while I find that all very unfortunate, and I wish there was something we could do about it, either as planning board or just you know personally, uh, in this case, there there simply is not. So. Uh, I, I apologetic in a way to, to those uh, who really find this use uh, and in this place beloved and 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 are saddened to see it go and that that is unfortunate. However, uh, we're we're sort of bound to it in this case. So thanks. Thank you, Yosha. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, thank you to all of you who, who came to talk to us today. I think your um, testimonials were very compelling and definitely um, kind of prompted a lot of thinking. I do uh, hesitate about the criteria regarding public health. Um, I don't know that we have tools to evaluate 
or value like what is what's better what what has what partners public health more existing PUD and existing services or proposed zoning and that's not our role to to kind of um weigh uh, those different um uses or different values in this case I, we do have pretty strict criteria by which we are to evaluate this proposal um I would love to hear thoughts from my colleagues. I, I mean, I already had heard uh, Fred and, and um, uh, Jordan, but I, I, I do pause a little bit. Uh, if we're, if we're father, fathering public health through these rezonings, um, does this uh, application um, uh, advance that uh, vision or, or not? I guess that's, that's that's kind of a question I would like to hear thoughts on. Thank you. Thank you. And Joe. Um, thank you, uh, Joe Gosha. My, my answer to you is no. Um, to your last question, I don't think so. Um, uh, I will be voting no on this request. Um, I, I feel like it uh, complies with existing uses, uh, the PUD uses. Um, and I don't feel that uh, it meets the criteria of the health and welfare of either the community or uh, the broader community or the community of tenants. Um, you know, can I um, rezone something I don't yet own for my interest over the existing interest? Uh, where do we meet? you know, equity and uh, um, justice. That's my sense. Um, I'm, I'm open to hearing more. I hear you guys about we must comply with the existing criteria, but um, to, to what detriment, to what end um, for those that um, are, are being uh, potentially displaced? Uh, I, I don't know. This one doesn't sit well with me. Thank you. Rachel. I appreciated hearing everyone's thoughts and uh, echo the gratitude to hear both from staff and um, the testimony on this rezoning. I, uh, to respond to some of the, some of what was just said, I significantly struggle with taking something, um, particularly in this part um, of our city that's very mixed use there on that, um, just that very block. There are there's multifamily, there's single family, and there's office. And to rezone to something that's only residential. In um, I agree that you know there's the testimony that was given that um, there are a number of people that walk to see their therapist there. I I 100% believe that to be true. And I think you know. I wish, while I understand the rationale for why, I guess a little bit, um, I do wish this were a mixed use zone district. Um, I think that's a better fit for this location. Um, I don't struggle, you know, uh, Angel, on the, the fact that the applicant is not yet an owner. That isn't a struggle for me. I think we see very often um, potential owners or folks that are under contract bringing forward rezoning because that impacts the value of a piece of property. And so 
um, sales are very often contingent upon um, the rezoning of a piece of land. So I don't struggle with that piece. Um, I do struggle, I would feel a lot better with the public health and welfare, as well as consistency with adopted plans if this were an MX uh, zone district as opposed that would allow the existing uses and you know, should the building turn over again, I, I get that the existing tenants can stay, but there's not really a long-term viability of, of that type of use being able to stay there. Um, if there were an MX, if this were MX zone district, it would. Um, so I, uh, um, I don't know where I'm at yet. Eager to hear other people's thoughts. Thank you. Uh, Jordan, you already went, so I'll, I'll take a turn first, and then uh, Mary Beth is in queue. Um, so the question in my mind with the rezoning is to always remember what our rezoning is. Um, planning is a, a different process than zoning. At planning time, we decide what uses should be where in the city and work with the community on that. And this was recently uh, in the East Central Area Plan as referenced in the staff report. Um, and then at rezoning time, we're fundamentally asking, is the zoning that's been applied for uh, consistent with those adopted plans? Um, so I, I hesitate to uh, say, I, I, I wish we could apply a different zoning here that isn't consistent with adopted plans. Um, however, I do think in an alternate path, and, or if this were to be withdrawn and come back, the fact that this building um, is itself constructed for commercial purposes, not for residential purposes. You know, I can imagine uh, that finding a, a good audience with planning board, despite the fact that the adopted plan says residential. Here we have a building that was not built for residential purposes. Um, so I, I can see that path. But what's in front of us now is somebody applying for residential zoning where we have a recently adopted plan calling for residential uses. So that seems uh, very straightforward. The struggle I'm hearing is uh, a struggle with when a landlord, when a property owner decides to change the use of a building, what happens to the previous tenants? And you know, uh, with leases and, and so, forth, so forth to play out, those tenants will change. Um, it may, may be quick, it may be slow based on those leases and whatever is arranged, but I don't think it's part of our criteria for rezoning, nor, nor do I think it should be to say, um, I, I, I favor these tenants versus those tenants and get into a complicated um, process of trying to, trying to guess which tenants are right. That's, that's not the criteria, is the zoning that's being sought consistent with what our planning called for. So as with Fred, I, I, I don't see any way uh, not to vote for this being consistent with adopted plans. Um, and, and I understand the temptation because this is a struggle of a topic, um, especially when the existing tenants are in the broader healthcare universe to say, well, in this case, you know, maybe in general, we don't consider uh, who the tenants are, because that's not the question we're being proposed for. But but in this case, the tenants are within the general healthcare universe. Does that mean uh, we need to look beyond adopted plans and, and look at health safety on general welfare? And 
I, I acknowledge that, um, but I myself, I don't think so. I think uh, implementing our plans uh, is the way that we further health safety and general welfare. So that's sort of where I'm at. Mary Beth. Well, shoot, that's exactly what I was going to say too. <laughs> um, it, yes, we uh, we can decide, you know, what's the best use of the building, but we we don't have authority to say you can have this tenant or that tenant. So, oh, is my voice? Is it still not working? Oh my goodness, I'm sorry. Um, let me fix yes, it. For it's very strange. Yeah, Just like last some... meeting, it starts off strong, and the longer you talk, it tails off. <laughs> Maybe the universe is telling me something. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, Heidi has not gone yet. Heidi? Thank you, Joel. Um, I appreciate your um, eloquent explanation of, um, of where you stand, and I stand in the same place. Um, and I, I understand, I have empathy for the thoughtfulness, uh, provided by my board members this evening. Um, and I, I think about how I try to, um, resist the temptation to think about uses when we consider rezoning and to stay with our plans. The health, safety, and welfare, we've always struggled with that criteria. It, it's, it's, um, it's a difficult one to define, um, but I think Joel um, framed it correctly in the terms of, of of zoning code and how that term is used. And I, I think about a previous rezoning we had um, that we shouldn't have been told what the intended use was, but we were um, the Carvana. Um, and I could certainly make an argument for health, safety, and welfare that um, that bringing automobiles in and out of the site and adding to environmental contamination and climate change did not benefit health, safety, and welfare, but that that's not what the zoning code, the, our criteria calls for us to do. Um, so I will also be voting in favor of this rezoning. Okay, next I see Jordan and Angel. So I want to respond, Joel, I think you summed it up well, however, uh, to me, when we're talking about safe, health, safety, and welfare, it's always pretty vague. Like Heidi said, it, there, we have to sort of interpret it how how best we can, and and just kind of purely zoning ways. But in this case, the zoning is healthcare, right? So I don't think that's irrelevant, unless the, our legal team, Adam or otherwise, told us that that was absolutely not uh, something that that we could take into consideration. It it I don't I can't think of another case on my time in planning board, and I don't know if there's been others. In, before that where the the actual zone is a PUD that is healthcare I, I feel like that has to be taken into, that can at least be taken into consideration that said it doesn't change my opinion at all because as you know Tony has stated several times the rezoning doesn't actually preclude that until they decide to redevelop the land and while that's sort of a philosophical discussion anyway because uh, we've been told basically that that's is going to get redeveloped. Uh, it sort of negates that. We can't judge it. That's not our purview. We can't say whether we think it should be redeveloped or not uh, in our chance. So I think 
on one hand, I do believe that the health, safety, and welfare clause does apply to this in a very different way than it would elsewhere. It doesn't actually change anything in my perspective to answer your question, Rachel, at least from my standpoint. Thank you, uh, Angel. Yes, um, I, 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 uh, I believe we come to talk about and know about the um, use for this building because of its nature, its existing zoning is in healthcare, it is a PUD. And because we got all those letters and, and um, you know, the folks that showed up to comment. Um, and so in terms of health, safety and welfare, um, that is why uh, I am voting no. I don't think um, this promotes that this um this rezoning uh, as it is i i'm happy that the uh prospective owner is looking at an mx and and do hope that um there is our conversations with existing tenants um and um that this you know can be done that way as we look at at all of this through an equity lens it's not just residents that can be displaced and that we should guard against it's it our uh, it can be um, commercial tenants as well. Um, and when we talk about um, consistency with adopted plans, Joel, I heard you that um, the Blueprint Denver Comprehensive Plan called for more residential, but is that um, whenever desired and wherever and 100% of the time, is there any room left for um, these unique cases where there are community needs being met. Um, can we be so consistent with the plan that we only think about residential? I know it's needed, uh, especially affordable housing, but I think there's no way for me with the information given to not look at this in a nuanced fashion. And I don't see this uh, meeting all the criteria. I'm still voting no. Thank you, Melissa. Um, really appreciate hearing everyone's thoughts because I've gone back and forth on this. I think we talk about the health, safety, and welfare and how hard it is to factor in, and this one's really clear. My struggle here is that the phrasing is how it, what is it, how it, prom it promotes the continued health, safety, and welfare of an area. I can understand the argument that this doesn't do that by removing an asset to the community. I'm having a hard time with the idea that that's how we're talking about this when we don't feel like we can wade into health, safety, and welfare this deeply when something is potentially doing harm. That's that's a little tough for me um, that like we don't talk this much about health, safety and welfare implications in terms of harm that can come from a lot of the stuff um, that's brought before us, but in a relatively well-resourced neighborhood, potentially losing one resource, like has gotten us to talk about it more. I'm glad we're talking about it more. I think we all know that we need more understanding of how we actually apply it, but it is frustrating to me that like I am sort of back and forth to be honest on whether that actually sways me here however this is the most we've talked about it um so just flagging that as we continue to think about how we do this um 
a, a well-resourced neighborhood potentially losing a pretty nice asset um, versus when this comes up in terms of um, additional displacement pressure or like all of the potential other harms that can come from some of the projects that come in front of us. So just to think about, I'm on the fence and to Angel's point, like one of the actual biggest markers of gentrification is displacement of businesses and not of people. Do I think that's necessarily what's happening in Capitol Hill? I, I'm not sure that that's how I feel about it, but it is something that we need to consider when we talk about how these things impact neighborhoods um, and impact the health and safety of neighborhoods is that that is, that is businesses as well. So um, really appreciate everyone's thoughts because still still trying to decide how I feel about this. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, thanks, Melissa. I think that that is really important. I actually was thinking about it in a similar context, and I, I, Joel, appreciate the explanation you gave, and I also think that you know Jordan's comment that this isn't it, it isn't just a rezoning from you know an MX to an MU. It's a rezoning from a health facility to something that would pro prohibit a health facility. And I think that is different than most of the other rezonings that we have moved through here. I, I was thinking about it, um, piggybacking off of what Melissa said. And, you know, I live in the coal neighborhood. And if there were a PUD that said, this has to be a neighborhood serving grocer in the middle of a, a you know, what is currently a food desert. I do think there would be a compelling argument that rezoning out of that type of PUD that calls for a grocer or calls for um, a needed community service in that part of our city, uh, that that makes the public health and welfare question arise in a different way than if we are just rezoning from you know, industrial use to residential or, and it, and as um, the impact of that is that certain tenants go. And my concern is not about tenants. It's specifically that this zoning calls for a wellness, a very unique type of wellness facility. Um, and that we are rezoning that out of a community feels like it warrants the public health and welfare discussion at a level that we typically might not get as in the weeds on. Uh, yeah, for those of you who have been on planning board for a while know that um, the meaning of the health safety and general welfare criteria is one that often comes up at our retreats where we say, what are all the things this can mean and what are all the things this can't mean and can we get some guidance on this so that we're not um you know kind of flailing or feeling like we have to make it up at the time because it's it's a criteria it should mean something um and i i like that argument if it is a criteria it should mean something um it, uh, but i don't think we've ever really come to what that is we kind of push that to planning that says we're not going to put heavy industrial next to residential because that's not healthy, um, but that's baked into our plans. Uh, we don't have to then um, uh, evaluate that again. Uh, for me, I, I have a real hard time with the, the prospect of being arbitrary that um, 
anyone could apply for this zoning in this area because the area plan calls for this kind of zoning. Um, but you, property owner, because who your current tenants are, because of a, a previous idea of what to use for the land, um, we might prohibit you from rezoning to the same zoning that the plans call for that other things in the area have. I, I, I understand the impulse here to have health, safety, and welfare mean something, but I, I, it would feel very arbitrary for me to say, um, instead of evaluating, here's the zoning you're looking for, and here's what our plans call for. So forward looking, and is that consistent with all of our criteria? Instead, in kind of a unique way, we'd be looking back to what the zoning used to be. None of our criteria ask us, is it okay to rezone out of what the zoning used to be? All of our criteria is saying, is the proposed zoning assistant, uh, consistent with the criteria? We're, we're never being asked, um, what to take into account what the zoning used to be so here the hesitation is taking on the flavor of well the new criteria might meet the new zoning might meet the criteria but i'm hesitant about losing what the old zoning used to be and that that does seem very peculiar to me um in, in terms of not not being what we're supposed to do i i i, I do acknowledge the struggle um uh, but I'm, I'm ending up in the same place. Gosha? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for all the discussion. Um, I really don't think this conversation is about tenant protection. Um, it really is not about tenant or business displacement in this case. It really is about public health and this current zoning uh, advancing this idea more than proposed zoning. and. The current zoning is very unique, I agree. I've, I've never seen a zoning like that for as long as I've been on the planning board. And I think this is why this discussion is so unique and we're bumping against this argument that we're trying to understand and wrap our head around. But in, for, in my mind, it is zoning that protects uh, public health. And we're zoning to something um, that is consistent with adopted plans in terms of proposed uses and uh, building forms and neighborhood context, but in my mind does not meet the criteria of furthering public health. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, I, it, it's, uh, yeah, I, I've, for myself, I find that hard to see providing housing, especially as the, the number one topic today of, of um, housing shortage and housing affordability. Um, not furthering. I, I and I would my I would say this is far from the first time that I've we've dealt with a P, an old PUD that had one use allowed. Um, quite in in the past, um, when you were rezoning to something that was different than what was around it, the practice in the in the city was to say, well, this is controversial. Why don't you all work out a custom zoning a PUD? And quite often those only had one use allowed. Now, while I haven't seen one where the one use was allowed was uh, natural health related things, uh, it, it's far from uncommon to have it be a single use uh, PUD. Fred? Yeah, thanks. You know, I, I, I guess I struggle a little bit knowing that the, you know, having been confirmed that the existing use would be allowed to continue. And that 
that is not impacted by tenant turnover. Uh, that right is only relinquished if they can if they eliminate that use. So if they were to convert it to residential, they couldn't convert it back to health under that zoning. But the building could empty because they renovated it or people could leave. That use still exists regardless of who the tenant is. And so it doesn't necessarily stop the use, but it creates a path for future other use. So in, in some sense, I, I, I struggle with this argument that it doesn't contribute to the public health and welfare. Uh, I think you're, we're starting to maybe get into a conversation about, well, what's better for the neighborhood? And, and this is, doesn't necessarily put a stop to that. It doesn't necessarily stop that use. It makes it a non-conforming use, but one that is still now, as Adam confirmed, allowed by right until and unless that use is discontinued. So to talk of, you know, the MX might give more assurance in some way from a visibility standpoint, and it might provide other alternatives because for example, as again, as I understand what's in the PUD and I'm not sure how that'll translate to the non-conforming use, if this, if this zone district stays in place, for example, if they wanted to have a dentist come in or a medical doctor come in, as I read it, that would not be allowed. Uh, I do think, I, I suspect, and I guess Adam can confirm this, but you know, this is, is either an office or a medical office use, uh, I would guess, under the, under the code. And so that use, that zoning use, is what would apply and something similar to that could come in. So you, if it is a medical use, if it's considered a medical use under the code, then you could have a doctor come in. You could have some other kind of care. This current PUD limits it to a few very specific forms of care. Um, if you want to have a pediatrician there, as I understand it, unless they are fall within that classification, that very narrow classification of the PUD, doesn't sure doesn't sound to me like you could have a pediatrician come in there. So I'm not sure that the current PUD um, really creates a, a great circumstance for anybody in terms of health and welfare that is, and in fact, maybe far more limiting than the continuance of the non-conforming use under a, an MU zoning. Thanks. Thank you. And Joe. Yeah, um, for me, um, it's not about looking back. Um, I do agree, Fred, um, that the, the current PUD is very limiting. Things change. Um, there may be other needs that arise. So at some point, I do believe a re rezoning, um, perhaps it's MX, what have you, um, uh, is is definitely called for um, broadening how the 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 building can be used, and this may be off our course, but it's also for me about form um, process and how you can just sort of shift something that's working for for community um, and create 
potential for displacement. I don't know what the plans are. It hasn't been shared, but um, it, it does not um, feel like it's in congruence with community needs. Um, and again, this may be off the rails, but also when we look at our um, overarching plans, our blueprint and our comprehensive plan, we always point to housing. Is this a value judgment? There are other things called for, um, but residential always, like if there's residential on the table, we always seem to cede to that. Is that a value judgment? Are we being subjective or um, do, does Blueprint always call for us to, if there's residential, we got to go for it. Um, these things are, are what I grapple with, but not that we have to hang on to this PUD because that's what it's always been. Um, and again, I, I don't know if we have the leeway to consider form or, and I'm not uh, disparaging you, Tony, I know that you work with what is a, you know, applied for and what uh, comes to, to you, but, um, you know, I, I like when we hear about community engagement and engagement, um, and I, I hear those conversations, if, even if there's disagreement, and I didn't hear if there was engagement with these tenants, perhaps there was, but um, it's, it's how do we, are we making imposing ourselves into the, the prescription for community by um, interpreting these comprehensive plans, and is it narrow, and, and that's, that's my point. Okay, um, I see Fred's hand up, but I think that's from before or no. Oh, yes, Fred. Yeah, I, I just, you know, one more comment to, to respond to some of what Angel had to say. You know, leaving the existing zoning in place doesn't necessarily guarantee that the landlord's not gonna decide, well, I'm just gonna empty the building or I'm gonna raise the rents. I mean, it, I'm not sure that it, it really is a strategy for not displacing those businesses. Um, sorry, I'm getting a little slow because I think it is time for a break. Uh, <laughs> my brain's getting a little thing. I, I, I don't. I also wanted to, to answer your your question about defaulting to residential. I mean, I I think in this case the the plan guidance both small area and blueprint is very clear for this area and, and supports that. I suspect that if this was a, an MX, we'd be having a very different conversation about trying to understand how that MX complied with the plan guidance for this to be residential. And, and that's just because that's what the plan guidance says. Um, so again, I, you know, I, I feel like we're charged with, with evaluating based on those criteria. Is it the optimal outcome? Maybe not, but I think we're, we're charged with evaluating based on that criteria. And that's, that's kind of where I have to go to back on it. Thanks. Thank you. Heidi. Thank you, Joel. Um, I just wanted to speak quickly to that um, comment on Jill about are we inserting ourselves into you know what's best in the community and not um, um, not looking at those plans correctly um, and I think that you know both of those plans had significant community input to have them created and have them get passed um, and so I do feel like the plans represent the community input extensively and that because it so clearly 
meets both of those plans, I think the community um, input is being um, taken into account and and heard in in passing this this zone, this rezoning. Thank yeah, you. I, I, thank you. I, I I think I have to interpret it that way as well. I do. I did have a flashback while you were talking to a recent rezoning we had in uh, the East Area Plan area in Park Hill, where they had uh, recommended residential use, uh, uh, low residential use, like single unit, um, for something that was already a multi-unit. And so the question was, well, why did this recent plan call for something different than what was on the ground? This is actually another case where the plan was calling for something different than was on the ground. But I, I think I've got no choice but to say, well, it is the plan. We we planning board approved that plan. City council adopted it, and so now the question is: Is this zoning uh, doing what that plan called for? I see no other comments, so I'll do a roll call vote. Uh, would we somebody like to make a motion? We need a motion first. <laughs> ah, I'll be I'm ready for a break as well. Fred, do I'll you be happy make to make a motion. <laughs> I move to recommend that city council approve application twenty twenty two I. 00167 rezoning 750 9th Avenue from PUD 499 to GMU3, finding that the applicable review criteria have been met. Second. It's been moved by Fred and seconded by Jordan. Discussion on the motion. Okay, do a roll call vote. Angel? No. Caitlin? Yes. Fred? Aye. Gosha? No. Heidi? Aye. Jordan? Aye. Mary Beth? Aye. Melissa? Aye. Rachel? Aye. And I vote aye as well. That passes eight to two. Thank you very much. Okay, we've been going for nearly three hours, so we're going to take a, a 15 minute break because we went extra time. Um, those of you who are watching and waiting for the West Area Plan, thank you. Um, you heard earlier why we needed to change the agenda to have that, have that lengthy and meaty info item first. Normally we would put those after public hearings. So uh, thanks for sticking with us. If um, the topics that we're covering excite you, be, please be aware that uh, openings for planning board come up every year and you can go to the boards and commissions page and say, I like that. I wanna do that um, and we're always looking for volunteers. We will be back at five after. Please uh, turn off your cameras and mute your screens. And then when you come back by five after, please turn on your screen so we know you're back. Thank you very much. Hello, Jordan. Okay, we have nine members returned. Uh, previously in the meeting, we had 10 members. I got a note from Heidi Majerik, who uh, was out from planning board, uh, recovering from a medical issue for some time. She's just back and um, feels like she's pushing it. So she's needing to, to step away uh, to take care of her health. So we have nine members for this topic, which is item eight, West Area Plan. This is a public hearing of the Denver Planning Board. The public hearing is open. And we're going to hear about the West Area Plan from Cortland Heiser and his team. Uh, but first, we have uh, the council sponsors for this. Sorry, I almost missed that. Um, we have Councilwoman Jamie Torres here, who uh, there's three council districts that this plan covers. The majority of it is in Councilwoman Torres's area. 
Uh, portions of this plan also covers uh, Council District 1, uh, Councilwoman Amanda Sandoval's area. And we have the Executive Director of Community Planning and Development, Laura Aldrete. Uh, I see our Executive Director has taken her, turned her camera on. Uh, do we have the Councilwoman back from the break? You could turn your cameras on. All right, Councilwoman Sandoval and this Councilwoman Torres here. Now, why don't we start with some, some words from uh, Executive Director Laura Aldrete. All right. Oh, I just see Councilwoman Sandoval. Do you want to start? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Good evening, everybody, and thanks for the uh, staying staying in for the long haul. I know you do this on some with some regularity. Uh, I also just was able to listen into a, a good portion of the last uh, agenda item, and I really appreciate the thoughtfulness that everyone takes um, for these agenda items, these rezonings, and bringing their perspective. And I think what I really appreciated about the conversation I heard was just the different voices. Um, and, and I appreciate that we're not all on the same page. And I think that makes it makes us um, weigh our decisions more heavily. And I, it feels that there's good listening and um, really thoughtful comments. Uh, and um, so I just, I just really appreciated um, having a moment to listen to those conversations and uh, appreciate you all taking the time to really invest because uh, it's really about investing in our city. So uh, we are gathered here, and I, um, I'm sure uh, Councilwoman Sandoval and Torres will have um, also thoughtful comments. One, I just want to thank you know um, my staff for the time that they have been working over the last three years <clears throat> on this project. Uh, it it was um, I believe at the beginning of COVID that it that uh, the West Area Plan really kicked off, and so some of the timing um, extension was around that. We all, it's also some very hard conversations around um, keeping authenticity of residents, uh, of neighborhood, of businesses, and those conversations take time. Uh, so I do believe that this has been an extensive and inclusive community engagement and, and the stakeholders and the community members that have really taken the time to engage literally over three years um, is, is impressive. And I appreciate you know, all of Denver coming together um, to, to think about you know, the next 20 years of their, of their community. I think the plan really centers on quality of life for residents, integrating health and sustainability in every section of the plan, right? And there's always this, anytime there's a new component to how we think about our city, um, sometimes we put that as a chapter at the end, and in this um, and in this uh, plan, we've really integrated it into the into each of the sections. So I think that is um, really I think that's outstanding about this plan. As a social science, we are always trying to do better the next time, and so I think we've done that with this plan. I think we've listened to the community and um, reflected what they're where their goals are um, and what their needs are and desires. And um, the plan reflects those, um, those goals. 
uh, in, in an appropriate way. Uh, certainly also focusing on affordable housing, allowing more residents to benefit from transit, reducing carbon emissions, balancing change with um, respect and sensitivity for, for existing neighborhoods and contextual design. Um, and then just lastly, um, you know, we, I think have um, hopefully um, have stood up to the challenge of, of understanding our, this profession's participation and role in systemic racism and really thinking about how, how our planet plans for the city need to uh, evolve with an equity focused, um, you know, lens. And I think the, the redlining that has, that has historically occurred in this community um, and analyzing that and laying that over the demographics and the um, data that we have today and then having those conversations and using the, that data and those conversations to inform what the plan, um, how we began to rectify that historic racism um, is one of the most important um, pieces also of, of this plan. And so um, we will continue to need to improve and, and learn. And so I think this is one of our first steps forward in that. Uh, and it should, I hope, you know, and look forward to it continuing to be a part of our conversations with our communities um, moving forward. So again, I just want to thank the community, um, thank my staff, and, and um, thank you all for all the hours that um, all those folks are putting in to move our city forward, and certainly the West area. Uh, and with that, I will turn it over uh, to one of the councilwomen. Yeah, Council President Torres. Good evening, everyone. Um, thank you, planning board members and community planning and development staff. Um, Council President Jamie Torres, I proudly represent District 3, um, which makes up most of uh, this particular planning area. Come July, it will be the whole area. Um, to say it's in, just incredibly satisfying that this plan is finally before you is an understatement. It's a joy to see it at this stage. Um, Councilmember Sandoval Clark and I have already provided a letter of support in your packet, so I'll uh, try not to be repetitive, um, but this plan is one that I'm immensely proud of. I'm proud of the intention, the thoughtfulness that went into it. I'm proud of how it sets a complete vision for six neighborhoods in West Denver, and I'm proud of the people who helped build it um, over the past three plus years. September 12th, 2019 was our first meeting of the steering committee and stakeholders, and that feels like a couple lifetimes ago. Um, it, uh, it must be repeated, these neighborhoods um, have a history that set it on a course for constantly playing catch up. All six neighborhoods were in whole or in part uh, redlined. Resident opportunity and access, business opportunity and access, investment projects were outright discouraged. This plan doesn't just acknowledge this inequity, it aims to confront it um, in as much as a 20 year plan can do. Um, it sets a real vision based around quality of life as Director Aldrete uh, just mentioned. This is not insignificant and was what a working group spun off last year to ensure this plan operated around. How refreshing that we look at plans primarily as a document meant to improve quality of life. It's monumental. Um, we can address anti-displacement with multiple strategies, um, some of them currently in operation in West Denver. And through uh, the recommendations in this plan, we can also identify where growth would be ideal. These are not in conflict. This effort is highly in line with the intention of Blueprint Denver 
uh, to set a high level view that would then become specialized in the neighborhood planning initiative. Um, this is what we promised our communities and what we would pay attention to what's happening in each area. I thank all of the community who took the time to dive into this plan to give their valuable time and opinion. And I thank CPD for spending such care and diligent time to listen to those concerns, pausing when necessary and not rushing through an important development process. So thank you so much. I look forward to the hearing and any questions you may have. Thank you very much. Councilwoman Sandoval. <clears throat> thank you all. And thank you all planning board members for your service. I started at um, with you all at three o'clock and I'm still here with you. And so I just really, I also ate during your break. Um, appreciate what you all do. And as I think I'm the council person who's probably here in front of you quite often. It feels like it in my work plan that I'm here once again, talking about what our city faces, affordable housing, gentrification, displacement, quality of life, the built environment, small local businesses, and parks and recreation. It's why I ran, is because this is these plans are where the rubber hits the road. These plans set the guide for the next 20 years. These plans will help President Torres and myself on city council help invest in these neighborhoods, which have historically not had much investment. When we looked at the 2021 bond and we look anywhere west of the Platte River, our areas west of the Platte River historically have not had bond funding. They have not had additional parks. They have had historic injustices since the beginning of the development of Denver. And it's plans such as these that will help us define in our city budget, which is a moral document. It will define how we spend money and it will define the future, the next seven generations of these residents and over in the West Area Plan. It's been my honor to work on this plan beside President Torres and her staff and also with the staff of CPD. We couldn't be here without all of you. But most importantly, the residents. This is why we're here. This is why you all on the planning board serve is because of the residents. We are called to the service. It's not just something that you easily wanna do twice a month, spend your time, it's service. And so I thank the, the, the residents for their service. This is not easy as a resident to sit as and give your opine on mobility, opine on where we should be investing in key commercial nodes, opine on what does it look like to have the river. This is one of the first plans where I've actually, it's talked about the Platte River and what do we do with the Platte River and the injustices that the Platte River has seen. And so thank you to the residents who gave all of their time, gave all their commitment, spent numerous evenings with us, through COVID, through a whole entire worldwide pandemic and still had the eye on their future and their kids' future and the future of the next seven generations. So I look forward to hearing any your all comment and your debate on this plan. In the letter that we wrote, I fully believe this is ready for city council. And so I ask that you support it. And I will be here with my camera off in the background listening. And if you have any questions, feel free to ping me. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Melissa, you have a disclosure you wanted to make. Yes, thank you. Um, just quickly, uh, before we start the public hearing, um, 
just want to note my previous position with the Council District 3 office, um, where I participated in several community meetings on the West Area Plan, and I was part of the process between 2019 and 2021. Um, that being said, I am confident in my ability to review and vote on this matter in a fair and impartial manner. Additionally, I have reviewed our bylaws and the code of ethics and do not find this to be a conflict of interest or in violation of these governing documents. Thank you very much. I always appreciate the disclosure so the public knows we've got ethics top of mind. Okay, we'll now go to the uh, staff report from Cortland Heiser and team. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, and good evening, planning board. Um, it's nice to be here again. Uh, I'm Cortland Heiser, a long range planning supervisor uh, with community planning and development and planning services. Uh, and joined here tonight by two other members of the West Area team, uh, Chelsea Benuna and Fernando Abud. And like the info item that we had last month, uh, we'll be sharing the presentation duties uh, and also um, doing a, a, a answer, doing Q&A uh, as a team. <laughs> Whoever's the most appropriate person is to answer. So uh, we're appearing in front of you as a team tonight um, and uh, we'll get started now. So next slide, please, Chelsea. Here's a walkthrough of what we're going to cover in the presentation. Um, so we'll do the first part quickly. Um, Chelsea will walk through uh, a reminder of the plan and how it's structured. Um, then we're going to cover updates um, that have been made to the draft plan since we were before you last month. Uh, we took in additional public comment and uh, the planning board's uh, comments. And that resulted in revisions to both written text and the mapping. And so uh, Chelsea will cover uh, the text edits and then Fernando will cover the map edits. Uh, and then it'll come back to me uh, to walk through the bulk of the material from staff report, which addresses uh, the three criteria that planning board uses to evaluate uh, neighborhood plans. So with that, um, I will turn it over to Chelsea to get us started. Thanks, Cortland. Um, so as Cortland mentioned, I'll now provide a brief overview of the plan structure, including some of the innovations in this NPI plan that we're really excited about. So here's the West planning area. Um, and as most of you are likely familiar with, it consists of six neighborhoods, including Barnum, Barnum West, Valverde, Villa Park, Sun Valley, and West Colfax. This graphic shows the plan's table of contents. And as we've mentioned before, um, throughout our engagement and especially in meetings with the steering committee, we heard loud and clear that quality of life consideration should really be the heart of this plan. So in response to this feedback, um, the quality of life section appears first after the introduction. And this graphic illustrates how related content is also integrated throughout other sections. Um, this centering of quality of life is a key difference from how other NPI plans are structured. So as the driving force, um, we also heard how important it is to integrate ideas related to quality of life, such as health, equity, and environmental sustainability throughout all other sections of the plan. Uh, this slide shows just a few examples of how we approach this to give you an idea of what we mean when we say that quality of life concepts are integrated throughout the plan. So um, in mobility, for example, we included content about reducing transportation pollution, in the economy section, we highlighted Denver's green workforce development strategy. And in land use, we provided information about Denver's green building ordinance. 
In addition to centering quality of life, there are a couple of other innovations we want to highlight, and that uh, these were created in response to broad community input and support. So this is the first NPI plan to have a water section, and we included it after hearing about how important it was to the community to delve deeper into environmental issues, um, especially water. So this section focuses on existing conditions and how they affect West and includes recommendations for sustainable water management. This is also the first ever NPI plan to include a section on historic injustices and present inequities. Um, what we ran into during our engagement sessions was that people were really frustrated and they wanted acknowledgement of the historic inequities that they've been experiencing all their lives, um, information on how they connect to current inequities and recommendations for how to address them. So while Blueprint Denver and other plans typically look at equity as it stands now and move uh, forward from there, we built out a section that also looks backwards in order to acknowledge historic injustices that many of the recommendations in this plan are working to address. This section includes a historic timeline um, that looks at major milestones in West and Denver's development highlighting both past injustices and successes. Um, these past harms informed many of the recommendations included in this plan, and I'll provide just a few examples. So um, as you've heard, uh, West has a history of redlining, and that informed our recommendations for increased and affordable home ownership. Um, West's history of disinvestment made it even more crucial for the plan to address strategies for mitigating involuntary displacement. Pollution from history of industrialization was another important topic. And as I've mentioned, we've integrated health considerations related to um, pollution and other quality of life considerations throughout the plan. Also past development has left West physically cut off from downtown and other resources. And that heavily informed our mobility recommendations, uh, focusing on connections for various modes of transportation. And this also influenced our land use strategies um, to focus development in proximity to transit along West corridors and at key nodes. Considering West's history and the past harms this area has suffered through, uh, both urban planning related and otherwise, we knew it was especially important to ensure that the new plan for West Denver was born out of an equitable process. The steering committee, uh, many of whom are community leaders and work hard to represent the views of their neighborhoods had great influence on this plan as did input we received from many other community events and engagement activities throughout the past three years, which Cortland will touch on in greater detail later on. We believe this strong community involvement speaks to the equitable nature of this process. So now that you understand some of the basics and some of the highlights of the West Area Plan, I'll walk you through some of the key text improvements we've made to the plan since we last presented to you about a month ago. Um, we heard at the last meeting um, that the West plan is very lengthy and difficult to navigate. So we've made multiple improvements to allow for easier navigation. Um, if you download the PDF, there's now a dynamic sidebar that allows you to jump to any section, regardless of where you currently are in the plan. And in addition, whether you're viewing it online or downloaded, um, all tables of contents, both at the beginning of the plan and at the top of each section, include links to allow for similar ease of navigation. Cross-references to other sections are hot-linked throughout the plan, and we also have um, plan recommendation summaries that appear multiple times throughout the document. Um, that's in the introduction, 
at the top of each area-wide recommendation section and in each neighborhood section. Um, and this is really to help remind readers of the plan's bigger picture and ideas. We also heard after, in our discussion in January um, about the importance of universal design concepts. And this came up in our community engagement as well. So we've integrated this into the land use section um, as it relates to housing accessibility and specifically into recommendation L7. So um, in addition to updates to all parts of recommendation L7, we also highlighted the importance of universal design to the West community as part of the introductory text to this section. And considering uh, what an important issue involuntary displacement is in West, we worked with WDRC and DHA to develop expanded content on strategies that both organizations and community members can use to help mitigate involuntary displacement. These strategies complement recommendation E10, which is focused on what the city can do to help with this issue. With that, I'll now hand it over to Fernando to talk about the newly revised land use maps. Thanks, Chelsea. As Carlin mentioned, my name is Fernanda Wood, an associate city planner here at CBD. And I'm gonna walk you through the updates that we did to the land use map since the last time we were here in January. Since the last time we were here, we talked about making some updates to the maps to create alignment between them. The way we did that, first of all, we followed the hide map as the main guide since that was a map that had a that better reflected the intended strategy, since it had more thought and process put into its development. In addition to that, we also look at some of the intentional changes that were made on the future places map for some additional guidance. And in addition to those two different strategies, a, last time we were here, we also heard some concern from planning board members regarding recommendations of potential downzoning existing entitlement. So in response to that, we took we made two different analysis. First, we compared the recommendations on the plan to the existing zoning, both the uses and heights. And then we compare the recommendations as well to the existing built environment, that being uses and heights as well. We made some corresponding updates in, to ensure that alignment and then made sure that align with the existing zoning entitlements. As a result, overall this with this alignment strategy, we made some tweaks in all the different maps. Some changes were made in the neighborhood context map, some on the future places, and some on the hide maps. And that also resulted in an updated growth strategy map. But all of these updates resulted in a series of maps, updated maps that are in alignment with each other and in alignment with the current zoning. Thank you. So in addition to the updates that I talked in order to create the alignment between the maps, we also made some updates along the corridors in response to your input uh, that we gathered on the, on the info item in January uh, regarding the concern expressed by some board members about the West Area Plan lowering heights in, in place types uh, in, from Blueprint Denver in some areas. The way we did that is we went back and revisited public input that identified the corridors, that being Colfax, Federal, Sheridan, and Alameda, as well as some of the, as well as the Sheridan and the Decatur Federal Station as the most appropriate places for density. 
we took that back to a steering committee and with additional guidance from them, where we revised our approach to density along the corridors tied to transit service capacity using a node approach with high transitions into the lower height areas in the neighborhoods. In the next slides, I'll walk you through how that approach can be applied in each of the different corridor types. So starting with a Colfax and Federal, these two corridors are a highlighted in Denver Moves Transit as high capacity transit corridors. It, the changes, the updates in Colfax that we did, we updated a, some of the remaining three-story areas into five stories. But along Federal, a, the nodes that were previously identified remain the same, that being along 8th Avenue, around 2nd Avenue, and along Alameda. They, but we provided height increases to the next available category. This resulted in the center of the node changing from five stories to eight in the transition area surrounding those nodes from three stories to five. And the area between the nodes, the area along the corridor, increased from three stories to five stories. So following up with Alameda, that's classified as a medium capacity transit corridor in Denver Moves. And the changes that we did here, we the three stories along the overall corridor it, that changed to five stories. And one unique area to highlight as an opportunity area is the Columbine homes owned by DHA along the corridor or in proximity to the corridor. We, it's a good opportunity because of the proximity to transit, affordable housing potential, and a large parcel opportunity. After conversations with DHA and from input from Valverde residents, we increased that height from three stories to five stories. The other area to note in this uh, corridor is the intersection with federal, that being that high capacity transit, that it's the only area where the, the heights increase to eight stories. Finally, a Sheridan is categorized as a speed and reliability corridor, this being lower transit capacity than the other two. So in this corridor, we took a more targeted approach in a focus on some specific nodes. This being the node at first in Sheridan, where we increase a, from three to five stories following the existing commercial area. The node at eighth and Sheridan, following this large par parcel opportunity, where the heights along the corridor, a, we increase it to eight, and then transition areas a, next to them as five. And finally, the station at Sheridan, where we increase a, the, the height from eight to eight, 12 stories for its intersection with the light rail. And the areas in between the nodes remain as three stories as in the previous draft. This in response to the lower future transit capacity and some of the existing conditions in the area. With all these adjustments, we are carrying on the strategy of adding some additional heights along the corridors as supported by that public input that I highlighted and further refined by the steering committee guidance while maintaining that original strategy of hide along the corridors and specific nodes with transition into lower areas. In addition to some of the more specific changes, some other update that we talked about last time that we were here in January is the, the representation of heights using a two-type approach 
uh, the map that we had been talking talking to on the previous slides that was the base height map, and then the map shown here this is the a BHA incentive maximum building height map. Uh, we mapped the availability of incentive heights based on the West Area Plan Future Places map. But in addition to that, some other changes that we did to the document is we added additional information further explaining uh, what is EA expanding housing affordability, what's EHA, the citywide policy, its applicability of incentives. And in, within that text, we also noted that some of these heights may or not be achievable on specific heights, subject to a variety of factors uh, that include protected districts or applicable existing zone districts. And with that, I'm gonna pass it back to Corlin so he can walk you through the planning board review. Okay, so for the rest of the presentation, um, is really a summary of the material that's presented in more detail uh, in the staff report. Next slide. Um, so planning board uh, and city council both have the same three criteria as identified by comp plan 2040 uh, when considering approval and adoption uh, of new neighborhood plans. Um, the three criteria are an inclusive community process, uh, consistency with comp plan 2040, and demonstrating a long-term perspective. And we'll walk through each of these three individually. Uh, the first is the inclusive community process. Uh, as has already been mentioned by um, several speakers, uh, this was sort of a lengthy process. It lasted more than three years. It kicked off in the fall of 2019 and uh, we're just wrapping it up now. So it's really closer to three and a half years of process. Uh, it started pre-pandemic um, and then was interrupted uh, by COVID-19, um, the shutdowns and uh, restrictions on public gatherings, uh, which was not unique to this process, certainly. Every, um, every project that CPD was doing had to deal with that. Um, but this, unlike other MPI area plans, which kicked off after um, COVID and, and the shutdowns were already a known quantity. This one was interrupted in the middle and required some on-the-fly uh, adjustments to the engagement strategy. Um, let's move on to the next one. So some of that bears out here. Um, so the staff report covers this in quite a lot of detail and uh, includes lists of each of the individual community meetings and the dates on which they happened. Uh, but if you're going to summarize all that down to a single slide, this is that slide. So the main categories of community engagement that were undertaken as part of the West Area planning process, uh, the first is workshops and uh, major online events. So we did have three in-person community-wide workshops, two at the very beginning of the process. We had a kickoff meeting and then another meeting uh, about six months after that, uh, both pre-COVID, um, before uh, the pandemic settled in and we had to pivot then to online events uh, rather than in-person. And we tried a couple of different things. There was an online uh, self-directed open house with detailed accompanying surveys. Uh, we also did a webinar. Um, and then most recently we were able to pivot back uh, to in-person uh, community meetings at a school um, this past fall, now that we don't have the same gathering restrictions. Uh, we doubled down on uh, online forms of outreach and, and engagement in terms of events, but also in terms of how we collect input. Um, the 
not just in this planning process, but other planning processes that we um, have had underway over the last couple of years have much more reliance now on online surveys to collect public input. Um, ideally, that's as a supplement to um, an in-person meeting so that people can participate both ways. Um, of course, when we were relying on virtual uh, events, sometimes the surveys had to stand more on their own. Uh, but we had three online surveys, some of them with multiple um, surveys within them. So the biggest of the three actually was more like four surveys in one, and you would pick your topic module and then take a, a survey on that specific uh, module. Uh, but these were pretty uh, robust uh, surveys designed to collect a lot of input um, and as a substitute for exercises that we may have otherwise done uh, in an in-person meeting format. We also had two public review drafts uh, with online commenting through um, a tool that we use that's called Conveo. It allows the um, public to review the document and comment it on it directly, and then their comments are viewable uh, to other people who are reviewing the plan. Uh, we did that with two review drafts, one released uh, in the spring of last year, and then most recently this past fall. Uh, we attended a lot of community meetings, um, 46 uh, documented. I think there may have been some uh, in addition to that that uh, maybe we forgot to put on the list, but it was a lot of uh, neighborhood meetings, other community group meetings. This usually involved appearing on the agenda um, of some other group that was already meeting or attending a community event um, with a table, uh, typically outside uh, during the pandemic. Uh, and interacting with people and collecting input that way. We also offered office hours um, at three key points in the planning process, usually um, in response to making staff available to answer questions on uh, draft content or materials. Uh, we have offered 30 virtual sessions and five in-person sessions. And then of course, there was also the steering committee that met approximately monthly throughout the planning process uh, for three years, 36 regular meetings, and then uh, eight working group meetings over the past summer to provide more detailed input and feedback on uh, the first draft of the plan. Next slide, please. Uh, if you add all of that up, you end up with well over 100 uh, individual opportunities and, and touch points. Um, wanted to point that out. So with respect to the draft plan review, um, we have uh, two drafts, as I mentioned previously, one released in the spring. Uh, that's the draft that we worked uh, with the steering committee working group in detail over the summer to refine. Um, but there was a significant number of views of that plan by the public, as well as comments made. Uh, and then draft two released uh, around Halloween um, and collecting comment um, up through uh, early January. Uh, even more comments and a comparable amount of page views. So in total between the two drafts, uh, over 900 comments submitted and over 8,000 views. Next slide. Uh, how do we get that kind of participation? Um, well, some of it is uh, due to our communications efforts. So we have um, email newsletters, social media posts, and also news coverage um, that are reported on this slide. Reach refers to um, a confirmed number of people who either opened an email uh, or uh, viewed uh, a social media post. Uh, so our email newsletter had over 1300 subscribers and with updates sent pretty regularly, 24 throughout the planning process, usually drawing attention to the opportunity to participate in some 
uh, upcoming event or online survey or other engagement opportunity or review opportunity. For social media, um, Twitter and Nextdoor being the primary platforms, um, when you add up uh, all of the views of the various posts throughout the planning process, you end up with numbers in the tens of thousands um, of people who are in the uh, planning area who actually saw um, those posts. And for earned media, we had uh, four news stories, uh, two in the North Star and two in Denverite. Next slide, please. This slide, it's a lot of text, um, but we thought it was important to highlight how we try to make our engagement inclusive so that all can participate. And that includes these things, which are a pretty standard practice um, for, for any um, in-person workshop, certainly with the first couple of bullets, we always offered Spanish language interpretation, food and childcare. Uh, we distribute bilingual flyers to advertise um, those uh, events throughout um, the planning area, uh, oftentimes at local businesses or people uh, volunteered to help distribute. Uh, we did paid door-to-door -door flyering, um, partnering with the council offices for the first draft. Um, and there were nearly 10,000 flyers that were distributed uh, ever promoting that draft. All of our electronic communication is formatted in a way so that it looks uh, correct on a smartphone or a tablet. Uh, is ADA accessible uh, and uh, posted uh, in the web uh, uh, page itself so that someone who's using Google Translate is able to translate it into their language of preference. Uh, finally, print copies of materials uh, or additional language services beyond Spanish are made available um, upon request uh, when we receive that in advance. So um, with respect to the first evaluation criteria, the finding is that the West Area Plan was developed through an inclusive community process. Now onto the second criteria of plan consistency. We looked at this two ways. Uh, the criteria, um, the way that it's written, it requires um, that the small area plan be consistent with Comp Plan 2040. We also evaluated against uh, Blueprint Denver, that being the key main supplement to Comp Plan 2040. Uh, and it's consistent with much of the material um, from Comp Plan 2040. Uh, if you add all of this up, uh, consistent with 39 goals and 87 strategies uh, from Comp Plan 2040, and rather than uh, list all of that now, I'll just direct you to the staff report, which identifies all the various points of consistency with these goals and strategies. And same thing with Blueprint Denver. Um, the main uh, content uh, from Blueprint Denver being land use and built form, mobility, quality of life infrastructure, and looking at the Blueprint policies on that, uh, the totals would be consistency with 31 policies and 74 strategies from Blueprint Denver. Beyond that, we also use the same toolkit um, as Blueprint Denver um, and as Fernando already pointed out, Blueprint maps, things like neighborhood context, future places, growth strategy. There are also mobility maps that appear in Blueprint Denver for future street types and modal priority. Uh, and this plan uses those same tools and then provides updates that are later incorporated into Blueprint Denver on an annual basis every spring. Um, Blueprint is updated to be consistent with small area plans that have been adopted uh, within the previous year. Uh, and so, 
that will help to keep Blueprint current. Um, it will be updated as part of that program uh, with the recommendations and the mapping um, that was done here for the West area. Next slide. So with respect to the second criteria, the finding is that the West Area Plan is consistent with Comprehensive Plan 2040 and Blueprint Denver. And the final criteria is long-term view. Next slide, please. Uh, and there are three points that we wanted to draw attention to um, with respect to uh, long-term view criteria. First is that the plan itself states that it has a planning horizon looking forward to a year of 2040. Um, so when the plan started 20 years out into the future, a little less than that now. Um, but it is a long range plan um, that's looking forward a couple of decades out. In the second criteria, the West Area Plan provides more detailed guidance on topics that are already covered with, by an overlap with Blueprint Denver and the Comp Plan, uh, which themselves are planning documents that have a long-term view and were adopted um, by these same criteria. And so this plan is uh, providing more detailed information on those same topics specific to the West Area. And third, the plan has an aspirational vision uh, and an associated implementation strategy uh, that will take many years to achieve um, as, as documented by the um, timing and phasing that's recommended in the implementation strategy at the end of the plan. So the finding on this criteria is that the West Area Plan has an appropriate long-term perspective. Given the consistency with uh, the three criteria for evaluation, the staff recommendation is approval with the condition that the document be edited for clarity and correctness. Um, that's an important condition because as typos or other area errors are identified, uh, this gives us the leeway to make non-substantive edits uh, to correct those mistakes uh, as, as the document moves forward to city council. So my final slide here um, is just for your information, um, you know, if approved tonight, uh, these would be the next steps for the city council adoption process uh, for the West Area Plan. We'll be taking it to Ludi in a couple of weeks, uh, followed by um, uh, first reading and public hearing in March. And that concludes our presentation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, this is a public hearing, and so we're going to hear from the public. We have 12 people who signed up in advance, and there are many more people online. So if you don't hear me call your name, by the time we get to these 12 folks, uh, don't worry. That just means we didn't get you uh, when you registered clicking the button for this and we'll have you raise your hand and we'll get you in the queue as well. Each person will have three minutes. And um, if you would start with your name and if you're comfortable doing so, your address for the record. Our first five speakers will be Kathy Sandoval, Jamie Aguilar, Evan Lopez, Heidi Newhart, and Lori Evans. Kathy Sandoval. I can unmute here and I will do a quick overview. Good evening, Planning Board. My name is Kathy Sandoval, Brown Chicana, she, hers, Aya. My address is 700 Raleigh Street in the Villa Park neighborhood and a member of the steering committee of the West Area Planning Initiative. After listening to the comments from the Planning Board after the presentation by community planning and development staff that gave last month about the West Area Plan. I was struck by one of the comments from the planning board member 
in which the member appreciated the elevation of equity in the plan, but was wondering if there was specific equity actions taking place in this plan. And as a member of the committee, I have fought long and I have fought hard to bring equity into this plan. Our support letter spoke to the action of equity in the plan and the areas that I wanted to highlight is just a brief summary of some of the things that I feel that support the action part of the equity in the plan. The first specific action is developing green zones and the disparate impact of areas of Valverde and Sun Valley that have been historically impacted by industrial development, pollution and hazardous materials in their neighborhoods. This plan recommends the creation of green zones where stricter land use and zoning rules are implemented and target investments are emphasized to improve public health and economic development and also could include regulations that involve local involvement in land use decision-making. I encourage us in the city to adopt these kinds of approaches and tools. Another action that was recommended as a big idea was on mitigating disparate impacts of highway development that has impacted these neighborhoods, again, with increased pollution, higher asthma rates, and with the development of a park cap proposed across 6th Avenue to connect Barnum North and Santos Park to Barnum Park, approximately about Irving Street, increases the mobility connections between these neighborhoods and again begins to provide more park space as well as mitigating the impact of highway development. And lastly, the most important one certainly is uh, density for the sake of equitable development without displacement. The news article you may have recently saw in the Denver Post this past Sunday where examined the loss of student population, particularly in Northwest Denver, hit the nail on the head. And what resonated for me in that article was the newer housing projects that have come into these neighborhoods that has turned single family dwellings into apartments, condos, townhomes. And what was noted in the news article in these types of builds often house fewer children than single family homes do. One report that was cited showed aerial map or image of a single uh, city block in Northwest Denver that transformed from having 22 residential units to with 13 DPS students in 2005 to having 48 units with four students in 2014. I ask you to be engaged in an equity analysis that examines the impact of density and the consequences of the displacement of residents in the West Denver neighborhoods, whether it's under a zoning change proposed, either through a rezoning of the parcel or in this plan. Okay. We are facing in these neighborhoods I'm, I'm school closures. I'm afraid you're- And you're, I would like you to examine your growth strategies in Blueprint Denver, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, next is Jamie Aguilar. And I don't, there you oh, are. Hello. Fanta fantastic. We hello. can hear you. Jaime Aguilar, 958 Julian Street. I'm here to speak in support of the West Area Neighborhood Planning Initiative you have before you today. As a member of the steering committee, I've personally been in this process since the beginning in 2019, and I have been through the majority of the 36 or so meetings that the planning office has convened. Part of this group was to share our lived experience. Part of being in this group was to share our lived experience in these neighborhoods and being conduits for the new and lifelong residents. It was an important task that took up a lot of our time as volunteers in the community. We had a lot of changes in these three years of work, including a global pandemic that saw our lives dramatically shift. 
We have seen many people move away, some people, new people move in, and unfortunately many neighbors, including some steering committee members, pass away. Throughout this time, we were doing such a great job of giving insight that other city departments started to piggyback on our efforts, sometimes diluting the MPI West task at hand. It was after the summer of 2020 when I remember looking at this plan beyond the photo voice projects and in-person feedback meetings we had with our neighbors. We were able to see firsthand as injustices were revealed and a change of perspective about what it means to be equitable. I remember one of my disabled neighbors, a renter on the west side of Villa Park, kindly asked Eugene, what is equity? This was one of the largest turning points of my perspective on whose voice we represented on this committee. Not only did we feel the pressure to become experts in planning without a pause in the process, but community listening became the forefront of what I felt my expectations were for all people in this area, equity and access. Learning and seeing the impacts of broken treaties, redlining, and disinvestment on the west side of Denver, did you know my neighborhood used to be a dump? These perspectives were brought into light. What you have here is not a normal approach that your board has historically looked at in making plans for our city to grow. The essence of this process and the outcomes you see is from an authentic lived experience with community listening as the guide. The work that was done to get to this point was with empathy and with a lot of our valuable spare time. What I have heard is that my community doesn't wanna be zoned out of our homes and continue to get the short end of the stick for those with privilege. We look beyond land use in this plan, striving for quality of life that will create resilient and connected neighborhoods in a, geo in a geographically challenging area and with the lens of ecological and environmental justice to help guide us. If this plan fails on anything, it's with social justice, which I believe is economic development, jobs, and city centers within deep in our neighborhoods. I will not be polarized by Yimmy and NIMBY positions that will arise, and I pray the same for you. This work was about setting a plan for development, not developers continuing, continuing to tell us how to develop our neighborhoods. Equity is not zoning ourselves out of, this, out of our own communities and correcting mistakes that were made in the past. From the broken Fort Wise Treaty of 1861 to the historic redlining and Blueprint Denver. Again, I am happy to support this plan, the work that was done, and the contributions from the planners to the committee members who helped create something for the betterment of this unique community that we all call home. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Evan Lopez. Hi, my name is Yvonne Lopez. I represent the Valverde neighborhood. And I would like to um, start by saying how thankful I am to um, Councilwoman President Jamie Torres for her authentic leadership, the CPD staff and the working team. Um, just like Kathy and Jaime have um, said, we have come at this with a place of equity. My, my neighborhood Valverde is an enigma. We have no tree canopies. We, have, we live in an industrial area where the air is so gross, it's disgusting, and yet these industrial capitalists race through the neighborhood, breaking the streets up and we must do better. I feel like this marginalized neighborhood has suffered enough harm. I grew up with my beloved family there over 60 years and I have seen very little investment in this neighborhood. Now we're, we have absorbed the industrial area from the Rhino district because now it's become an art district and, <clears throat> and now we're gonna help um, the Denver crisis, housing crisis, by absorbing more density in a already congested streets. 
um, in Valverde, the only way to get in and out is via a car. So I ask the the board today, you know, to to keep your keep your eye on us and help us. We need help. And yes, while I appreciate all the hard work that has gone into this plan and all the emotional intelligence and, and allowing for Valverde to rise above, even when their neighborhoods are suffering, suffering too, please, please take a deeper look at Valverde. We need all the help that we can get. Thank you very much. I support this plan. Thank you. And I apologize for mispronouncing your name and for everyone whose name I'm likely to mispronounce. It's unintentional and names are important. Next, Heidi Newhart. There we go. Hi, um, my name is Heidi Newhart. I live at 1445 Mead Street. I live um, a half a block off Colfax Ave where we moved almost 15 years ago. We were excited to be close to a major artillery arterial and with buses and access to light rail and the promise of density along West Colfax corridor that would support our daily lives and how we wanted to live in the city. Safe biking and walking routes leading to amenities, density with ground level activation that supports local entrepreneurs with workforce and affordable housing to support the business of the city. Our neighborhood has not seen development pressure come with these benefits. We have instead seen increased car dependence and lack of infrastructure to support multiple modes of transportation, putting our safety at significant risk. Construction that aims to a specific demographic that benefits the development and not necessarily the community and ground floor amenities built primarily for residents of those structures. Development that extracts from its proximity to transit is not transit-oriented development. The West Area Plan attempts to address these deficiencies by encouraging development around our high and low-capacity transit hubs that decenter car culture, provide high affordability and access to food sources and daily products and services, safe connectivity through and to other transit hubs and community amenities, tying our neighborhoods together with trees and access to parks, supporting water quality and access to it, and building resiliency to both economic and climate disruptive events. The West NPI's process of community engagement brought six neighborhoods together to have a larger, almost regional approach to a neighborhood plan that I believe can drive the type of density that supports people in place mobility and ecology. The plan's innovative approach of moving quality of life section to the forefront is a way for community to decenter den density for density's sake and install intentional systems that inform livable, accessible, and safe communities. Height alone does not address how a community needs are met around transit development. Development does not inherently place make. Trees, bike lanes, affordability, water quality, and small businesses not thrive in a car-dominated design. The intentional recommendations of quality of life-driven growth is seen as a way to address development pressure in a way that is responsive to community needs. This plan is a hope for our neighborhoods to be able, I'm sorry, <laughs> Um, to be able to attract development that wants to be in relationship with the neighborhoods it is investing in, a way to build a multimodal network that supports people in our natural topography around water, trees, birds, and bees, the built resiliency to 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 build resiliency to stave off the worst of climate disruption and displacement. This plan is just a start and a continued conversation around the difficult and often messy realities that our neighborhoods have been actively engaged. And I urge this plan's adoption with this in mind. Thank you for your time, your service and your consideration. 
Thank you very much. Our fifth speaker will be Lori Evans, and our next five speakers will be Maureen McKenna, Tyler Downs, Alden Schiller, Jessica Abel, and Eugene Howard. Lori Evans. Do we have Lori Evans here? It is possible, Lori, that you are on not under your name if you got uh, the link sent to you from someone else. So if you'd use the raise hand feature and let us know you're here, if you happen to be here under a different name. I do see Alden with a hand up. If, uh, Alden, um, is that you? We have you on the list, but are you also Lori? Alden, uh, I am not. Okay. Yeah, sometimes people are sharing a computer and only one name shows up, so we will get to you. Um, less, another call for Lori Evans. We'll come back later uh, just to see if we can get anybody we missed. Okay, we'll now move on to Maureen McKenna. Hi, board. It's nice to see you all. I'm Maureen McKenna, Valverde resident at 2725 West Bayad Avenue and also West Area Plan Steering Committee member. I'm excited to join today to continue to listen to discussion and share my support of the plan, as well as my gratitude for those who went above and beyond to ensure it was rooted in equity and that it balanced valuable community input. The Steering Committee, particularly a committed subset who formed a working group, has deep connections in West communities and took very seriously our responsibility of serving our neighbors to the point of pleading throughout the process enough time to engage, inform, and gather feedback from residents. While it may go beyond a traditional plan, West's context is an important reminder that these infrastructure and policy recommendations are here for the purpose of improving the conditions and opportunities for our residents in West neighborhoods that have historically been intentionally and unintentionally left behind or exploited. After decades since our last plans, this was an opportunity to introduce our neighborhoods and values to stakeholders interested in partnering here in the future. In particular, I'd like to highlight what I feel is a strength in the plan, the mobility section. As someone who typically shows up wearing my transportation hat, I was pleased that my steering committee peers, the community and CPD shared my passion for traffic safety and prioritizing active and transit mobility options for those who don't commute by personal vehicle, most by necessity. We recognize that transportation should be a right that influences access to education, jobs, healthcare, recreation, food, and other basic needs. The plan transparently shares West concerning traffic violence metrics and references other city plans with goals to help Denver achieve a safer and more equitable transportation system. Although with major roadways, including Alameda, Federal, Colfax, 6 and 25, our neighborhoods are uniquely cut off from each other and the rest of the city. And this plan recognizes the opportunity to improve safety along our high injury networks, transit along these arterials and multimodal connections between them. It also captures the need to elevate the South Platte, Lakewood and Weir Gulch trails as important connectors in green spaces. All this is to say that the consensus among residents and the transportation recommendations in the plan honor the long way the West Side has to go to ensure freedom of mobility through safe, dignified, affordable, reliable and sustainable options. Thank you for taking the time to review the product of three years of collaboration among steering committee members, CPD partners, shout out to Eugene, uh, and everyone else who is here today with C CPD and West area neighbors. We look forward to your support. 
Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Tyler Downs. Hello, uh, my name is Tyler Downs with Wazi Partners, LLC, a Denver-based developer and operator of both affordable and workforce housing. We're longtime proponents of providing affordable housing in Denver, and we're thankful for the hard work of the steering committee and the work that was done to provide inclusive and equitable planning, which also allows future community reinvestment to occur. We felt this process was inclusive and that all voices were given the opportunity to participate plan itself allows for the development of a quality uh, neighborhood assets and quality community in close collaboration with all the neighborhood stakeholders. I'm a supporter of this plan and look forward to continued community engagement on specific neighborhood reinvestment, which balances anti-displacement with urban growth. I believe this plan will help augment and preserve the vibrant communities in West Denver. And thank you to all for your help with this. Thank you. Next, Alden Schiller. Hello, board. Um, my name is Alden Schiller, and um, I am uh, just wanted to speak briefly about the uh, plan in regards to the 900 block of Grove Street. Um, I was looking at the density, the future height guidance on page 177 of the plan, and um, it looks like there is an allotment for seven stories in the 1000 block of Grove and in the 800 block of Grove, uh, but the 900 block is oddly left out of that. And so I'm just kind of curious to the board, I, I'm not sure if this is the appropriate forum for that kind of a question, but I'm just curious how that you know, determination was made. Um, my neighbors on the 900 block are, uh, probably going to be confused and, and I feel like it's going to change the look of that whole strip um, along Grove Street to have seven stories uh, in the 800 block and then you go lower to probably what will remain single family homes and possibly three story buildings uh, and then go back up to seven stories again in the 1000 block. Um, I'm just kind of curious about that. Um, moreover though, uh, I, I also wanted to just compliment uh, the uh, work that everyone has done in putting this together. I think this is a really fantastic plan. Um, Denver needs zoning guidelines like this, and this is like in line with everything that the governor is pushing, and it is um, precisely what we need to address the housing crisis. So uh, I just want to compliment everyone who's put in the work, and I'm really excited to see, um, you know, some, some dollars come into this uh, part of town. So thank you for that. Thank you. Next, Jessica, Jessica Abel. Do we have Jessica Abel online? Uh, we're not seeing, uh, we have a hand up. Let's see, Alden, if you could take your hand down and Renee Martinez-Stone, your hand is up. You may be with Jessica. I'm not with Jessica. Okay, we will add you to the list. Is that okay? We're looking for Jessica Abel, and I'll just make a note that we'll come back uh, for her. And next we have Eugene Howard.
And Eugene, we have uh, more than one of you here. So we'll just allow any of the Eugene Howards to unmute and ask the real Eugene Howard to unmute. Eugene, uh, there's one, there's a Eugene with his hand up that we could allow to talk. Good evening. Uh, I think you have me now. Uh, so my name is Eugene Howard. I uh, live at uh, 1071 Chase Street in Lakewood. Uh, in full disclosure, I am a city planner by training. Uh, I was a part of the West Area planning process until October of 2022. Uh, I worked on the project as a project manager from its inception. Uh, I am on speaking tonight as a private citizen uh, that is no longer uh, with the project or with the city. And I'm also in full disclosure, an associate uh, professor in community planning and development, or excuse me, <laughs> at uh, the University of Colorado Denver in the College of Architecture and Planning. Uh, the other Eugenes are some uh, students of mine uh, observing this uh, planning board. Uh, Chair Noble, thank you very much. Uh, other members of the planning board, thank you. Uh, former colleagues as well, thank you very much. I'm really excited to see the West Area Plan get to this point. Uh, we had, or this process had a, a great uh, amount of engagement and participation and guidance from our council president Torres, council member uh, Sandoval, uh, council member Clark. Uh, this brought the community together as you've heard others testify so far this evening. I'm really proud of the time that our team and our staff and our sub consultants in the community put into this process. We were disrupted by COVID, yet this group of dedicated residents continued through this process to represent their community and their community's needs. It's de demonstrated by the elevation of quality of life. That came directly from the input and guidance of the stakeholders. Looking for ways to support gentle density uh, so that the community isn't wholly disrupted is why this plan contains some of the recommendations that it does to really truly channel growth and development towards those areas within these six neighborhoods that can handle it. Places uh, with uh, ample transit, uh, our corridors where services are available and really is a way to help protect those lower scale, lower density parts of the community that were quite frankly, really concerned about what this planning process would do. What would it do to their communities? How might this be disruptive? But I would say that through a really truly meaningful, intentional, equitable and engaged process, we were able to as best we could, or as this plan does, I should say, um, represent the, the wishes, the desires, and the needs of these six neighborhoods. As someone who uh, uses the trail system, I have the privilege of going through these neighborhoods. I get to see uh, how this part of our city is growing and developing. And I think that this plan does an amazing job of balancing priorities. Not everyone is getting everything that they asked for, but thinking about the whole, thinking about what is best for these communities to help respond and reflect the decades of diversity, the richness of these neighborhoods. In fact, as many of you may know, we heard from residents whose uh, family come from 
this area before it was a part of the United States. And so representing and reflecting everyone's time and attention, dedication to this process, I think is reflected in this plan. I, I implore and, um, and applaud everyone involved and ask that the planning board truly move this on to the next step, because I do think that it sets a great example of what can be done when community comes together and works in tandem with the city. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the next speakers we have signed up are Steve Ferris, Elizabeth Walsh, and Renee Martinez-Stone. If your name hasn't been called, uh, after Renee, we'll just ask one more time the people to raise their hands so everyone can be heard. Next, uh, Steve Ferris. And I know Steve was on earlier tonight because I saw his name, but I don't see him here now. Uh, Steve, if you're here under a different name, just raise your hand. We'll move to Elizabeth Walsh. Greetings. My name is Elizabeth Walsh. I currently live at 17 Front Street in Schenectady, New York. For the past four years, from 2018 through 2022, I have been actively engaged as a resident of the West Colfax neighborhood, residing with my family at 1339 Stewart Street. I grew to love my neighborhood and neighbors and quickly became aware of the immense challenges we faced, particularly around gentrification, food insecurity, and the hazards of a car-dominated environment. From this place of neighborly love and concern, I'm here today to speak to my support for the West Area Plan and its innovative approach to equitable development with a long view towards addressing the challenges posed by climate change and gentrification alike. I've already expressed my strong support for this plan with my West Area neighborhoods, neighbors on the steering committee. In my remarks today, I focus primarily on my own story of why even after I've moved across the country, I'm here today to speak in solidarity with my neighbors. Working together with our fantastic CBT, CPD staff, we have done our best to advance an integrated approach to equitable development that puts quality of life front and center. To achieve climate resilient communities, we need integrated community engaged approaches to urban design and planning that support equitable transit oriented development. The West Area Plan is one step forward in this process. It is a beginning. About my story. Soon after my arrival in West Colfax, my neighbor Jessica Dominguez recruited me to join the West Colfax Association of Neighbors, RRNL. As president of WeCan, she worked tirelessly to fight gentrification and school closures in our neighborhood. As a public school teacher, she witnessed the impact of the housing crisis on her students. Displacement is traumatic. The problem was so severe that she took a sabbatical from teaching to learn all she could about affordable housing. Upon joining WeCan, I quickly was so quickly impressed by the deep commitment of our entire RNO to equity and sustainability alike. I jumped in enthusiastically to chair the Sustainable Neighborhoods Committee and soon began meeting regularly with my neighbors. In this capacity, I became actively involved in the Sun Valley Food Access Collaborative and later the Food and Communities Program. West Colfax and most other West Denver neighborhoods exist in a food desert. Diverse neighbors and other stakeholders came together to explore strategies to address these threats. I also began to represent West Colfax on the West Denver Renaissance Collaborative Community Leadership Committee and on the West Area Plan Steering Committee. In 2021, I joined Yvonne and Adriana Lopez as a co-founder of the Valverde Movement Project. I mention these details about my own story because such labor of love is not unique, but often invisible and always essential to effective outcomes. 
I'm humbled by the degree of commitment and the spirit of collaboration of my neighbors, especially those on the steering committee who have lived here much longer than me with deep and wide relationships in the community. This is ultimately the basis of a resilient community and the heart of equitable development and plants that don't just sit on shelves and gather dust. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next, Renee Martinez-Stone. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, good evening, Planning Board. Um, I'm Renee Martinez-Stone, the Director of the Planning and Data Department at the Denver Housing Authority. Um, also direct the Westover Renaissance Collaborative and we're located at 1035 Osage. I'm speaking in support of this plan this evening. I wanna thank Councilwoman Torres and Councilwoman Sandoval. I also wanna thank CPD staff who listened, cared, dived into areas not included in the NPI framework. Um, they forged solutions, studies, and had responsiveness and solutions that are just unparalleled in any current neighborhood plans. I sincerely want to acknowledge the steering committee who worked tirelessly the last three years, valuing the broad and diverse needs of their neighborhoods, always valuing that there were voices who could not be around the table, who could not debate some of the issues that they um, dived into. They learned, they listened, they comp compromised, and they created balanced solutions. They spent more hours than they ever could have imagined to spend, and they forged truly contextually based solutions specifically on density. It is an honor to work with all involved with the plan guidance that is centered on residents, their future, and the quality of life. I look forward to implementing this with everyone involved. I urge planning board to support this plan and thank you for your time tonight. Thank you very much. I'm looking and I don't see Lori Evans, Jessica Abel, or Steve Ferris online who we called earlier. If you have appeared and you just happen to not be under your name, please use the raise hand feature. And I should say that uh, we have a few folks joined by phone. If you would like to speak and you've joined by phone, please use star nine uh, to indicate that you want to speak. Uh, I'm looking now for hands for folks who were not called on but do want to speak. And the first that one that I see is Jean Granville. Hello, thank you. My name is Jean Granville and I'm the president of the Sun Valley Community Coalition, which is the registered neighborhood organization. And I've come before you on numerous instances because Sun Valley, unlike um, the other neighborhoods in this uh, West Area plan has had the benefit of actually being in a state of transformation. And I'm hoping that other neighborhood, the other neighborhoods will also be able to achieve some of the dreams uh, that they have, similar to how we are starting to achieve them in Sun Valley. Um, I am speaking to you today, though, as a member of the steering committee and as a member of the Quality of Life Working Group. As this moves forward, hopefully today, uh, the Sun Valley Community Coalition will take a neighborhood position and present it to uh, City Council. That's just what we do. And however, I just did want to really make a comment that I fully support this plan 
I think it's a good plan. It's not perfect. It's certainly only a start to framing a more equitable vision for the six West area neighborhoods. It is a longer than most plans, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done to repair past harms and build a future that is welcoming and inclusive to new opportunities without displacing those residents and small businesses that have invested years and sometimes generations in living in and serving these communities. Another item I would like to bring up in addition to the quality of life focus that's been integrated uh, throughout is, is we really wanted to make this a document, not just for the planning board, but a document to be used by the community. So the implementation section becomes very important to us. We really wanted to create a document that referenced the multiple plans and numerous task force and planning efforts to which we have all been contributing over these past many years and an implementation matrix on page 278 that delineates progress matrices, policies that will be needed to advance recommendations and the city agencies responsible for assisting us in that process. So I really do support and thank deeply um, my colleagues that served on the, the steering committee um, and quality of life committee. Um, it's been such an honor to get to know the unique needs of the neighborhood and also to thank very deeply our city council representatives and the planning department who really listened and helped support uh, this plan to become what it is being pre presented to you today. So thank you so much and I'm deeply honored to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I am looking for additional hands for people who haven't spoke but would like to. And I see Alicia Hammett. Hi, good evening. My name is Alicia Hammett. I'm an urban planner with ShopWorks Architecture, 301 West 45th Avenue here in Denver. Uh, we are an architecture and planning firm that focuses exclusively on affordable housing, permanent supportive housing, shelters, and buildings for nonprofits. I'm speaking in support of the adoption of the West Area Plan. The plan does a good job of acknowledging and addressing the need for expanding affordable housing in the city. This plan focuses density along the West Colfax corridor and other community corridors, which is so important regarding focusing density in areas with strong transit options that will help alleviate the affordable housing crisis and marry housing with truly affordable living. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, there's a number of people on the call we haven't heard from. If any of you are here to speak, if you'd uh, use the raise hand feature and we'll get you during this public comment period. If you're on the phone, that's star nine. I'm not seeing any other hands up. So we will move to questions from the planning board to uh, staff, the council sponsors, uh, or any of the people who've spoken tonight. Any questions from planning board members? Yes, Caitlin. Caitlin, you're up. All right, can you hear me? Yes. Great, I just switched to my headphones because I don't think you wanna all hear my children in the background. <laughs> uh, so a couple of, of questions um, is, um, 
Let's see, let me get to my list. Um, I, I was just going to raise the question uh, that uh, one of the speakers, Alden, I believe his name was, was asking to just see if a staff member could answer his questions around the nine, I, I believe the 900 block of Grove. Yeah, and I can try to answer that question. I kind of looked a little bit more into the detail of that area. And it does, it seems like it's, I, I would, I think we're going to have to take a deeper look at it, but just quickly, I think it's in regards to kind of the node on the like federal and eight and creating that transition into the neighborhoods. But I, I think we will have to take a closer look and more specific details into that block. Thank you. Um, yeah, if you could, I'm sure, just follow up off, offline. Um, uh, I, I wanted to go back to a piece from the staff presentation. Um, and thank you so very much for the presentation on kind of talking about the differences from the last time we saw this in January. I thought that was very, very helpful for me, um, particularly when it comes to the mapping and the much closer look at um, the recommendations within Blueprint Denver around um, mapping density, transit, and the um, kind of the revisions and revisiting of the map that you all did. Um, and I think, um, I guess my question that I really wanted to be clear on is, um, in, in doing that, I think there were concerns in January that there was a lot of inconsistency with some of the recommendations in Blueprint around um, what I'll call the, the base height guidance map. Um, it sounds like you've done a lot more, you know, mapping comparison on what Blueprint was recommending to, to kind of carry it through. Are there any, so I guess one, please confirm that, and then two, um, to the extent that there are still departures from um, uh, heights that Blueprint had recommended, could you kind of dig into those in particular a little bit more for me? I can start answering that. And if you, if I missed anything, Corlin, please chime in. But yes, I think as we outlined on the presentation, the the bigger kind of changes that were made were along the corridors in order to kind of address some of those concerns. But keeping in mind that strategy that I think was brought in by a lot of the people that spoke regarding the specific areas where density might be more appropriate, that being the corridors and that intentional strategy around a a kind of concentrating some of the density along the West Line corridor, mostly around the stations and then transitioning out. And I think the bigger difference that might be in regards with Blueprint might be those uh, maybe final changes that we presented along the corridors. And there's some other areas like more, like very maybe parcel specific, but I think the bigger strategy might be that one, that it's in, in a little bit more uh, different than Blueprint. And different, just maybe higher and lower, but um, mm -hmm. different. 
yeah, as, as far as recommended heights go? Yeah, I think the strategy, as I think we mentioned before, was intentionally kind of addressing the density in some areas where it was high, in, in some areas where it was low, but concentrating around the nodes. And then in some places that transition created some height increases maybe. And in some areas that transition created some height decreases. Okay, thank you. Um, and then I guess this is a question. It'll probably also be a comment, but um, when we had this informational presentation in January, um, I think one of the areas we spent a lot of time talking about is whether you should include a future height guidance with incentives map or not. Um, and I think, um, I don't know that there was full consensus across the board. Um, I was of the opinion that the map should not be included, but that certainly a discussion of EHA and calling out that incentives are available and maybe, and I appreciate kind of the link, if you, the link that was added here. And I think the discussion of EHA is great. Um, and then the link so that they can drill down on the EHA map is great. I, I'm just curious from a planning side, why, um, why did you all choose to continue to include the future height guidance with incentives map? Because I think it will be precedent setting um, for, for future uh, neighborhood plans. Yeah, we um, we wrestled with that one a lot. I think the direction from the planning board in January, you know, there were definitely some members of the board that expressed that opinion. We didn't feel like we had clear direction that the board said don't include it. Um, and we had previously identified that as what we thought was our new best practice um, for how we should approach this. Um, the previous draft of the West Area Plan tried to do it all in one map and it created a lot of confusion uh, because the map didn't show uh, what was intended to be a base entitlement versus an incentive. You had to kind of figure it out by your familiarity with the zoning code, you know, which tends to go three, five, eight. So if you're seeing it recommending four or seven, then that was sort of your clue to it being, uh, you know, reflecting an EHA incentive. Um, and you know, unless you know the zoning code inside and out, you wouldn't pick up on that. Um, and so we identified uh, the two map approach as a better solution for um, clarifying that and making sure that people weren't getting confused about what was intended to be a base entitlement through zoning versus something that might be achieved if somebody went above and beyond, you know, affordable housing requirements. Um, and that, that was presented to the planning board um, at your retreat uh, and it was like, currently it's the best idea that we have um, to sort of balance the need for certainty, <laughs> uh, but also to not be um, lacking in transparency to the public who won't know if we only do the base height uh, map only that, that five could be seven if someone took advantage of the incentives. And so I guess absent uh, a better solution, um, this is our current best practice. Uh, and it's what we think we're using moving forward for MPI plans unless, unless some better solution is identified in the future. Thanks, that's it for my questions, Joel. Thank you, Gosha. Yes, thank you. Um, thank you for the presentation and all the work that went into this plan and thank you for all the comments. Um, I have some questions. I, I really appreciate incorporating the 
um, high injury network and vision zero elements into the plan. I think it strengthens the message around uh, traffic safety. Um, while I was reading the plan, I didn't see much discussion about personal safety relative to trails and the greenways. I really appreciate acknowledgement of um, the gulches and river and opportunities and challenges it presents. Um, I didn't, again, see much discussion regarding personal safety. And um, I use those trails a lot. I live on the west side. I, as a, you know, as a female runner, I'm often, often concerned with safety. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Was there discussion yeah. or there a recommendation regarding um, yeah, um, trails? We do, I think where we really address that is um, at least one part of the plan we address that is in recommendation Q22 in the quality of life section, um, community safety and security. And one of the main um, rec parts of that recommendation is about increasing uh, pedestrian lighting solutions, including along the trails. So right now um, that's what we have and there might be other areas that I'd have to look into. Yeah, I, I think you know when I when I think about it, um, the the overgrown vegetation is kind of a concern. Places to hide, um, you know, um, challenges related to visibility. So that that's just a comment, and probably a small um, small element that hopefully can be incorporated into implementation strategies. Um, I also have a question regarding. Uh, inclusive process. I think, you know, the three years process um, as demonstrated was definitely exhaustive. Um, but we have heard some concerns for public comments and um, both, both now and during the prior hearing about how inclusive the process was. Can you give me specific examples of how different points of views were expressed and considered and included in a conversation? and where maybe there was a conflict and how the conflict was resolved? Uh, well, I guess that the example that comes to mind um, it most recently was, you know, the guidance that we got from uh, the planning board at the info item. Um, you know, I'll, just to summarize it briefly, it was a, there was concern expressed that we may have lowered from Blueprint Denver in too many places too much and uh, planning board questioning whether the plan, you know, would be found consistent with Blueprint if that persisted. Um, and, you know, what we uh, had brought forward in that previous draft was an outcome of, you know, our process working with all stakeholders um, not just the steering committee, you know, public input as well. Um, many people pushing for more density as well and trying to find the balance point uh, between those things that led us to that draft. And we had to go back with not too much time left, you know, over the past month, um, come up with, you know, the, the corridor um, proposal that was tied to transit, density increases on transit revisiting some of the public input um, from our earlier surveys, uh, identifying that that was a preferred location for increases in density and sort of being faced with uh, the planning board guidance that we should try to find 
more opportunities uh, to increase it so that we're actually not lowering from blueprint um, as much as that previous draft was. And that wasn't necessarily something that all stakeholders you know, wanted to hear, <laughs> right? Um, but we found the balance point um, with this recommendation and the, the proper you know, um, planning logic to tie it to with access to transit um, and tried really hard to be reflective of that logic. And so the end result uh, is, um, you know, the corridors uh, densities are quite a bit uh, higher than they were in the previous draft, uh, but steering committee members and others are still coming and saying that they support the plan. Um, I think that, you know, that's an example of how we're able to take in the diverse perspectives, still reach, you know, consensus through um, respecting, you know, the, the input that we're receiving and sort of directing it to the appropriate locations. All right, thank you. Um, and my last question is about implementation. I think like with many of our plans, I think that's the weakest component of the plan. Um, I don't see much specific strategies, funding sources, timelines, benchmarking. Um, so my question maybe is to um, Councilwoman Sandoval, actually, if she's still on a call um, because she spoke to how this plan will be helpful in implementing, advocating for improvement on the West side. I would love to hear some perspective of how that plan is actually actionable and how it can be implemented. Um, in a reasonable amount of time uh, within a li limited resources. I think you just hit the nail on the head, Gosha. Um, a reasonable amount of time with limited resources. So what these plans, in my personal opinion, what these plans do is they can call out recommendations for um, sidewalks improvements. They can call out recommendations for acquiring parkland. They can call out recommendations for how the built environment is along the South Platte River for the first time ever. And it can also um, call out what happens along Colfax. Colfax has shallow zone lots. So they're harder to redevelop in unlike other areas that have where our zoning code goes north south. The areas where um, you have corridors that go east west, they're more shallow. And so hopefully what we can do is we can stabilize the redevelopment within those corridors. Um, I'll defer to President Torres about the Knox area. I think that's really innovative, but those were those are the things that I will look at when um, working on our budget, which comes out in June. Usually we get a first draft. I look at our adopted plans and see how they align and where we can call out recommendations for planning improvements along our transportation corridors and in the, in the, built, in the land use environment, the built environment. President Torres, I'll defer to you. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for the um, comment, Gosha, because I think that came up um, all along the way. Um, when you look at some of these neighborhoods, I think one of the dynamics that we've seen when it, when it comes to not really having been able to kind of package what's the vision uh, for the, either individual or collective neighborhoods on the west side, not having been able to do that for a long time, this feels like the one bite at the apple. So there was a lot of interest in 
we, we don't want to miss something and not have it not exist in the plan. And so being there to talk about um, our uh, the CIP uh, planning that we do as um, the, the capital improvement projects um, planning that we do as individual offices, um, what projects start to cultivate into that uh, that listing, which which we pipeline every year, um, park improvements. Um, I think the South Platte River is going to be one that uh, will demand quite a bit of attention, um, even beyond uh, Sun Valley and Valverde. Um, but because of what what we can do uh, with incoming potential um, infrastructure investment and um, and the existing flood mitigation dollars that we've received for uh, for the South Platte, so there are ways that we can lift up a lot of the recommendations that folks have been talking about. Um, and other ways are it just, it really catalyzes a conversation for us about when we when we start to see density, whether it's along Alameda or federal, um, what becomes some of the conversations that we want to have there, whether it is about a grocer or um, walkable infrastructure and, uh, and start to really integrate those things into the plan. I'm thrilled at the potential for that because it even gives me things to add to a council work plan, um, which I can begin um, advocating for heavily on behalf of these neighborhoods. Thank you. Thank you. That's all the questions I had. Thank you. Uh, Cortland, I, I had a couple. Um, the first is on a mapping topic. Uh, Gosha, or I'm sorry, um, no, it wasn't Gosha. It was, oh, oh, things are jumping around on my screen, sorry. Uh, Caitlin had asked about the two maps. I, I certainly uh, agree with you that in November at our retreat, um, we talked about the need to be transparent. And now that EHA had passed, what are the base heights versus what could be done? And it may be only a small percentage of projects that go for the incentive heights. So I, I see what you've done there. Um, I think the the feedback last month was coming from a place of um, being concerned that um, not because there are two maps, not because we're transparent, but just the whole feedback process on um, what could be if somebody takes advantage of those heights is um, may have played some role in, in the initial recommendations that were, weren't really consistent with um, directing growth where we're directing our good transit along federal West Colfax, uh, Alameda and so forth. So um, uh, I, I appreciate you uh, and your team taking a close look, not only at the consistency of Blueprint Denver uh, and Denver Moves Transit, where we're gonna invest in transit corridors, but also remaining tr true to that transparency. My question is having been through this uh, little loop here and working with the community the whole way through as the manager of NPI, is this still the approach you want to take on future plans? Is um, having the process and the discussions keep Blueprint and our growth strategy in mind while it's being refined and still having those two maps for transparency without a fear that that's going to um, distort the discussion? It's just, it's just simply going to be transparent. Yeah, I think that, um, well, first I'll mention that um, after we finish, um, you know, and adopt this plan and the next one, we're planning to do an NPI evaluation over the summer where we'll be wrestling with these types of questions. So I don't want to say too definitively that, yes, that's definitely the way to do it. I think we want to look at this experience 
um, uh, also, you know, in near Southeast, um, which will be wrapping up this spring as well, and see, is there a better way to have these conversations? Because I think the answer might be that there is, and we haven't identified it yet. But um, I'll also say that uh, what we're doing now and with the two height map approach is the, the current best practice. Um, that isn't to say there isn't a better one uh, that we couldn't identify by through thinking about it and looking at this experience and, and asking that question. But, but currently I think it, it, it is. Yeah, I, and, and, I, and I agree. I'll just make a comment here that I, I agree that transparency is really important. I got a little bit afraid that um, it was causing a, a, a discussion that um, was too hesitant, um, but um, I, I, I'm glad you're there. I, I hope it works out. And if we do something different, I hope we only do it because it's even better. Um, my next question is still on maps. We've just recently had two cases for rezonings here in other parts of the city where um, the site that was to be rezoned had a fairly recent area plan. One was the uh, the east area plan and one was the, the um, east central area plan. And in both cases, there was some building that didn't it exists on the ground. It had been there for a while, and it wasn't quite the same as what was around it. But the small area plan mapped the whole area with a broad brush. In the east area plan, it was this multi-unit uh, residential building, and it was near a bunch of single unit, and it all got painted with the same brush. So later, when that came in for a rezoning, um, for a, a minor you know, addition, it was inconsistent with this fairly recent plan guidance. Earlier tonight, we have this commercial building that was for you know, a collection of healthcare providers. And um, it was built for that purpose. It existed at the time the East Central Area Plan was done, but that plan kind of mapped that whole area uh, with kind of a broad brush of um, a residential land use. And um, so I can see why that applicant might have said, well, the only zoning I could apply for if I want to change zoning is a zoning consistent with that plan. I, I, my question is, I think what you told us earlier tonight in this item is your team has taken a closer look than any NPI plan has before at the land use recommendations in the plan versus what's actually on the ground. So we should see a lot less of that. So you should have caught more of these existing um, variety of things that exist and we're not adopting uh, plan guidance that's inconsistent with what exists. It's, it's future looking and to the degree the future is different than what's there now, it's intentional and we don't have these unintentional oddities. Am I, am I giving you credit for all the things I think you need credit for? Uh, yes, yeah, so we did. We did take a, a hard look at that. Um, we included it in our analysis. We compared it against um, zoning and what's on the ground because those are two different questions, right? Um, and you know, that's not to say that um, that maybe it won't pop up again. There may be something um, that we missed, but we did do uh, that analysis and we did uh, resolve. Um, all instances, I believe, where we where we found something where it seemed like it was inconsistent, then we made adjustments to make it consistent. Um, and I'll let Fernando chime in, I guess, as being the guy who did <laughs> most of that work. Yeah, no, I think you kind of capture it. I think yes, we we did those analysis 
And as Corla mentioned, again, zoning both like uses in order to be consistent and create that alignment and in terms of height and then existing structures and building as well. A lot of the uses we assume zoning was kind of that bucket that capture most of the existing uses, but we definitely did a lot of the more detailed analysis in terms of existing heights as also some community members mentioned, if there's density already in the area, if that ever redevelops, that would be a good spot for to keep that density there. So yes. Was that mostly height centric or did you also look at uses like multifamily versus single family or non-residential versus residential? Also uses. Fantastic. That's great. My final question has to do with our criteria around um, inclusive community process. Uh, I, I might have misunderstood something from your uh, presentation last month, Cortland. I, I left that with the impression that when the first draft, um, uh, the first full draft for community review, I think in the summer came out, um, it didn't really get a lot of community feedback. And so some of the feedback that came in with a second draft um, that hadn't been heard before, um, I, I was thinking it was because the community really didn't react to the first draft. But your presentation tonight showed there was a considerable amount of specific comments, not just hits on a website, but specific comments that were gathered on the first draft. Did I, did I misunderstand before that each draft did get a lot of community input? Uh, they did. I think the big difference was that that first draft um, you know, we had we had the flyering um, that went out alongside that draft, uh, but then um, some of the significant concerns that the steering committee raised about that draft that resulted in our working group process. Um, and so we did put a lot of focus on that process, but we left the draft was up and available for comment um, the whole time that we were working on it. So uh, it was open for, you know, half of the year, <laughs> right, until we had the new draft. Uh, which was, you know, up for a couple of months from about Halloween um, up through uh, just after New Year's. Um, so I think what you're seeing is a lot of comments on the second draft in, in a couple month period, you know, eight to 10 weeks, uh, whereas on the first draft where it was out for months, um, there was a longer period of time for a similar amount of input to um, be collected by the draft as it, you know, was open on the project page. Great. I'm, I'm glad they both got good engagement. Okay, uh, that's it for my questions. I'll look for any additional hands, and then we'll go for seconds. Any questions from my colleagues? All right, Gosha. Thank you. I missed one of my questions in my scribbled notes uh, in the last round. Um, it's about legislative rezonings. I see the plan recommends them. I wonder if there are any specific uh, legislative rezonings that are being planned in the pipeline already. Uh, yes, there there are some. Uh, some have already uh, been undertaken, right? So, um, you know, because our plan process was going on for a long time, one of them was going to be um, legislative rezoning for ADUs, um, and that ended up going uh, being sponsored by Councilwoman Torres, and then now also by Councilman Clark. 
um, to make sure that that's happening. That's already been imp implemented. Um, and so that was on the list. We do have uh, some other things on the list that we plan to bring forward as a legislative package, but we're going to wait until after the plan adoption before initiating those. So I think you would see that um, later this year. Um, and they're related to, there's um, a few uh, affordable housing uh, opportunities, um, uh, as well as uh, the downtown Barnum concept, where um, not all of that area has the right zoning to implement that. And so we're recommending going from, I think it's an, a current MX district to a Main Street district to try to get better um, outcomes on form, but also expanding it a little bit from um, the space that it currently occupies. So like physically increasing um, the, the size of the downtown area through legislative zoning. Council President you. Torres, you, you came off of your, uh, you turned on your camera. I didn't know if you wanted to add to that. Nothing to add. Cortman summarized it perfectly. Thank you. Okay, I don't see any other hands for questions from my colleagues. Are we ready to close the public hearing and deliberate? All right, the public hearing is closed. I would invite deliberation. Fred. Thank you. Uh, I, I wanna start by really acknowledging the responsiveness on the part of staff, community, and, and particularly the council members and council member Torres, I think in, in particular, to responding uh, so, quickly and effectively to the concerns that count, that planning board raised at the last meeting. And I, I bring that up because I think it um, so clearly reflects the deep level of engagement and the relationships and leadership of our electeds, of the steering committee, of CPD staff. And so I just wanted to express that appreciation because I think it's um, quite a quite a remarkable uh, amount of work happened in a very short amount of time, uh, and really did appreciate the responsiveness because I think planning board had some legitimate concerns vis-a-vis uh, -vis the the plan guidance that we have to consider this against. Um, land use is not everything, but it, it is so key to the work that planning board does. Uh, you know, if you've been watching tonight, you'll have seen just how critical that small area plan uh, land use guidance is in what we do and, and how carefully we consider it. Um, so I think that, that that piece of the criteria about, um, about deep community engagement is, is clearly happened. Uh, I think there's a, a, a lot of great stuff in this plan. I want to express, you know, my main concern, I think, still revolves around the length of the plan. And I, I want to elaborate on that a little bit because I think it's, I do think it's important. I think it's important as we think about going forward with other plans and, and with implementing this. I think there's that question which I saw raised in some of the comments about the accessibility of the plan to the broader community. And I think that that it, it's, it's easy when you've been deep in something for a couple of years to say, oh yeah, well, that's, that's tucked here, that's tucked there. Uh, and I, I worry that it's not necessarily as accessible to the people who haven't been so deep in it. I, I also just think that uh, I worry about some of those central recommendations getting lost in, in, the, in the sheer quantity. 
uh, it can be difficult for an outsider to read it and understand what the most important parts are. And I think it's key because I think there's also some really important uh, broader recommendations that come out of this. And, and that's something that I think we ought to discuss as we move forward with MPI. There are some recommendations that have come out of this process that we should be discussing at a broader citywide level, clearly. And I hope those don't get forgotten because they're tucked in a small area plan as opposed to being forefronted somewhere else. I, I think you know, deep in there, there's the recommendation of a zone, essentially a missing middle zone district. And I think that's such an important finding to come out of this and such an important recommendation. And it would be so unfortunate if that didn't come, if that got kind of forgotten, if that didn't come out. And so I think we ought to be talking a little bit about how we can make sure that the insight and insights that come from communities through these processes that aren't just localized uh, really get brought, uh, get a broader hearing in the long run. I, I just think that's so important. Uh, and, and we would, it, it would be almost a disrespect to the hard work that the community put into this if some of that didn't make, make it out to a broader discussion. Um, I wanted to comment just briefly on the EHA incentive height maps. Uh, I think the transparency of that is good. I do think it's important that we ought to include the proximity limitations related to the five-story base zone districts uh, in those maps. I know when I started doing some initial analysis when EHA was, was coming out and I was looking at areas that I knew well, I realized very quickly that in a lot of cases, those incentives uh, didn't provide a height incentive because of the proximity to protected districts. And I don't know if that's based on, a, that map is based on existing zonings or future places maps, but I, I think that including that in the analysis is, is important, both so that communities understand where those limitations are, but also so that we don't kind of overestimate the potential impact of EHA uh, as, we, as we think about density and we think about where that density can go. So uh, those are my main comments. Uh, my deep appreciation to staff, to the steering committee, and particularly to the leadership of the elected officials involved in this, who've clearly put a lot of work into this uh, and the, their leadership is, is much appreciated. Uh, I, I, I think there's a, absolutely, I have to support this, there's no question, uh, and we'll be doing so tonight. So thank you very much. Thank you, Angel. Yes, um, I will try to do this in 60 seconds um, so as not to belabor and repeat uh, a lot of what Fred has already shared. Um, thank you um, to um, the, the planning folks. Thank you to Cortland and um, Eugene and uh, everyone who has spent time on this. Um, I really appreciate um, that you took into consideration what was shared, the growth strategy, um, great engagement. Um, I um, loved the quality of life overlay and the, his, the, the narratives around historical inequity would really love to see how those are utilized 
Um, so would love updates on that and um, how those come into play. Um, one question I do have, and it may be for um, the planning folks, uh, when we see these small area plans, when they come across us, we we are told that they will update Blueprint Denver. Um, these recommendations update the plan, the um, Blueprint Denver plan. Um, I'm curious, how does how is that documented? Um, and for instance, um, similar to what Fred said, are there um, policy recommendations that are broad in scale that can be citywide? And if so, again, how are they documented and how do we consider them um, at this point? I don't know if you have a question, I'm sorry, the answer at this time, but um, I, I think it's a, it's a growing process. Each one seems to get better and, you know, then the one prior and you learn and incorporate new ideas. Um, so I wonder if anything rises to the level of um, actually updating Blueprint Dever. Just a thought. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, th I think we're into deliberation, so we won't take that as a question to them, but I think I can give a small answer. Um, page 167 in this plan shows where the land use guidance uh, is different than Blueprint Denver. It has all the heavy borders around it. So they literally update the Blueprint map with this. Um, that's the one thing that goes and updates that plan. Otherwise, these plan recommendations update Blueprint Denver only in the sense that this is a supplement. This document itself is a supplement to Blueprint okay. Denver. Thanks for that. Thank you. Mary Beth. Okay, I'm going to try this again. I hope that my audio is working is can everybody hear it's doing kind of the same thing if you speak up i'm sure it'll be fine the, the longer right. you talk the more it tails off <laughs> oh dear <laughs> okay well i just want to say that i just thought this was one of the loveliest plans i have read i just was very excited about the mobility recommendations um the high comfort bikeways the the green infrastructure that y'all talked about, um, honoring the cultural traditions and the history. Uh, interestingly, one I liked was the reuse of commercial property, particularly that property, which uh, is sort of a traditional architecture for the neighborhood. I just want to congratulate all of the people that were involved in this particular plan. I think it's one of the loveliest that I have seen that has come forward. And congratulations, everybody that worked so hard on this. Thank you. Thank you. And we heard all of that loud and clear. You did. You. Oh, good. <laughs> Melissa. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to, I'll try and be quick too, but really appreciate all of the work that went into this. I also appreciated um, the presentation outlining the changes since the last time CPD was here. That was super helpful because I know this is really dense. We went through a lot. It was really helpful to go over what's different, what changed. I also just want to acknowledge that that responsiveness um, and that willingness to work through real suggestions to get everybody to a place where they feel good about it and it's doing everything 
that it can for as many people as possible, I think is really, I think we heard a lot about it tonight. And I feel like I have seen that that is really how this process has gone. Um, and it shows in the kind of turnout that we got. This is not the kind of response that always comes to planning board for things like this. And um, hearing community members who can comfortably say that they didn't get everything that they wanted, but they still believe in this plan because of the way that all of these decisions were arrived at. I just want to like make sure that we don't let that go. That's a, that's a huge deal. That's a massive accomplishment, especially having done this through the pandemic um, to make everybody still feel connected, even if the makeup of the steering committee looks different now is, is amazing um, through that. So appreciate all the work. I know that I shared last time that I also have concerns about how long this is. I know how much work went into it and I don't want the length to make it hard to navigate or be a deterrent to anything that's in there, but really looking at it and hearing everyone talk about it. I also have to make sure that we acknowledge that this is the first time that these neighborhoods have really had an opportunity to say what they want to see in this area that includes all of the history that has their actual input and have it be in like a public city document that has to be used. So if like if ever there is a place for something to be too long and have too much context, like this is the one, <laughs> I will take it. Um, it is a different way to do this, but I think it's really important. Um, and I think it is important that not every neighborhood plan looks the same, not every you know area plan needs the same things not every place has the same history so to have that added context and protection and voice in this one I think is totally appropriate so really appreciate everyone's time and all of the work on this and excited to see it get to this point thank you Caitlin thank you um so uh, initially when I saw this on the agenda I was um, very frustrated because I incorrectly assumed we had this really, really robust discussion with a lot of feedback and comments from planning board in January. And we're seeing this again here already in February. There's no way that they've been able to actually go back and make those changes and they must have dismissed our comments. And I was um, delighted to see that my assumption was incorrect and that you all actually just worked very, very hard to turn a a revision to a plan in a really tight time frame. So I just wanted to say um, a thank you on that front to the hard work and thank you for um, incorporating those comments and being really thoughtful in the approach. Um, I will echo others on the concern on the plan length. I do appreciate the improvements that you called out around navigation and kind of using that, um, the links and the bookmarks, which I think will be helpful in the summaries. Um, I will say, I am of the opinion that we should not be including that future height guidance map on page 177. Um, I, I think for the reasons that, that Fred spoke to so well, um, I think that there are a lot of other components and we just don't know how EHA is going to play out and if it's actually going to be utilized as much, the incentives, I should say, as much as we think. And I think including it in a plan 
now um, where that is really intended to take that long-term view um, being one of our criteria, I think it, 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 that concerns me from a precedent standpoint. So I would encourage planning staff to kind of think on that one more over the summer as you reflect and review. And um, I do agree that the the change in how you were looking at it was a great improvement. And so I appreciated that explanation, Cortland. And I do agree that that was a really good step in the right direction um, to separate those um, so you could see the base um, the, the spot on. Um, I do really just want to acknowledge quickly the, um, the focus on environmental impacts and the role of the river, I think, is a really step forward in the plan. The historic injustices and present inequities section, uh, again, really important to um, spend the time on that for this community and to bring that forward in a plan. Um, you know, so I think that was just fantastic to see um, and a reflection of the, the community process, right? Uh, really appreciate the promotion and prioritization of bike and transit. Um, and how you've really oriented the plan towards quality of life, I think really responded to the feedback you heard from the community about their priorities there. Um, and so when you speak to criteria, I mean, I think doing those things and actually taking them a step forward from Comp Plan 2040 is, is really consistent with and taking, taking that step on those vision goals and strategies um, for our criteria. Uh, I wanna thank the people who spoke uh, today and provided written comments and you know the many, many, many comments you all received and just what a lengthy, robust process um, and to the criteria on inclusive plan and community process, you know, I'm sure that there were lessons learned here that continue to be implemented. Um, Jaime, for example, his comments about, about the process and contributions and the number of meetings that these community members attended was just incredible. Um, and so, and, and I also did want to um, call out the speaker that, that touched on the implementation recommendations at the end um, and how they appreciated that as a neighborhood, because you're right, that's where, you know, it makes it so it's not a plan that just sits on the shelf, the shelf. So um, calling out, you know, agencies that are responsible and that sort of thing. So um, thank you all for the work and I will be voting in support. Thank you, Jordan. Uh, a lot of what I uh, intend to say has, has been said in various ways by various people so far, so I will try not to take too much time. Uh, I, I want to, to commend everyone involved in this process in getting to this point. And you, uh, and by you, I mean the community members, the steering committee, stakeholders, and city staff, and, uh, and elected officials and others. This is probably one of the hardest plans, you know, to have gotten across the finish line because of process because of the time in which it was done, the pandemic, things like that. It was hard. It was probably grueling at times. But I think what you you accomplished here was, was really impressive. And I, I don't have to guess at that. And I don't have to use too much opinion on that because of the amount of support this plan has gotten tonight. Uh, generally, when we have uh, a large number of speakers, it, it it's either a mixed bag or we get a lot of uh, you know, concern and negative reactions. The fact that we not only didn't get those negative reactions here tonight, by and large, um, and in fact got you know some pretty intense uh, outpouring of support and even some some real uh, strong emotion, is a testament to to the work that that went into this. Testament to the feeling that people have towards it, and I think ultimately, uh, hopefully, the success it will have as guiding the neighborhood. 
Uh, I also want to uh, commend staff and the steering committee and the community for taking some uh, feedback just a month ago. Uh, that was probably that was not just small little text amendments or things like that. It was actually big, challenging concepts, and you know, making those changes in that amount of time. That's not only not easy, but uh, uh, it takes a lot of thought and 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 care. And I'm sure there was a lot of tough conversations in a short amount of time. So I think that's very impressive, and really appreciate you having heard our concerns and and actually uh, doing something with that. And hopefully, it does support the goals of the community in the end. Um, I do also want to say during our informational uh, item a month ago, we really zoomed in on the, the sort of the land use and the, the densities and the zoning, all that stuff. And I think we, it belied the fact that a lot of the other stuff in the plan was really good. Uh, we kind of harped on the stuff that we were really concerned with, but you know, that's sort of like the, the Yelp review process, right? You, you hear the complaints and you don't necessarily hear all the good things. Um, because people don't take the time to say that. So I, I want to take the time to say that a lot of the things in the plan uh, that we didn't harp on last time are in fact quite good. And I think some of the innovations I were mentioned before, you know, things like the approach to water, uh, the focus on the context and equity and the history of, of sort of, of, of challenges the community has seen over the years is really important and really well done. Uh, and I, I will end by saying, uh, I look forward to seeing how this is all actually implemented over the next few years. That's, that's no less of a challenge than creating the plan. And I think you guys are up to the task. So thank you all for your, all your work. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks, Joel. I uh, appreciate everyone's thoughtful comments this evening. Um, I just wanted to say that I, I personally really appreciate, um, the thoughtfulness of this plan and being both forward thinking while also acknowledging and being responsive to the past. I think that's uh, something that this plan gets really right uh, and I think is a great model for future plans. I did want to respond uh, to one person who had, had made a comment during the, the comment period um, Kathy Sandoval, I, I was one of the members who during our informational session talked about a need for action on equity issues, not just plan language. And that was really in uh, response to another item we had up that evening in Villa Park. And in looking at the Villa Park uh, neighborhood plan from 1991, I think it's really disappointing the number of um, forward thinking items that that uh, plan calls for from an equity standpoint that, you know, um, 30 years later have not been implemented. And so I echo what, what Jordan just said about um, a, a hope, just expressing a hope and direction to the city that dollars follow the words in this plan because all of it's great. And, and I think shows tremendous um, effort on behalf of CPD staff and on the part of the community, um, but a plan is only as good as it is implemented. And so um, I think it's critical in this part of our city uh, that dollars follow uh, some of the items um, that are called for in the plan, and I will be supporting. Thank you. Gosha. Yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, I'll echo everything that's been said already. Um, congratulations to everybody who worked on this plan. It was a tremendous undertaking. 
Um, yeah, first time we saw focus on history and equity as well as uh, water and greenways uh, in a way that it was incorporated into the plan. So um, definitely congratulations and a lot of appreciation for all the work that's being done. Um, I do wanna expand on my comment or question regarding implementation, because um, I have been doing this by this, I mean, community planning long enough to know that um, we tend to plan and not implement. And I almost wish that one of our criteria for uh, approval of the plan or recommendation for approval was um, implementation or how implementable specific um, how specific the implementation strategies are. I, I think this plan is with how long already it is. Um, it does lack specific benchmarking milestones, dates for specific uh, implementation strategies tied to funding sources. Um, that's on a public sector. I would also like to see a little more um, or any uh, really market studies relative to the private sector a component of implementation of the plan, specifically related to housing, um, downtown uh, Barnum development, affordable housing. I um, read article recently um, stating that in California, it costs about a million dollars to produce an affordable housing unit. Uh, that is largely due to uh, regulations and layering of, of various burdens, regulatory burdens. Um, I'm concerned, I mean, while I appreciate um, the recommendations in the plan, I am concerned also with consequences of all the energy design, design regulations, limiting development potential, um, historic preservation and um, regulations like that. Um, I would like to see a market study um, that kind of maybe calibrates the zoning, uh, especially relative to missing metal to see how many units is optimal to where um, the private sector will respond uh, by providing and actually producing these units. Um, some good case studies exist in Portland where there's incentive for affordable units in a low density um, zoning districts uh, worth looking into. Um, Memphis also reviews um, residential development out, up to six units under residential building code, which is much more restrict, much less restrictive, and therefore kind of encourages the production of the smaller infill development um, at the lower cost. So these are just some my some of my thoughts, and not all of it is relative to this plan specifically. Some of these considerations maybe should happen on the citywide scale, but. Um, I just cannot emphasize enough that um, implementation that is, is critical, that none of the, the plans are only as good as, as, as their implementation component. Um, but with all that said, I will be definitely supporting it tonight. And thank you for all the work that went into it. Thank you. Uh, that just leaves it to me. I'll first talk about the criteria and I won't belabor it. I think it meets all three criteria. Um, on inclusive community process, um, I, I think this plan was unique because it occurred during the pandemic, and one of the results of that was many, many more uh, continuing steering committee meetings uh, compared to relatively uh, quite a lot fewer um, broader community meetings 
Um, but I, I, I don't think that uh, argues against this meeting the criteria. It's been amply shown that a lot of work was done to reach out to the entire community. Um, and uh, I believe it meets that. Alignment with adopt adopted plans, we've talked about that. Um, thank you to staff for responsiveness to planning board uh, questions about consistency with blueprint on corridors in particular. Um, but this plan does what uh, our recent area plans have not done yet, but Blueprint Denver asks for. It's at Blueprint Denver asks that our NPI plans bring clarity on residential low and what, what residential low means and missing middle. And the text of this plan does that. Uh, and a careful reading of that shows that that's all in there. And this is uh, the first I've seen that does. So thank you. And uh, as always, uh, now that becomes the standard to evaluate all the next plans uh, by. They, they need to include that as well. And of course, this embodies uh, a long range vision. I wanna thank the community members uh, and the steering committee for your long work. You, you didn't necessarily know uh, all that you were signed up for when you signed up for this, um, but it's, it's vitally important. Let me say a few words about how a community uses the plan after it's approved and adopted. Uh, many of you in your public comments talked about needs to be, we need to get to implementation. It needs to not sit on the shelf. And you've heard that reflected back uh, from my colleagues as well. Uh, my perspective on this as a community member is really informed by what we did with the Curtis Park neighborhood plan in uh, 1989. Just before I moved to the neighborhood, that plan was completed. And um, a few years after moving into the neighborhood, I asked, well, how are we doing on the neighborhood plan? And they said, well, it's done. Well, they're not self-implementing. It was uh, it was approved by planning board. It was adopted by city council. It existed. But how are we doing on doing the things that it said? And so it became my goal to work with my neighborhood organization to start picking out the things that the plan called for that were ripe, that were ready to work on and work on them. And we could hold up a document and say, planning board approved this, city council adopted it, this recommendation, public works, as they were called at the time, parks and rec, whatever the department was, we need to work on this. It's already been agreed to. When can we get this into your work program? Uh, I agree that it would be great that the implementation matrix had dollars assigned to it and, and every department already knew when they're going to work on it and that they had funding for it. That's not exactly realistic. Uh, what it comes down to is you in the community. Yes, you've done all this hard work. Your reward is more hard work um, to hold up this plan and every department you go to in the city and all the related agencies around say, we have agreement on this. Planning board has approved it. City council has adopted it. Let's work on this and keep pushing forward. And if you've heard a lot of comments about the length of the plan. The plan is this long because you put in it all the things you needed to put in it. What I hear from my colleagues when they're talking about the length of the plan is just the concern that as new members come into your community to keep pushing forward on all the things that are in the plan to do, that um, they might have a hard time picking it up because it's a little daunting. So that becomes uh, something for you to help with as well as you bring more people into your community who are who have the time and interest to push forward on their piece that is interesting, orient them to this plan. 
show them how to use it and show them how to continuously remind the city uh, of all the great things that are in here. You've got great council members who are committed to implementing this plan. This plan will outlast these council members' terms. It's your plan in the community. Keep holding it up, keep orienting your next council members to it and keep pushing forward. Congratulations. Do we have a motion? Yes. Please. Oh. I move to recommend that city council approve the West Area Plan, the condition that the plan be edited for clarity and correctness, finding that the applicable review criteria have been met. We'll second. It's been moved by Melissa, seconded by Angel. Any discussion on the motion? We'll do a roll call vote. Angel? Aye. Caitlin? Aye. Fred? Aye. Gosha? Aye. Heidi? Oh, I'm sorry, Heidi left uh, prior to this item. Jordan? Aye. Mary Beth? Aye, aye. Melissa? Aye. Rachel? Aye. And I vote aye as well. Uh, that passes unanimously. This plan has been approved by the Denver Planning Board. We have taken two hours on this topic. We do have uh, one info item after this, but we will, and I know it's getting late, and I know you were really hoping you would get to eat CPD food, but we're from home. Uh, but let's regather in 10 minutes. Um, if we would turn off your cameras and turn them back when you are back, we will reconvene at 8. 37. It's a strange number. 837. See you on 10 minutes. Uh, we are all back. Uh, Mary Beth Sussman needed to leave, so we are ready for the next info item. We'll hand it over to Brad Johnson, who's going to tell us about the Outdoor Places program. Yeah, thanks for hanging in there, guys. Um, and Jay Decker, hello, Jay. Yeah, and Jay is here as well. And so I'm Brad Johnson. I'm a planner and urban designer in uh, CPD. And I am the project manager for the Outdoor Places program for, for CPD, which is a project being co-led by CPD and Dottie. And so um, I'll now let Jay introduce, and then he's going to handle the first part of this, this slide deck, and then I'll do the second part. Hey, good evening, everyone. Um, I work at Dottie, so I don't come to the planning board very often. I just have to say I have a newfound appreciation for you all. Um, it's, it's very thorough, and you, you've done a great job. So happy to close you out. I imagine there's a screen share coming. I'm working on it. All right. Yeah. Are, are you seeing anything there yet? We're seeing yeah. it. It's not in presentation mode yet, but. No. No, it's still the regular mode. Hmm. All right. Let me try it this way. Now, do you got it? Oh, that's perfect. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, well, I'll start us off here and then um, hand over to me to this to my colleague, Brad. Uh, but today we're going to talk about the Denver Outdoor Places program. We're going to give you a quick overview of uh, what Dottie has been working on and will be working on. Um, but then Brad will, will actually take you through the planning board specific items related to zoning. 
So, you know, just going a couple of years back, um, you know, back in May 2020, um, during the height of the pandemic, and, um, you know, a lot of the restaurant capacity or just restrictions that the state put out, um, the city actually moved uh, to actually have um, regulatory relief for patios in the right of way. And so we were actually able to, uh, I think it was about a month, um, all kinds of different city agencies came together and basically created this new permit um, called the Temporary Outdoor Expansion Program. Uh, it's been many, many years um, going on this, and um, they've been incredibly well received thus far. Um, it's been kind of an interesting process over the last few years is that um, as things have gotten more back to normal, um, we've actually have seen a, a large reduction in the number of patios permitted. I think at one point it was you know, around 350 or so, and I think right now we're closer to the 100 mark. Um, so really the ones that have remained in Denver are the ones that are really well loved and used for the most part. Um, so we're starting to really see the, the impact of the city and what it can do in the longer term. Next slide, please. Uh, you know, and but really, you know, while we had the temporary program, it was great. Um, we know that, um, you know, ultimately there was things to change and we wanted to make it permanent. Um, so we worked with the mayor um, who advised us to create the Outdoor Places program, which is the new formal permanent program, uh, October 2021. And we've been working diligently on it ever since. Uh, officially, last October is when the temporary outdoor expansion permits expired. Um, but any active um, uh, participant or patio that had one of those permits were permitted to continue during a transition period while the city needed a little bit more time to figure out uh, the different specifics of the permitting process. Uh, and that gets us to the project scope for outdoor places. And so it's, it's very, uh, it's incredibly varied, uh, covers uh, many different departments. Uh, and really what we're looking at here is, you know, what are some of the uses that we can use in the right of way in private property uh, to make sure that we learn from our peer cities, because while this is relatively new for us, um, it's relatively new for uh, tens of hundreds of cities across America that have experimented with this and are making it permanent. So it's really important that we learn with our partners in this uh, so we're not out there reinventing the wheel with ourselves. Uh, also for this one and why it's co-representative here is it includes the right-of-way and private property. Uh, and we really wanted to make sure that um, we had a lot of outreach with the community and also key stakeholders um, because we were not able to do that at the time of creating the temporary program. Uh, and we do expect the full program to be uh, enacted and in place by the summer. As far as uh, kind of what we're talking about here, the different types of patios, uh, an easy way to think about this are breaking it down into three different typologies. Uh, so we've got the two that are within the right of way. So that would be above curb, uh, which is really just dotted language to mean anything at the sidewalk level. And then you have below curb, which is split between um, on-street parking, so any patios and formerly vehicle parking spaces, and full street closures. Um, uh, which we do have a few. And then finally, in the one, again, we're going to talk about the most today is uh, private property, which uh, is not governed by Dottie. And so that's where CBD and yourselves um, are going to be advising us there. As far as um, why we focused on above curb first, 
Uh, you know, it's twofold. The first one was uh, the majority of the existing patios are actually on the above curb level, that sidewalk level. So we knew by addressing that first, um, we can kind of get the most bang for our buck there. Um, and then also um, Dottie actually had what we, what we call the table chairs and railing program prior to the pandemic. You may have dined at one. Here's a couple of photos of them. Um, it was really restricted, um, a little bit unpredictable review process, uh, and it was kind of difficult to navigate and it required some um, added cost and infrastructure, which would be the rail uh, actually adjacent to the business. So we were able to build on that and improve upon it based on what we learned during the temporary program. As far as what we've been able to come up with for above curb, um, so this is set to release here in a couple weeks. Uh, and really what we're looking at here is the prior photos and the top right photo is a good example of this, is that in the table chairs and railings program prior to uh, the temporary program and now the permanent program, uh, outdoor seating had to be immediately adjacent to business and it had to be um, almost 100% confined within a railing. Um, so obviously we had a few of those in Denver, but it's more restrictive, um, so it was difficult to do. Uh, but thankfully, um, through us being able to experiment and, and understand these things with businesses and how communities operated with them, uh, we were able to learn that, you know, we don't have to do it that way. We're going to still offer that ability, uh, but we're also going to offer the ability to have um, uh, the middle one, like we'd say, open to par, so it's not 100% combined within a space. Uh, and then also uh, situations where it's just 100% open kind of cafe seating, as you can see in the bottom left there. A lot of time and attention was paid to what we would call the PAR, so the pedestrian access route, making sure mobility was a massive concern here and something that we wanted to get right, but still maintain flexibility for businesses to have that cafe style seating. Uh, and so these are just kind of some additional details, a couple extra uh, graphics of what potentially um, you know, we could see in Denver here starting soon. Uh, a big part of this, like I said, was, was maintaining the pedestrian access route. Um, and one big difference between TCR and this uh, is with the previous table chairs and railings program, uh, Dottie mandated a five foot width par. And so um, where we can make it happen, we're actually going to be increasing that to six feet. Um, so this new program will actually make it easier and better uh, mobility wise and accessibility wise. And then there's other things, um, you know, it really depends on where the patio is located as far as what could be accomplished. And so uh, paying attention to uh, entries and exit ways um, where there's parking allowed, signs, trees, uh, vehicle conflicts, things like that um, is kind of a choose your own adventure based on um, what's out in front of your business if you want to go this route. And then uh, last, but um, certainly not least, is that we were able to streamline the review process. Like I said before, it was complicated, a bit arduous. Uh, and there wasn't really a clear hierarchy of who approved these and, and how we got them done. Um, so we were able to work um, with more agencies. Um, so we actually had more people involved. So you would think there'd be more red tape, um, but we were able, actually able to streamline and we are formalizing this uh, in a MOU between the different agencies. So it will be a much uh, cleaner and easier navigation process. Uh, and then also really importantly, CBD hired a program administrator to be a singular point of contact and to help you navigate through the different permits that you may be requesting uh, from Dottie, Fire, 
you know, um, through the building permit, variety of those issues, he, uh, one singular person will be able to guide you through that process. So it should be much more user-friendly now. Uh, and like I said, um, we're actually going to begin accepting applications here really soon. Uh, and we do expect that all of the existing um, patios at the above curb level that have a current tow permit will be transitioning into this new outdoor places above curb typology. Uh, it probably all be done by late summer. Um, it really kind of just depends on the complexity of some of these and how long it will take to get their individual permit out. Uh, and then uh, one other topic that Dottie wanted to talk about today is um, we've done about half the work on below curb. Uh, so we are starting um, uh, uh, parking, uh, the patios and parking lanes here probably uh, within the next few weeks. Um, but before then, we actually uh, established and codified and adopted a policy around uh, full street closure pilots. Uh, so currently in Denver, there are five active street closures through the temporary outdoor expansion program. They all have the ability to apply um, and potentially be approved um, for a pilot permit under outdoor places program. And essentially um, there's a lot of details uh, related to this around safety and accessibility and design um, and public space versus private space. And um, we could certainly be here a lot longer, but really the idea behind this is that if these street closures are approved to um, join the pilot program, um, they will be able to renew every year. And then after the end of five years, um, with the data that the city and the businesses collect, um, we will uh, work as a city to then make a decision if the pilot should graduate to permanent status uh, and be permanently removed from Denver's transportation network um, and, and be turned into something else entirely. All right, thanks, Jay. Thanks. Move us on to the next typology, which is private property. So during the pandemic, um, we, through uh, an ordinance of city council and emergency order, uh, authorized the zoning administrator to um, issue a temporary use order, which allowed <clears throat> very little oversight for uh, patio expansions on private property. Uh, given the crisis that we were in at that time, and that uh, order expires in December 2023. Um, the biggest relief that was provided for private property is that all those off-street required parking spaces were essentially forgotten about during the pandemic, and we allowed businesses like the one in this photo, Cherry Cricket and Cherry Creek, to uh, expand outdoor seating onto otherwise what would have been required off-street parking spaces. And so I just wanna talk about a few things here, um, just some high level intent that we're kind of using as a baseline for the work that we're doing right now. Um, some preliminary zoning concepts I wanna share with you guys to get your, your feedback on. And then some thoughts about how we might be able to through some regulatory structures and even incentives um, try to uh, facilitate higher quality design, um, encourage patios that activate our streets in a, a really beneficial way, uh, and how we can in integrate administrative flexibility uh, into this program. So just at an objective level, um, the two big ones, starting with economic development and business support, a lot of this was about business support, obviously during the pandemic, and it will be going forward. And so that's showing up in a few different ways. One is we wanna see 
about potentially opening up, opening up options for patios for more business types. Um, looking at opportunities to streamline the review process and really importantly, looking at opportunities to increase design flexibility and options for how business might uh, set up a patio on their property. Uh, the next one, placemaking and neighborhood integration. We wanna to continue to make sure that we are uh, ensuring that patios are fitting in with neighborhoods and uh, sensitively when, when they're near residential and other sensitive uses like that. Um, and we think there's really an opportunity here to push for patio design and encourage patio design that's really additive uh, beyond its own boundaries into our streets, our neighborhoods, and so on. Um, while doing that and, and trying to increase flexibility, we want to keep an eye on safety and make sure that we're looking out for conflicts between patio and a patio and a pedestrian sidewalk spaces, uh, vehicle parking areas, things like that that could be problematic. So we've, well, we're, we're kind of at a strategy phase right now. We've got some initial ideas. Uh, and the first one I'll start with is, is a land use idea. So uh, right now in the zoning code, uh, patios are permitted as an accessory use only to primary eating and drinking establishments like restaurants or bars. Uh, and we think there's an opportunity actually to expand the uh, access to a patio via changes in the zoning code to other businesses um, that can both help the businesses, but also, also create life on our streets and activate our streets uh, in much the way that a, a uh, patio for, for a restaurant does. So just as an example, we've got a tattoo shop showing in this picture on the top. Uh, they had a little patio out along the sidewalk that was kind of a waiting area for customers little umbrella out there adding some visual interest to the street fitting in pretty well along with other eating and drinking establishments that had patios uh, along this block and recently unfortunately well I guess in my opinion unfortunately we had to um, force that patio to, to be taken out um, just because we didn't have a zoning path to allow it and so what this recommendation would look at doing is tweaking the zoning code in a way that we would open up a patio um, path for for many more non-residential uses than just eating and drinking establishments. The second is about the review process. So um, currently, if you are uh, a patio that is, if you are proposing a patio that's within 50 feet of a protected zone district, so you guys probably know this, but I'll say it for anybody watching, uh, that is essentially a low residential zone district, like a single unit district or a two unit or duplex um, type district. If you're within 50 feet of a district like that, then you have to um, you have to meet the a zoning permit with special exception review process, meaning that you have to actually um, go to a public hearing at the zoning board of adjustment, and at that hearing they will decide whether you are able to be approved and if any conditions should be placed upon. Uh, the design or placement or other mitigations that might be placed upon your patio. Um, even though you do that process and Zoning Board of Adjustment um, ultimately decides, you still have to come in through CPD. You have to do a pre-application. CPD does a review and makes recommendations and does a lot of work. There's notification and all that before you even get to the Board of Adjustment. So we wanted to see if that was maybe an opportunity to 
um, streamlined. So I did some reaching out to Austin Keithler of the Zoning Board of Adjustment, and he helped me to look at some data um, about these uh, ZIPC or, or uh, BOA cases that had come before the board. And so he first let me know that only 20 cases uh, like this have come before the board in the last five years. Um, of those cases, only one patio was just flat out denied. Uh, and that particular denial was also uh, in line with the recommendation of CPD. There were a few that were withdrawn, um, but by and large, um, almost all of them were approved and the conditions that have been placed on them um, were generally consistent um, between what CPD was recommending as conditions or uh, conditions of approval and what ultimately the Board of Adjustment um, codified as conditions of approval. And so given that alignment uh, and the lack of controversy with many of these cases, we think that there's an opportunity to change that ZIPC, that's short for that special exception review process with the BOA, from that process to what we call in zoning a ZPIN, you guys know, so that zoning permit with informational notice, uh, still requires notification of the neighbors, still requires a review um, considering the same criteria that we would consider, uh, that the board would consider, um, but ultimately does um, not require that public hearing with the Board of Adjustment and allows for CPD um, to approve a patio like that administratively. Here's one example in Council District 1 along uh, West 38th Avenue, Bodega. This is a small sandwich shop, closes at 4 o'clock p.m. Um, and uh, that is on a busy arterial, as you guys know, uh, West 38th Avenue. They, re they were required to get a zoning um, uh, to go to the BOA for approval. So that's an opportunity to consider. So then the next thing we're thinking about is design. And our strategy here, first, we wanted to step back and just do some urban design analysis. Think about the types of types of patios that might occur on private property. And so we started to develop some sub typologies of the private property patio type. The first being, I don't know if you guys can see my mouse, but the first being a type one, like a patio that's generally in the back of a lot, maybe isn't very visible from public streets or even public alleys possibly, um, is, is a little bit hidden and more really focused internally to the business itself. Oftentimes it's behind an allowed fence and to actually access a patio like that, you have to actually enter the business and then exit out to get, get to that outdoor space. So that's one type. Has very little impact on public space or public elements of a private property. The second we're calling for now internal. And so here you have a street, um, just a concept here to demonstrate uh, a patio that is open and very um, impactful to a public element of a, of a private property space. And so here we're suggesting like a paseo um, connecting onto the private property. That's why we call it internal, but that paseo is sort of flanking two different buildings, perhaps two different businesses. And so it does have an impact on users of that private property, but it doesn't really have an impact on as much anyway on uh, the actual public street or the sidewalk. And then the third type is this public oriented. So that's uh, a patio maybe that's placed and uh, immediately abutting, for example, the public street. And so that patio has a much bigger impact, not only on users of the site, but also people that are walking by um, that maybe don't have anything to do with that business. 
So just some visual kind of photo examples of that. On the left, this is Thin Man, East 17th Avenue. That's a patio that's in the back. This picture is taken um, from the alley. It's pretty cool how they set it up, even though it's not very visible. There is like kind of this tiny view in from the alley, but this would be an example of a uh, low visibility type one patio. The picture in the middle is Edgewater Market. So you're thinking of like a, a very big lot with multiple buildings on it. Um, has some important internal um, pathways that are publicly accessible. And here you have a patio flanking uh, one of those publicly accessible pathways, but this is hundreds of feet off of the public street. And then the third uh, is Marzix on East 17th Avenue. Avenue. You have um, a condition that's very much similar to what you described in the right of way, which is above curb. Um, this is actually on private property, but in, it has just as much impact as an above curb patio in the way that it abuts the public right of way, the sidewalk, and interfaces so directly. So, in terms of some initial ideas for how to take forward that thinking into um, incorporating more flexibility into the code, so just quickly. Um, we have a bunch of rules in there right now about patios on private property. They have to be contiguous to the primary use. They have to be delineated by some type of barrier or fence. Those delineation elements cannot exceed 42 inches in height. Um, if there's a detached cover like a pergola, those covers have to be 50% uh, open to the sky and those openings have to be evenly dispersed across the, the, the roof, if you will, of of a structure like that. They have to have an all-weather surface like concrete uh, and they're not allowed to displace any required parking. So we think some of those are worth keeping in the baseline zoning, but two of them that we definitely are looking at um, eliminating are the requirement that the patio be contiguous to the primary use. So this would allow, for example, a patio to be separated by a parking area or a public plaza from the primary use to which it is accessory. Um, the second one we want to look at is eliminating that delineation requirement and allowing an open condition um, like you see in the photo on the top of the slide. Um, that's, that's kind of going along the same lines as what we did with above curve where we sought to find um, more open conditions and we thought that they, they can be successful uh, and at the same time, they kind of lower the cost to entry for a business because you don't have to invest necessarily in a railing. Um, second, on design, we want to create significant flexibility for those type one patios. So those are those ones that are, are really less visible and less impact, impactful to um, public spaces or even public 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 ish elements on private property. Um, and to do so, you guys heard earlier, many hours ago, um, about um, some zoning changes under consideration around administrative adjustments. And so this is, this is a place where we think we can incorporate a new administrative adjustment for a patio that's more internal to a space to allow flexibility from many of the zoning um, design standards that would still remain in place if the zoning administrator can make a determination essentially that it is a type one patio um, in other words, that it is more internal to the business, isn't impactful to public ways and so on. And then the next thing is that we want to try to encourage um, high quality design. Uh, and, and we can talk about what that means in, in this context uh, in an optional design review path. And so I think that means creating some hopefully brief 
and streamlined um, design guidelines that can be used. And we have a few different ideas for how they could be used. First, just wanna mention some of the ideas for the um, topics that we might include in there. I'm really thinking if we go down this route that we wanna keep this really simple, straightforward, and um, something that is like 10 pages or less at most, and, and that including a lot of photographs and um, visuals. Um, but these are some of the topics that we might look at. Again, trying to think of how the patio can kind of expand its benefit beyond its own boundaries or the people that are inside it. How can it contribute to placemaking, the softening of our urban environment, creating visual interests along our streets and so on. Well, the first way we might be able to use design guidelines like this is in a voluntary way, just as a resource for businesses um, either to use on their own or for business we will have this program administrator in place under the Outdoor Places program. So if business wants to come in and seek guidance or consult with, with us, um, looking at those design guidelines together, we, we would have an option to do that in a very uh, voluntary way. Um, the second is kind of uh, a couple of parts to this. So um, even though we want to push for a lot of flexibility in the baseline zoning code, um, standards that we end up with here. We also know that through, through a lot of the analysis and research that we've done over the last three years is that patios are just really case by case. And it's just hard to regulate something like this and not prevent something, something cool, something great, something that's additive to our city. And so the way that we would go about this is we would create a path through the zoning code for administrative flexibility from whatever design standards are in there. Um, if, if an applicant wanted to seek that kind of administrative flexibility, um, they would be able to come in and basically say, yeah, we're not meeting the zoning code, um, but here's why our patio is still meeting the design intent in the zoning code, and here's how we meet the uh, outdoor places design guidelines for private property. And so we provide an optional path for flexibility provided that we undergo a, a streamlined design review and make sure that it's meeting um, the overarching intent of the zoning and these design guidelines that we would develop. One of the poster childs for this is uh, the Denver Art Museum. So the new addition there, they had uh, a patio space out there. At first it wasn't covered. Um, this kind of pergola structure, this metal structure wasn't there originally. They came in, they wanted to um, provide some shade to their, uh, uh, to the patio users here. And because of the kind of um, angled nature of these louvered, uh, louvered sort of roof structure, um, it wasn't 50% open to the sky. Um, so meaning you, you, you know, 50% uh, of that roof was They had to prove out a variance. They had to go to the Board of Adjustment and have a public hearing and all that stuff for a very well-designed, well-integrated patio, I think, that um, is subordinate to the architecture and really works with it very well um, and solved the problem where uniquely here, um, you had sun shining off of the glazing of this building, reflecting down and really burning up, frankly, the patio users underneath. So this, this element was critical to the success, success of this space. 
um, if we were to have this kind of element within this program, we could approve something like this administratively, provided that it met the, uh, met the design guidelines that we would have in place. And then the, the last element here is that we, we allowed basically a free for all for parking requirements during the pandemic. And we are trying to figure out how to um, go forward with some flexibility. We don't necessarily think it's like a hundred percent free for all um, coming out of the pandemic, but maybe there's different approaches we could take to allowing some flexibility for displacement of required off-street parking. And so what we're saying here, still thinking of options, you know, is it a is it a percentage of the required parking that can be displaced for patio use? Is it a, a, a maximum number? Are there different thresholds and maybe different requirements and evaluations needed based on how much you're removing? Different things like that. Um, but uh, this is another place where the design review could come in. So we're offering uh, an incentive, which is an ability to displace off-street parking requirements. And in return for that, we would ask that you potentially go through this design review process so that we can prove out that this patio is truly additive to the neighborhood and um, uh, and um, additive to our placemaking goals. So just quickly, we I won't go into details here. We've been doing a lot of outreach to date and we've got a lot more coming up. Uh, we've had a lot this week. Um, so it's, a lot of that's fresh in our minds. We have a stakeholder working group for this effort and we're actually meeting with them for the second time tomorrow to share some of these initial ideas and we'll be doing a lot more outreach as well. Uh, from here, uh, we'll be developing some public review draft materials, including a text amendment, but also probably some strategy document to go along with that that's a little more illustrative than, than a kind of typical text amendment would be just as a companion document. And then those design guidelines I've mentioned, getting them out at the same time uh, we're continuing to do a lot of outreach and tentatively we would come back to this group for <clears throat> for a public hearing on potential zoning changes on 4-19-23. Uh, and then the other big uh, effort in front of us still is to address those below curb patios um, and the process review and regulations for that uh, typology. So thanks for listening and really anxious to hear your guys' ideas. Thank you very much. This is uh, an exciting and fast moving project and I'm happy to be part of the uh, uh, one of the community engagement efforts and just fantastic outreach. Okay, I see uh, Jordan, uh, Fred, and then Jordan, and then go, uh, Jordan Lord's hand. Oh, no, that's just me. Uh, Fred, Jordan, Gosha. Fred. Well, thanks. <clears throat> really appreciate it. I think that uh, I know as a, as a landlord, uh, particularly of some uh, a business that a very small uh, independent business that's embedded in a neighborhood, how much the patios meant to them uh, during COVID, and I think that's great that we see that carrying forward. A couple of just quickies, you know, in terms of the above curb, I heard the bit about the six foot versus the five foot. Uh, I hope that you'll leave some flexibility there based on, the, you know, what the sidewalk is essentially between private property and the amenity zone. You know, if there's only a five foot sidewalk, I hope you won't say, well, we, we need six feet, so you can't do it. Um, you know, in terms of process, I hope that, I, I, I guess what I would pitch on kind of all of this is that one of the distinctions might be the size of the business or the size of the, uh, 
the, which I think is related to the size of the impact. Uh, the more difficult we make this for, for the really small guys, uh, the more difficult we make it for small business in Denver. And I know that's been one of the, the key things that they've struggled with. Uh, you know, I, I'm the landlord of uh, Novel Strand and Baker, which I think has really developed great relationships with the neighborhood, et cetera, doing this stuff. But as soon as it gets difficult, as soon as they have to hire an architect to do drawings, it just makes these things so much less accessible. So uh, I, I guess I pitch on both the above curve and the private property stuff that we make it easy for the small guys to do it as well. So it's not just a program that the big guys can take advantage of and that we make that transition as easy as possible from the, uh, from the kinds of permits that they've got now where right now they're just doing a renewal. I hope that we're not gonna create more, make, create more of a process for them when the next time they renew and move into the new one. Um, love what you guys had to say about the, the process and eliminating the Zipsy. I was kind of scribbling that myself and uh, Zipsy's and the whole BOA process, I think are just such a disincentive, particularly to those small businesses that are neighborhood embedded. Um, again, the urban design stuff, I totally get it. I love what I'm hearing. Uh, but again, I hope that we'll consider the scale of the business, et cetera, uh, as we consider that so that we don't make that a barrier. The patios in and of themselves, I think, contribute so much to the life on the street. If we make it too difficult, we won't do them at small businesses. And that would, that would be very sad. Thank you. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks. Um, I, I'm happy to see all the thought that's gone into this. It's, you know, I think had this been prior to the pandemic, all these things, it would have been a completely different discussion. Everyone was, you know, more uh, up in arms about the idea of, of active use on the streets, certainly more up in arms about the idea of displacing parking. Uh, and I think just the times have changed and we've seen other communities around Denver, like Arvada, for instance, who have just fully just committed to this, just no questions asked, just closed streets, done, let's do it. And I, uh, I, I think we're moving that direction. I'd like to see us move really confidently and boldly in that direction even further. At that point, I'll just get this one out of the way. The pilot program for the full closed streets thing, glad you guys are doing it all. But if the last two and a half, three years has not been a pilot program, I don't know what a pilot program could possibly teach us because those streets have been closed, Larimer, Glenarm, all these have been closed. Why do we need a pilot anymore? Let's just do it. Let's go do it. But more on the topic at hand uh, uh, with these sort of cafe uh, sort of seating elements and everything like that. I think there's something that, that I really appreciate. Um, the opening into all non-residential uses, I think that's great. I think that's something that probably a lot of places wouldn't have even thought of. So I think that's really interesting and cool. And I think that tattoo shop, hopefully they bring those back because I just love the concept of, of more businesses having a place to gather, even if you're not eating something or drinking something. The big one for me is the removal of the contiguous requirement, contiguous property. I think that's really important uh, and something that other cities around the world have done for you know centuries, but it's just not the American way <laughs> for whatever reason. So I'm really excited to see that. Um, and the, you know, the administration, administrative flexibility and design review. I think these are all really important things. I really appreciate you doing it. I do have a question or a comment to this question. The, the percent of parking, the flat number of parking spaces, that one, 
So it's both a thought and a question. The question I guess I'll start with is, have you guys received a lot of complaints from people who live around those businesses that have closed their parking during this free for all period? I mean, have we gotten like a inundation of complaints about parking and on our streets and all that stuff? Not really, to be honest with you, not really. Um, and, and I think that was, that was kind of a shock for us. And I will just share that I was also in a, we had a focus group meeting on Monday, which had representatives from multiple RNOs, um, where some of them are where there are some of these patios and they're really big ones. I won't name names in this meeting, but um, I sort of expected some push there um, and it just didn't happen. So, um, I mean, that's one of the best arguments I think for trying to be bold, um, but I, I don't know, I'm curious any other thoughts you guys have? I mean, we could go all out, but I also want us to be careful about that. Um, I want to make yeah. sure we're being we're being cautious there, and we're going to get something that can get through, and then we can keep iterating. You know? Yeah. I I guess my thought on it is caution. If we're not getting complaints, caution seems unnecessary. I I think that you know, like it will be sort of self-regulating if a company is having parking issues, a restaurant or whatever. They might not want to close it. If they're not, then they can. If we haven't gotten complaints, it's been working. Why should we cap it? Uh, you know, I, I don't think surface parking is something that we hold dear, but activated streets are. So why don't we? Why, why do we need to sort of regulate it to the level? And then the the level of regulation, the type of regulation. You have the, the percentage of parking. That's somewhat a logical approach. A flat number would have to probably be relative to the number overall, as with the percentage, right? I mean, like. If you have two parking spaces, a percent, a fifty, you know, twenty-five percent, like, it'd be hard to achieve that sort of thing. Have to be yeah. kind of scaled. And then there's a TDM requirement. You didn't really talk about that. That seems like Fred was saying, that's a big lift to to have someone to you know drop an idea of a TDM plan to address displacing a few parking spaces at a restaurant. Seems totally over overburdening to a small business. So I I don't know that. I mean, maybe I I, I don't understand what you're proposing there, but that seems heavy-handed to me so i guess uh i love everything you guys are doing i love uh the flexibility you're doing here i think that this is just a long time coming and we just want to create cool funky active streets uh that that you know create excitement and generate you know sort of uh activity and safety and all these things but the parking one is just the one that i come back to like just excuse my language here fuck it Let's just, let's just kind of, we're not getting the complaints. Let's just, just be bold about this. Uh, so that, I guess that's it. Uh, I'm a little, I'm a little uh, uh, squirrely right now because of how late it is. So <laughs> all in there. <laughs> thank you. Go show. Um, yes, thank you. Definitely agree uh, with everything that Jordan and Fred said. Yeah, if there's one lesson we learned from COVID is that we don't need all this parking after all. Like, we just don't need it. it it's been fine. Let's not bring it back. Let businesses decide to self-regulate it. Somehow they decided how many parking spaces they need, how many they can spare for benefit of city. Um, it worked. Let it be. Um, Definitely, let's not try to regulate it. Let's not try to put some hard numbers on it. I also echo the comments, concerns about design review or 
any kind of complicated regulatory submittals. Um, yeah, I would prefer not to have to be hired to design patios. I think we should look at it as a weekend project for small businesses. I think we're gonna see a lot of great creative solutions for seating and for enclosure. Uh, yes, it has to be safe and not get blown off in the wind. But again, I don't think it has been the problem um, in the last three years. So, and I love to see all the creative solutions, you know, beer barrels for seating, etc. It's all fun, it's quirky, it's colorful, you know, thinking about streets like Paris where it's pretty much all seating sometimes. And, and that's, that's what makes those places great and people friendly. And I think that's what we want more of. I love the idea of outdoor tattoo. Uh, would love to see how it works, <laughs> but I think that's also very interesting and enticing. Um, also love the idea of removing enclosures. I think it used to be tied to a liquor license. I don't know if that requirement went away uh, that we had to fence of drinking as if people fall off the chairs and roll into the streets um, after a beer or two. I'm glad that's going away. That's It's been very um, strange and, and restrictive. So um, yeah, I love it. Uh, I'd say let it be and let it be creative and spontaneous. Thank you, Angel. <clears throat> yeah, um, so I, I think there were a lot of outcomes from the pandemic that uh, are, have been dire, but um, the addition of these uh, patio uh, settings, I think, is one of the positives. And so I'm really uh, excited to hear about this um, plan and that it's not going to be overly restrictive. Um, I, I really love it um, and I'm excited to see um, the see more of this. Um, I think uh, I think it's a win-win. A if there's a downside, I can't think of what it is. It's good for businesses. It's good for placemaking for communities as destination spots. So I think it's very positive and um, very supportive of it. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Yeah, I uh, echo my colleagues and I would say I think this is a really great step in the right direction. Um, my advice would be to take it as far as you think it can go and then go five steps further. Um, because I, I do echo what Fred and, and Gosha said that while this is headed in the right direction, um, you know, on 99.9% .9 of these things, it's not a life safety issue. It's not, um, these are all things that businesses and the market will regulate themselves from um, parking, et cetera. Um, the amount of patio space needed. And so beyond, I, I would argue, um, access issues, I think the reprogramming or programming of public space um, around our city, uh, there can't be enough. Um, there cannot be too many surface parking lots, um, unused alleys, uh, adjacent um, extra sidewalk space that uh, can, can be used. So I, I just encourage you guys to, to take a look at 
you know, can you even get the regulatory framework even uh, less burdensome? Great. But Caitlin. very excited oh. and appreciate all the work. Sorry, Joel. No, thank you. Caitlin. Um, yeah, what Rachel said there at the end was just the one piece I wanted to echo. Um, I won't repeat a lot of the comments you've heard. I think they're um, spot on um, from the other planning board members. And I, I, I do think, you know, anytime you're thinking, do we need a program for this? Do we need a process? Do we need, you know, what, what, what level of requirements do we need? Like really push yourself to say like, do we need a process or do we need a regulation around this? Um, or should we just kind of get out of the way because it did work um, when we really let them just move forward. So um, I think calling that question each time will be really helpful. And then just wanted to know, um, really glad to see the the railings disappearing. Um, I think, you know, it's something that's so noticeable in Denver when you compare to traveling to other cities, um, that there's just this odd separation between that space and the public. And it really doesn't, you know, it's, it's not, you this spilling out into the public and kind of connection of the the public space and the patios is, is just so absent. And I think it's something that's so beautiful and wonderful in other cities. So really glad to see that um, change. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, well, Brad, I think you've gotten some good feedback here. I'll just add to it that I'm um, very curious how the the blend you're talking about of zoning regulations but the ability to have administrative adjustment if it meets design review, uh, I mean, you're crossing all kinds of fascinating lines here because I'm familiar with each of these separately, like design review standards. And if you don't meet the standards, you can at least demonstrate you meet the intent in a different way. But then having that give you relief from zoning regulations is uh, a a an interesting uh, mashup of things. So I'm, I'm interested in that uh, from a technical perspective. Um, on the on the private property in parking spaces, I, I I generally agree that um, you know we need to start recovering from this notion that um, it's up to the government to decide how much parking there needs to be when the the business knows best where they're drawing customers from. Is, is it far away? Is it close by? Are there transportation options or must people drive? They're going to take all that into account in a way that uh, zoning regulations couldn't. And so while we're not seemingly on the cusp of just eliminating off-street parking requirements, um, I don't see any reason not to say you can reuse all of this space um, for, for these kind of uses without limit, except, and this I can't take credit for this, this came from uh, the community meeting you held the other day, um, handicap spaces. Um, I don't think we want to do anything to uh, either sacrifice the number or the true accessibility of handicap spaces. Um, so uh, I know you'll be keeping that in mind. And thanks for asking for our feedback early, and we look forward to seeing you back here soon. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. We're on to the last item on our agenda, and we don't have a presentation for this. You've all received uh, a presentation in the past, and you have the draft of uh, Appendix 3 and 4 uh, for that we're proposing for our bylaws. And this covers our processes for doing documentation of deliberations when we choose to do that, and uh, additional recommendations when we choose to do that. 
So this time on the agenda is just to get any questions, anything that you need clarified or suggestions that you wanna talk through as a group. Um, Heidi left early, but she did send a suggestion. She would like to see um, the word preferably removed from when documentation of deliberations comes back for its final vote. Uh, it will always be put on the consent agenda. I think that's perfectly fine. And then of course it can be taken off of the consent agenda if it needs to be. And so we'll keep that second line that says, if it gets its own vote, you know, here, here's the form of that vote, but it will start on the consent agenda. She also had a question as to what will happen if during that period where we're all sending in comments and edits, uh, if, staff, if staff is receiving um, contradictory recommendations from different people, they can't, they can't do all at once. And I think the simple answer is the staff will work with the chair um, uh, on that. And so the final uh, proposed draft that's sent out um, prior to the meeting um, that'll be put on the consent agenda and then could be further discussed if it really needed it um, will just be finalized between staff and the chair. Mary Beth Sussman also left the meeting early. She said she had no questions or edits. What do you all think? Yeah, um, Rachel? Just a question for staff um, because this puts you know some of the responsibility on us, but some of the responsibility on you. Does staff feel comfortable from a staff capacity standpoint um, with what's being proposed? Yeah, thanks for that, Rachel. We we have talked about this quite a bit internally, and and you know for the for the time being, that staff would be me, uh, and uh, and I certainly uh, I do feel comfortable uh, with with what's proposed and and our capacity to do this. Um, we'll you know we'll monitor as as we move forward and see what the volume of these types of requests is, and and we can certainly. Uh, revisit uh, the these two tools if necessary if it if it seems like it's pushing the the, the limits of our capacity. Great. Great, thanks, Andrew. Thank you, and I, I will note that each of them uh, there's a line on the top of each of them will be used sparingly. So that's a note from us to our future selves, uh, <laughs> saying you know we'll use these when we really have something to say. And Joe. And then oh. oh. I just had one um, second question on the on the exhibit four on the additional recommendations. Um, those additional recommendations should be used only for legislative matters, not for quasi judicial, such as um, uh, site specific rezonings. I was thinking back to our Park Hill golf course situation where part of the consideration or the note that we wanted to make was that we you know if city council were to vote down the small area plan planning board's recommendation would not be to approve the rezoning um so just a point of clarification on that piece yeah that was actually a uh condition um so it was, it was a different uh, a different tool um and so uh, our recommendation of approval for the rezoning was conditional on um got it uh, on, on city council having already adopted the area plan. Um, Got it. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you. Yeah. No, but this you've, you've, uh, I, and I should thank the city attorney's office. They have reviewed the drafts of these and they had several meaningful edits. And, and this was one of them. Um, 
we should not look at an additional recommendation on uh, an individual quasi-judicial rezoning um, to say we, you know, on the official action, we recommend approval of this zoning. And as an additional motion, we wish they would have applied for another zoning, right? Um, there's many good legal reasons why we don't want to start going down that path. So um, that's why we've we've narrowed the scope of that. And Joe. Um, yeah, a couple of questions, trying to remember what they are. They're about time frame, uh, making sure I understand. Um, okay, so if we do have these recommendations or we're not calling them conditions, but recommendations after a meeting, say tonight's meeting, then we would do all of these, um, the edits and uh, analysis, what have you, and present it on the consent agenda at the meeting two weeks from today. And then it would go to council. Yeah, um, the, the additional recommendation is done live in the meeting. So that doesn't have any homework that has to be done later. So um, okay. for instance, when we um, when we approved the uh, East area plan, mm -hmm. we also made a motion and and the motion passed for an additional recommendation that they um, that they restudy parking exemptions along right. uh, uh, along high capacity transit. Um, so we did that right there in the meeting to, and, and, and the city attorneys have recommended those are two different votes because one's the official motion and one's an additional recommendation, but there's no homework. Um, for the documentation of deliberations, that's where we have homework where, boy, it took us a lot of thinking and, and back and forth, and we came up with a recommendation, whatever it was, approval, denial, whatever, but we want city council or whoever is receiving this next, quite often at city council, we want to write down on our own words what the crux of it was to help them with their final action. Okay. And so that's, uh, and that's what I meant, the, uh, the documentation of deliberation. So two weeks from now, that would be on the consent agenda, this wording, the, you know, you know, synthesizing all of what was said. And then it immediately goes to council or Ludi or what have you. We're assuming that they, none of these are going to meet, you know, any sooner than two weeks from our, you know, initial deliberation. There may be instances where that's not the case, um, is my thought. And so I, I just want us to, to be aware that it's got to happen within that time frame. <laughs> Otherwise, it may be for not if we get it to the body of voters past their deadline or what have you. Um, and for council, for who's usually the ones that, that uh, are going to vote on our recommendations, have we talked to anybody there to, to make sure that they're able to uh, receive and analyze what we've presented such that it matters. I, I can respond to that, Angel. Uh, first, to your first comment, you're correct that uh, occasionally the sequencing will be will be different depending on how, how uh, distant from the planning board hearing 
um, uh, an item ends up at Ludi or at first reading. But our goal is to ensure that it's at least at on on the city council's legistar system by the time of the final or the second reading or the final public hearing. Uh, and uh, if you've looked at it before or not familiar with it, Legistar is the file and document management system that city council uses for all of the items that are that are sort of part of the package of any sort of uh, ordinance or bill or, or resolution that they consider. And so for rezonings, it includes like the staff reports and the um the the um the ordinance itself uh the typically the presentation and this will be another one of those documents that's provided in that system for council members to read uh, uh as they're going through their action items um and then to your second question we have uh, i i uh, met with the stat the central staff from the city council office uh, uh, about a week ago and, and kind of gave them a basic overview of what's proposed in these processes. And they were uh, very receptive to that. So the next phase then will be, so we, we know that the mechanics of it will work. They'll be able to receive that and, and ensure that it's posted on Legistar. The next steps will be, uh, having a conversation with, uh, city council members, probably a brief presentation at a committee meeting or a committee of the whole meeting at some point, just to, uh, basically give them an overview of what these tools are and, uh, and, and an expectation of how frequently they might actually see them. Okay. And if, if I could just jump in and Jill, just to, again, kind of reassure you on that, uh, the recommendation that it, be posted to Legistar and, and that all of that actually came out of interviews that I did with city council central staff and and with and with some council member staff as well. So yeah. you know that really that came from that that staff. That's where that's where that suggestion about how to communicate that came from originally. That, that's good that they're receptive and and yeah. cooperative and wanting wanting this. I I, if I can also just jump Please. in, um, Angel, something you mentioned about um, timing, I would say, or I guess my advice would be that, that you should probably take your time to make sure this is um, as accurate as possible and not worrying about getting this to Ludi. Um, according to the code, Ludi really is just a forum for, for the council to say, do we have all the information to move this to the full um, body? It's really not a, a, a time for council to start uh, debating the merits of that. Um, oftentimes, you know, they, they will ask specific questions, but my advice would be take the time to get this right. Don't worry about getting a, a, a time frame for, for any committee meeting. Great. Caitlin. Thanks. Um, first comment, I would just echo, I agree with Heidi's comment on the consent agenda component. Um, second question I had um, is, we have a both for the documentation of deliberation and the additional recommendations. I'm just curious how we would want to see that reflected in the minutes. I mean, I know it will exist as a document, but um, our minutes are relatively non kind of content oriented, right? It's more this person commented, this person discussed, but it doesn't go into the detail. And I'm just curious to the group of kind of how maybe the additional recommendations motion gets expressly put in, I think. And then what do we do with the documentation and deliberations document? Does it get attached to the minutes? That's an interesting question about the document. Um, the, there's a there's a motion. Uh, I, I move 
you know, we just completed an item and then maybe I, I move that we document our deliberations, right? And we maybe have a discussion about that and vote. Yes, there was a lot of city council would, you know, appreciate us going through how we did that analysis. So that motion is documented in the minutes. It comes back to us um, with the process that's outlined to say, here's our draft. We agree with this draft and there is a vote. It could be on the consent agenda, but there is a vote uh, to approve that. That's in the minutes. The question about whether the text of the final documentation of deliberations goes into our minutes, I don't think we've considered. It certainly gets transmitted. Um, Andrew, uh, Adam, do you think it needs to be in our minutes as well? I would say um, I have been thinking about this, and according to the Muni Code, when you um, record your non-official acts, there is a requirement that that a summary of the votes for and a, a votes against are recorded. So my initial thought was that that short summary should be put into the minutes. I don't think the minutes themselves need to have the the in-depth um, documentation of deliberation. That's something you know uh, separate and aside from that. But because these are non-official acts, they they will need a little bit more um, meat on the bones in terms of what goes in the minutes uh, going forward. Great. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I, I I didn't really have a direction on it. I just was curious. So thank you for thinking on that. Um, and then the last is really a question um, and the discussion you all had around and the comment right near the end for the, um, what are we calling it? Uh, additional recommendations motion. So the note um, on the additional recommendations should only be used for legislative matters, not for quasi-judicial matters, such as site-specific zonings or rezonings. Um, so I just wonder if we could hear a little discussion from Adam on that point. Um, you know, it, it's funny because when we were really kind of struggling with the um, the rezoning earlier tonight from the PUD to the GMU3, I started thinking about these a little and like almost wishing that we could have a note saying, gosh, GMMX3 might be more appropriate, right? Um, and sort of an encouragement to the applicant um, to reconsider that. So just curious on your thoughts on that, Adam. Thanks. Sure. So, and I was thinking the exact same thing. I guess I would start out with, in most site-specific rezonings, um, there's a potential for a number of zone districts to meet plan consistency, right? There, there's usually not one, one correct zone district through a, through a map amendment. So just playing that out uh, on a site-specific rezoning, and, and my understanding on the additional recommendation is one of the, the key elements of that is when, when you feel something meets plant consistency, but something may be better. So on a site-specific rezoning, like in this case, we said, well, GMU3 meets review criteria, but GMX3 may have been a better option. That gets transmitted to council. Council looks at that, bases an ultimate decision, not on the review criteria, but on that additional recommendation. I think the city's at legal risk to potentially have that rezoning overturned because it's not meeting review criteria. So. Again, I, I think in the site-specific world, um, we, we should be reviewing what's coming before the board and, and making decisions on that. Um, I'm sure you've heard you know, some of the, the 
project managers saying, because uh, I've heard it questions, you know, why wasn't this applied for? Why wasn't that? And it was like, well, that, that's what came to us and, and we reviewed that application in front of us. Yeah, and if I could add, I mean, I, I think it's important to keep in mind that the additional recommendation is our recommendation to council, not to the applicant. And I, I think we can kind of signal that, boy, applicant, you know, you might've considered something else and, and you might consider withdrawing the application and thinking about if you wanna resubmit on something else, but we're really here in terms of the action that we have to take to respond to the application that they submit. Um, and we, you know, and, and as I say, any additional recommendation that we're making is a recommendation to council. And, and I don't see any way that we can recommend that council act other than on the application before them. I think one other issue I thought of is obviously this board has a role in the map amendment process and that's to, to make those recommendations. You definitely don't want to get in a situation where that can be confused, where this board is providing some sort of testimony at a council meeting either. And, and I think based on what type of recommendation goes forward, it, it could be um, blurring that line in certain uh, scenarios. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I just wanted to kind of flesh it out and hear your thoughts. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And, and, I just I'll repeat myself slightly. This uh, this whole write up was greatly improved by input from the city attorney's office on on this point and several others. So thank you. And Fred, I should mention the, these are things that were knocking around in my mind for years. Saying uh, I, I, we need more ways to express ourselves, and uh, the work that Fred did in in his uh, thesis and interviews and stuff really sharpened this and was able to to bring us to this point. Okay, well, with that, uh, we will we will make a couple edits and propose the final version. Fred, you're just gesturing. Oh, oh I, I saw Angel had a hand up, but it looks like that's gone down. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it, it's not related to this, but to um, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm tired and I can't remember it anyway, so. Okay, so uh, next you'll be seeing uh, a draft for, um, for vote to uh, incorporate into our bylaws. Over to you, Andrew, for last announcements. Uh, no other additional announcements, uh, Joel, uh, but thank you all for uh, a, a long night and a lot of really uh, thoughtful discussion. Really appreciate your time. Thank you all. We are adjourned. Mm -hmm.